big finish for the love of stories. Doctor Who, the audio novels. The Dead Star by Kate Orman. Read by Michael Troughton. Episode 1. Polly asked Ben, What's the first thing you're going to do when we get there? Both of them had their hands on the TARDIS console. They hadn't got the faintest idea how to operate it but experience had told them to be ready to grab hold of something solid. If the TARDIS hit turbulence, you were likely to be thrown against one of the high walls, and those circular indentations could leave a painful bruise. Ben said, I'm going to start with your full English breakfast. Bacon and eggs, sausages, baked beans, fried tomatoes, mushrooms and toast, washed down with a bucket of tea. Then for lunch, proper fish and chips... Are you going to spend the entire day eating? Polly was appalled. You'll make yourself sick. If there's anything I've learnt about the future and the past, Paul, he said, it's that you never know where your next meal is coming from, or when. Plus there's always only one place in the universe to get a decent pie and mash, and the TARDIS food machine is not it. They were both ready for their destination. Polly wore a white mini-dress with short sleeves, ready for summer shopping in the city, and her blonde hair had been carefully ironed flat. Ben was less spectacular in dark jeans and a fashionable floral shirt. As usual, the doctor looked as though he had found his clothes in a dusty trunk and thrown them on while thinking about something else. His black jacket, pale blue shirt and grey pants were all at least two sizes too large. He had a mop of black hair and pale eyes that gazed out at the world with a mixture of melancholy and boyish glee. He had on a dark blue bow tie, but he hadn't done it up. He looked at his companions, crestfallen. But don't either of you want to come to the Natural History Museum with me? They both looked at him guiltily, but the doctor grinned. You don't want to spend an entire day peering at cuneiform? <laughs> That's quite understandable. It'll make a nice change for me, focusing on little things instead of great big things. They smiled at him a little warily. It hadn't been long since the doctor they had first met, the stern grandfather with a twinkle in his eye, had transformed himself into this avuncular, mischievous, sometimes infuriating new man. They were still a little unsure of him. Perhaps he felt the same way about them. That was the moment the TARDIS collided with something. Oh, oh my word, shouted the Doctor. Ben and Polly grabbed for the console, but the force of the knock bowled them across the hard floor of the room and left them squashed against the wall. Then there was a second shock and the TARDIS felt as though it was plunging downwards like a broken lift. Ben and Polly found themselves floating up towards the ceiling. Oh, come on, Doctor! yelled Ben, thrashing, trying to reach the floor. 
The doctor had somehow managed to stay stuck to the console, despite the roller coaster ride. Uh, we've run into a, a corridor through time, he shouted over the rumbling and grumbling of the TARDIS engines. Do something, Doctor, cried Polly. I'm trying to lock onto it. I can use it as a guide for a safe landing if I can just... There was a terrific lurch, which made Ben grateful he hadn't started on that full English yet. Then, with a great thump, the TARDIS stopped cold. Ben and Polly dropped a couple of feet onto the floor. They clambered up, rubbing their bruises. The doctor emerged from behind the console. He seemed undamaged, though that silly hat he insisted on wearing had come off. It is over, isn't it? said Polly. Oh, yes. We've landed perfectly safely. Perfectly, said Ben. I just sort of slid the TARDIS down the time corridor. Simple, really, when you know how. He glanced at a few dials. There we are, London, 1960. Oh, dear. The time corridor knocked us a little off beam. It's 1968, he patted the console. Still, not a bad effort, all things considered. Polly and Ben looked at each other. Two years in their future. Polly said, Doctor, how can there be a corridor in time? The same way there can be a corridor in space, the doctor said, picking up his hat. It was all crumpled. He sighed and tossed it onto the console. Someone made it. We've landed at one end of the time corridor. Whoever is responsible for it is somewhere outside. In London, said Polly. You mean there's someone from outer space out there? Certainly someone who doesn't belong on 20th century Earth. Ben was rubbing his banged knee. I'd like to have a word with them, whoever they are. The doctor touched a control and the TARDIS doors slid open. For a moment, the three space-time travellers stared out at the world outside, bewildered. Then Polly said, You've landed sideways. The TARDIS must be lying on the pavement. The doctor frowned. He fumbled in his pockets until he found a marble. Without ceremony, he flicked it out of the door. Instead of falling down to the pavement, the marble fell sideways, landing on the window of the shop and rolling to stop against the frame. The glass-on-glass -glass sound was unnaturally loud. It was though the walls were the ground, and the ground was a wall. Everything was turned sideways. It's not us that's sideways, said Ben. It's the world. Stay here, both of you. The doctor got down on his hands and knees and crawled through the doorway, out into the sidelong world. He crept along the front of one building, then the next, as though he was an enormous black beetle. Look at the shops, Polly, said Ben. Isn't this Carnaby Street? He trailed off uncertainly. Where are the cars? Or the people? And why is everything... Polly waved a hand at the confusing view. Topsy-turvy! The doctor reached the shut door of the next shop along and stopped. Ha-ha! Watch this! And he stood up. Polly and Ben both gasped. Somehow it seemed like a dangerous thing to do as though the doctor would topple onto the paving stones. But he stood there, at a ninety-degree angle to the road, grinning. 
This new doctor is familiar and strange at the same time, thought Polly, a bit like this sideways street. You can come out now, the doctor called. Don't worry about the windows, they won't break. Awkwardly, Ben and Polly made their way out onto the shop fronts and stood up. Ben stepped gingerly on one of the windows, but the thin glass held his weight, just as the doctor had said. Polly put one hand against the pavement to support herself. The cement was warm under her hand. There was an empty blue sky to their left. A little further down the street, there was something else that was wrong with the buildings. Polly murmured, "'Does looking at that make you feel funny?' "'Hilarious,' said Ben. If you really want to feel odd, look up. Polly did without thinking and saw the shops across the narrow street suspended above her as though they would fall at any moment. She threw her arms above her head, then sheepishly put them down. Ben was still staring at whatever it was at the end of the street. He pulled his gaze away and looked back at the TARDIS. The first time they had seen the TARDIS, it had looked like a police box. A logical disguise if you wanted to park your time machine in London. The thing was, it had gone right on looking like a police box, even in Antarctica or in the 7th century. It might have fitted neatly into Skewwiff Carnaby Street if it hadn't been sticking out of the middle of a shop front, a good five feet above the pavement. There's no one, said Ben. In the middle of the day? Not even a pigeon! Polly crouched down and tried to pull, then push a shop door open without success. She peered in through a window, cupping her hands around her eyes. There was nothing inside. No clothes, no tables, nothing. She said, What could take London and do something like this, whatever this is? Who knows what a time corridor is, said Ben, or what it could do. What if it ain't just London that's twisted around like this? What if it's the old world? Polly said firmly. If something really had happened to the earth, the doctor wouldn't be taking it so lightly. The doctor had reached the spot where the shops ended suddenly, halfway through a building. There was a sort of a twist. If you followed the paving stones in the road with your eyes, you could just about make sense of it. And then, hanging overhead... Water? Aha, just as I thought, the doctor muttered. It's discontinuous. Polly stared up at the stretch of the Thames hanging upside down above them. Why doesn't the water fall down on us? she cried. Don't give it any ideas, Paul, murmured Ben. Do you see the bridge up there? said the doctor. We're going to step onto it. How? Like this. Take my hand, Ben. You take Polly's other hand, that's right. And now follow me. Don't stop to think. One... Two, three. The world swivelled around them, the Thames swinging down and sliding underneath them. Polly stumbled, unsure for a moment which way was up or down or forward. Then she found herself standing on concrete. She put out a hand and leaned against a grey metal railing. The water was below them now, where it belonged, flowing as though nothing was out of the ordinary. The others were also standing on the wide pavement, Ben had screwed his eyes shut halfway across. He opened them one at a time. It was only a short stretch to the bridge. Behind them it corkscrewed back into Carnaby Street, 
and ahead it suddenly stopped being a bridge and turned into a park. At least that's the right way up, said Polly. To the right of the park there was a tall building. There was something the matter with it, but she couldn't make it out. To the left was, well, it looked like a collection of concrete walls enclosing green spaces, but enormous and hanging upside down from the sky. The doctor was bouncing a small rubber ball up and down in the middle of the empty road, his lips moving. Counting? They stared at him. The simple methods are often the best, he said. Oh no, thought Ben. He's doing his work-it-out-for-yourself thing. He'll be playing his blasted recorder next. Doctor, he said loudly, this isn't really London, is it? The doctor looked up at his companions with a grin. That's right. This is a singularity, a region of space-time where the laws of physics breaks down. <clears throat> well, not so much breaks down as forgets how to drive, he chuckled. When the doctor did explain something, you didn't want to miss a word. Ben and Polly listened like charmed snakes. You see, one end of the time corridor must be anchored in London. When the TARDIS collided with it, it caused the fabric of space-time to open up a little. He cupped an imaginary ball in his hands, then moved them apart, as though the ball had got larger. Now, that little bit of extra space had to be filled in by something, otherwise there'd be the most tremendous explosion, you see. So the corridor copied the closest matter. Ben and Polly looked around them, amazed. Hard to believe it isn't real, said Polly. Her hair lifted in the slight breeze. It's only when you look around you realise it just can't be. It makes sense locally, said the doctor, but not globally. That's just a complicated way of saying it doesn't add up to anything. Ben said, We're lucky it didn't copy any of the people. Not as lucky as they were, said the doctor. These bubbles seem well behaved for now, but they can't last forever. Ben said, Well then, let's get out of here. Let's get back to the TARDIS. Oh dear, we can't, Ben. The doctor rummaged in his pockets. If we try to take off without knowing the structure constants, we might disappear into the vortex for good. So first, we need to take some readings. He pulled out a collection of bits and pieces, string and a little magnet and some pins, which didn't exactly set his companions' minds at rest. I wonder which part this is, said Ben. I'm sure we'd recognise it, said Polly. If only we could see the landmarks around it. I mean the real ones. They were standing on a brick pathway next to low walls which held beds of lavender and rosemary. The air should have been thick with their scent, but when Polly put her face up to the plants, she couldn't smell a thing. There was no smell at all. Not grass, not exhaust fumes, not the dubious water of the Thames. Something else was bothering Ben. He rubbed the back of his neck. Polly, do you have that feeling we're being watched? Polly murmured. Now that you mention it, yes, I do. Maybe there is someone here after all. Maybe whoever made the time corridor and caused this mess. She turned slowly, peering in every direction. I can't see anyone. Maybe we're just being paranoid. It's so creepy here. If you want to know what's really creepy, said Ben, look up, look at the sky. The sky was cloudless, a clear, healthy, deep blue. 
It took Polly a few moments to realise what was wrong. Where's the sun? she cried. It's like the light is coming from everywhere, all at once, said Ben. Look, we don't have shadows. But just for a moment, just in the time it took her to blink, Polly thought she did see the sun, or a pearl, or a red disc, or a black disc, or a luminous egg. What a microbe must see when it was under a microscope, an eye as big as the world. There was nothing there. She must have imagined it. She must have. Meanwhile, Ben had shaded his eyes with his hands, trying to work out what was wrong with the tall office building off to the side of the park. Suddenly it clicked. The building had been sliced cleanly down the centre. They were looking inside it. On the other side was the unmistakable shape of Big Ben, except that it was absolutely enormous, the size of a mountain. And sideways, of course. It's like a kid's model kit, said Ben, only dropped on the floor and jumbled together. The doctor was looking through an octant, moving it up and down and swivelling himself slowly around in a circle. Polly said, It makes me think of the landscapes in dreams, where several places you know are all jumbled together, schools and offices and flats where you've lived. Ben was peering over at the enormous walls in the sky, the pools, the metal fences. Know what? he said. That's London Zoo. Polly shaded her eyes with her hands. No visitors and no animals. The doctor said, This is a very crude, very simple copy of London, and living things are especially complicated. All right with me. I don't fancy running into a gigantic tiger, said Ben nervously, as though he expected one to jump out from behind a tree at any moment. Doctor, said Polly, why is the zoo? She pointed up at the looming enclosures. Oh, that's just a bit of spherical geometry, he said, but didn't elaborate. Ben and Polly found themselves staring at the outsized Big Ben. Big Ben is the bell, isn't it? said Polly. Does the clock have its own name? What if we went over there and climbed around on it? said Ben. I wonder whether I'm bigger or smaller than a nought. Ben, said Polly, am I bonkers or is it getting bigger? Ben yelped. The clock face was coming towards them. Or was it dilating, like a pupil in the darkness? growing larger? Run! they both cried, turning and pelting across the park towards the doctor, who was busy swinging his magnet around on a string. He looked up with a smile and then did a double take as he saw the clock tower racing towards them like a sideways cyclops. Over here! he called, waving as he ran for the shelter of an oak's thick trunk. Ben and Polly dived behind it. Anxiously, all three of them peeked out. A tremendous rush of hot wind slapped them all in the face, forcing them to cower behind the tree. If the whole building really was flying at them, thought Polly, how could a tree possibly protect them? Then it was over, as quickly as it had begun. Don't look just yet, said the doctor gently. He looked as though he was listening for some soft sound. All right. Ben and Polly poked out from behind the tree. Big Ben was gone, and in his place, where the park stopped, there was a dizzying top-down view of a windmill, as though they were hanging in the air half a mile above it. 
The doctor was grinning at it as though it was a pleasant surprise. He scribbled something down in his notebook. Aha! I was right. These bubbles aren't permanent. Then that bubble just burst, said Ben. And another one blew up to fill the space it occupied, said the doctor. That tells me a lot about the structure of this place, but it doesn't answer every question. I think we'll have to risk splitting up. We've still got to find the pathological bubble. What's that? said Ben. Somewhere here there is a special bubble where nothing at all makes sense. It's the key to the structure constants. Once we find that, we can leave. Like the eye of a storm? asked Polly. Hmm, almost the exact opposite, said the doctor grimly. Ben asked, how do we find it then? The doctor seemed as though he was about to explain it to them, then thought better of it. You'll know when you're there, when you're there, he said. Polly said, I feel as though we've been in this maze forever. Can't be all that long. Ben glanced at his watch, held it to his ear. Oh, that's strange. It stopped. They had walked along the stretch of Labrook Grove, squeezed past a sarcophagus in a museum, and crawled through the very top of a church, lit only by a small bit of stained-glass window. At last they emerged in Fitzroy Square. It's the TARDIS! exclaimed Polly. They broke into a jog, full of relief. At the space-time machine's door, they stopped to catch their breath. How did it get here? laughed Polly. Who cares? said Ben. I'm just glad to see it. The doctor said we can't take off until he's finished taking his readings, puffed Polly. That's fine with me. Ben leaned against the familiar blue shape. Just have to get the key off him. Let's just wait inside while he... Ben trailed off, suddenly miles away. Ben? Ben suddenly remembered a lieutenant he had been taking out to a ship a couple of years ago, the motorboat cutting a smooth line through salt water. The grey-haired veteran had started looking around, hugging himself, even though it was a summer day. Ben hadn't wanted to say anything, but the lieutenant saw him staring and gave him a thin smile. Young fellow, he said gently, I have the keenest feeling that something terrible is about to happen. Then he dropped dead in the bottom of the boat. Ben, what's happening? Right now, right now, every hair on Ben's head, every cell in his body, knew that something terrible was just about to happen. He could see from her horrified look that Polly felt the same way. He grabbed her arm. I think we've got to get out of here right this instant. They ran at full pelt back towards the church. But where was the church? The streets, the buildings were moved, scrambled. The pressure grew inside them, like their hearts were going to rupture, like their skulls were going to leap out of their heads. This way, shouted the doctor. They ran towards his voice, panicked and stumbling, until they felt grass beneath their feet, and the pressure let go of them like a rubber band snapping. Somehow they were back in the park. Polly glanced back and wished she hadn't. For a moment, where Fitzroy Square had been, there was nothing. Not like the night sky, that natural black. No colour at all. No shape, no depth, no space, nothing. For a bad moment, she thought she was going to scream, but she didn't have the breath. 
Did you see it? she asked Ben urgently. See what? he said. Behind us. Ben shook his head. All he had been thinking about was running. Good, said Polly. That's good. And she wouldn't say another word about it. Oh, oh my word! That was close! exclaimed the doctor, jogging up to them. The TARDIS! gasped Polly. Doctor, the TARDIS was inside the bubble! The one that popped! What? said the doctor. No, wait! It couldn't be! Are you sure it wasn't an actual police box? It was the TARDIS, all right, doctor, said Ben, sitting in Fitzroy Square, just like the first time we saw her. The doctor mopped his forehead with a huge white handkerchief. I think perhaps the day this mock London was constructed, the TARDIS was still parked in Fitzroy Square, so naturally it was copied too, but only the surface of it, like the buildings here. Doctor, said Polly firmly, I hate this place. For what it's worth, said the doctor, I have all the readings I need, except one. The pathophysical one, asked Ben. The pathological one, corrected the doctor. Polly didn't like the sound of that. Ben put a protective hand on her arm. Why don't we stay here for a bit, he asked the doctor, while you look for it. But Polly was shaking her head. There isn't anywhere safe here, is there? I'm afraid there is not, said the doctor. They trailed after the doctor down a tube escalator, just the escalator without the actual station, until they came up against a giant wall made of glass. It went on for hundreds of yards on either side of them, hundreds of yards above them. Behind it was just a dimly lit space. No details emerged, no matter how hard they looked. I reckon this is the front of a building, said Ben. Maybe a shop. Doesn't this concrete thing look like a giant doorstep? He leaned right back, trying to see if there was a name or sign. But if there was, it was too high up to make out. Then, when we go through, said Polly, everything will be its normal size, won't it? Probably, said the doctor. Here we go. He put a hand to the gigantic door, and it simply swung open for him as though he was huge, or it was tiny. The moment they stepped through the door, Polly knew they had found the pathological bubble. She felt she was taking the same step over and over, as though she was a bit of film being run through a projector again and again. The air itself was glowing as though they were inside a giant neon tube, shading everything violet and blue and white. She could smell sweat and sour spilled beer and thunder. Shocked, she grabbed a table and knocked over an empty glass, and it fell straight up. Ben was yelling. She realised she couldn't hear him over the roar that rose and fell, rose and fell. He was falling upwards, up to the ceiling of the pub, to the white ball lights sticking down, up, on their black stems. Polly was sure she was screaming, but she could only hear that dreadful crackling roar. The scream was stabbing out of her every couple of seconds, over and over. I'll still be here, she thought wildly, screaming until every last bubble bursts. In the middle of it all, an incredible sight. The doctor bouncing his rubber ball up and down on the floor, up and down, as though nothing strange was happening at all. In the next instant, the doctor was running towards them, as though from miles away instead of just across the floor. He grabbed Ben's flailing hand 
and the next moment Ben's shoes slapped against the floorboards. Polly reached out to them and the doctor caught her hand, spinning her around as he pulled both of them back through the door. On the steps of the escalator, Polly stood with her hands on her knees, head down. She felt she wanted to cry, but she simply didn't have the breath for it. One step below her, Ben was scrambling to his feet, clinging to the handrail, gulping like a goldfish. For an unpleasant moment, she thought he was going to be sick. Instead, he started shouting at the doctor. What were you doing in there? That, that place was killing us. And you just stood there bouncing your blasted ball. But the doctor was clutching the rubber ball in his hand as though it was made of gold. That was the last measurement I needed, he said. I just had to check certain details regarding torque and elasticity. Now I know exactly how to get us out of here. Polly slumped with relief. Real London, here we come. It was a long and tiring walk back through the maze to the TARDIS, the real TARDIS. The doctor fiddled non-stop with an abacus, keeping only a vague eye on where he was walking. Once he fell over a tree root, breaking the abacus and obliging them to spend several minutes picking up the coloured beads. Look, doctor, said Ben, chasing one bead that had rolled under a bush. Why don't you just throw that thing away and we can get out of here, quick? The doctor accepted the last bead, clicked it into place on the wire and smiled. Well, I could use a calculator, but there's a danger that its workings could be affected by our surroundings. Polly said, What is it you're doing, doctor? Checking the stability of each bubble, he said. Some of them are very large, and we don't want to get only halfway across and then realise it's about to go bang. He flicked a few beads around. Oh, it's a simple enough calculation. Now I know the structure's constants of this space-time. Well, how long does this bubble have? asked Polly. Should be several hours at least, said the doctor. But let's double-check. He took the rubber ball out of his pocket and gave it a few experimental bounces off the pavement frowned and gave it a few more. Oh dear, gravity is getting slightly stronger, he said. I don't feel any different, said Polly. It's not much yet, but it means we have less time than I thought. <clears throat> Come along. From further ahead, Ben called out, I can see Carnaby Street. We're nearly there. They hurried to catch up with him. There was the street and its shops, standing at right angles to them upside down. Ben wondered how they were going to get back up there. Suddenly Polly said, Oh no! Ben felt it too, the intense pressure, the hair-raising dread. Not again! Without ceremony, the doctor took Polly's arm and jumped through the twist in space. The world whirled madly around her. Then she was standing on the road. Ben! she screamed. She could make him out on the other side of the twist. He looked like an image in a funhouse mirror, like a rag doll held by its hands and feet and wrenched around by an angry child. The doctor was reaching back through the twist, which meant both his arms were... Polly tried to follow what was happening, but had to turn away. A moment later, Ben stumbled onto the road beside her, looking perfectly normal. The three travellers looked at each other in relief for a moment. 
then all of them felt that awful feeling once more. Carnaby Street was about to burst. Run! the doctor shouted. They raced across the sideways shop windows to the safety of the TARDIS. Ben glanced back through the doorway of the TARDIS. Outside, sideways Carnaby Street was blowing up like a balloon. Giant letters on giant signs, windows the size of ponds, the scenery for an insane play. He slammed the door shut on all of it. The doctor was furiously flicking abacus beads with one hand while touching controls with the other. Polly and Ben grabbed each other as he set the TARDIS dematerialising. The noise was far louder than usual, as if echoing back from the walls of the space that was slamming shut all around them. Doctor! yelled Ben. What if you can't get us out of here? Polly cried. Oh, what if we can't get out? The doctor's voice was somehow clear and quiet amongst all the noise. Trust the numbers, he said. A little later, they were all sitting on random bits of furniture, eating sandwiches and drinking tea, courtesy of the TARDIS food machine, and being grateful to be alive. What a pity that we ran out of time to explore, the doctor said. Such a rare phenomenon. Ben said nothing, just rolled his eyes at Polly, but she said, Doctor, I think that was the worst place you've ever taken us. If it helps... I think of it as the worst place I've ever got you out of, said the doctor, brushing crumbs off his jacket. Are we any closer to finding out who made the time corridor, said Ben. Polly added, yes, and why? Whoever it was, did they deliberately trap us in that, that crazy London? The doctor said, I believe this was a case of scientific incompetence. Whoever created the time corridor and created that preposterous model of London was using extremely powerful technology without knowing what they were doing. He hopped up and went over to the console. I wish we could have mapped the whole thing out. What a lost opportunity. A city without people, without life, is just a nasty joke, said Polly, hugging herself. It's just dead. It's an oversized coffin. Doctor said Ben. Is the real London in danger? If whoever got hold of this technology continues to play with matches, the whole earth may be in danger, said the doctor. I programmed the TARDIS to follow the time corridor to its exit on earth. If we're very lucky, then the person or persons responsible will be there, and we can deal with them. And if we're not lucky, said Polly. Ah, well... Girl Friday, wanted for university department, must have typing ability, aptitude for figures, personality and energy. Experience a plus. A good salary will be offered to the successful applicant. To apply for this position, please send a covering letter and your employment details. Polly glanced at her watch. Dr. Field's lecture was running overtime, as it often did, her audience of first-year students growing restless. Field spotted Polly at the back of the theatre and flashed her a quick smile. The astrophysicist was a woman the shape of an apple. Her unruly ginger hair was sprinkled with grey. 
She always wore a lab coat, always so that her students at London College of Natural Sciences, almost all of them young men, would remember she was a scientist. This morning's lecture was on general relativity. Polly couldn't hope to follow the maths that covered every inch of the blackboards. As usual, Fields had got sidetracked. What could my scribbles here possibly have to do with, say, a star on the other side of the Milky Way? She said, stabbing her chalk into the blackboard for emphasis. And yet we know that these equations govern the star's behaviour. As physicists, we don't just see the star. We look past the surface of matter to its essence, which is structure. And when we look into the structure, what we see is maths. Is that what the universe is fundamentally? Is it made of mathematics? It wasn't a rhetorical question, thought Polly. Doctor Fields was looking around the students, hoping that one of them would say something. Ah、oh, well, said Fields, slumping a little. Off you go. The lecture theatre became turbulent. Two hundred restless youngsters. Filing out between the wooden desks, clamouring to be heard over themselves. It was August 1968. The Tardis hadn't missed. This was where, or rather when, they would find the time corridor's exit. It was a mild summer, and yet it felt like the world was on the boil. All the fighting in the streets, all the changes. But what had really changed in the two years since she and Ben had left? The terrible war in Vietnam was still dragging on. The Americans and the Russians were still testing loads of atom bombs. On the other hand, she thought, at Christmas time, they were going to send astronauts to go all the way around the moon, which was smashing. And the things the Beatles had been up to. Most of the boys tried to catch Polly's eye as they passed. She returned their hopeful smiles, but they were all so young she couldn't really tell them apart. Since they arrived, Ben couldn't report for duty. By now, he was very awol. What would become of all these young men? Would they become soldiers and sailors too in some awful war? Fields talked about her students as the future of science, the ones who would complete the project of unraveling the secrets of the cosmos. Or thought Polly, will we all be blown up together in a mushroom cloud thanks to the physicists? When they were gone, she went down the stairs to the front of the lecture theatre, where Fields was rummaging through a stack of folders. The air was full of the sharp, sweet smell of chalk dust. Polly said, "Good morning, Doctor. I found that press release from Mullard Observatory." Secretary of the Year. Fields took the pages in both hands. I know I say this all the time, Polly, but we'd be lost without you. By we, I mean the department, but mostly me. Polly grinned. Nice to be needed. I feel ready for an espresso. Come on, Doctor Fields. You deserve a proper break after trying to drum Einstein into that collection of wooden heads. The Fields Polly had first met would have laughed out loud. These days, her laugh had been replaced by an angry chuckle. Ha <laughs> ha! To the coffee bar. Polly and Doctor Fields had got along right from the start. Fields was generally thrilled by science and keen to explain its secrets to anyone who would listen. Polly knew what it was like to be underestimated by men, undervalued, 
for no one to be interested in listening, so Polly always listened, even if she didn't always understand. A couple of times they'd had lunch and gone clothes shopping together. When Polly saw the real Carnaby Street overflowing with chatter and music, colour and life, she'd had to pretend she'd got something in her eye. She tucked her hair under a cap and kept her head down, hoping she wouldn't run into anyone she knew. That would be an awkward conversation. She could hardly tell them where she had been while two years of their lives went by. But it wasn't all bad. She was enjoying her undercover job at the university, although she wasn't quite sure yet how it was helping the doctor. She also wasn't entirely sure how the doctor had organised a job for her and a London flat to boot. One warm and breezy night in July, she and Fields had driven out to the facility in Surrey, and Fields had shown her the planet Pluto through the college's hundred-inch telescope. To Polly, it looked like all the other white dots in the sky, but it still gave her a frisson to know that it was an entire world. For all we know, said the astrophysicist, that's where the human race end up living, once the sun turns into a red giant and swallows the earth. When's that going to happen? Polly had asked, alarmed. Not for billions of years. <laughs> they both laughed, and then Fields wilted. I doubt the human race will live that long, with everything that's happening all over the globe. Don't lose hope, Dr. Fields, Polly had said, keeping up her cheery smile. Underneath it, guilt gnawed at her stomach. She had been deceiving Fields for so long. It had been weeks since she had seen Ben, busy with his own undercover mission for the doctor. She hoped he didn't feel the same way. The True Noir was the college's best café. It was quiet just now, with the lunchtime rush an hour away. The polished wooden decor was a bit pretentious, Polly thought, but the place always smelt deliciously of ground coffee and powdered sugar. Fields plonked her folders down on a spare chair. Polly automatically caught the stack before it toppled onto the floor. She couldn't help thinking of Professor Brett, her former employer, who could often be found besides an avalanche of papers. As Polly had expected, it wasn't long before Fields began to talk about her professional frustrations. I could be sitting on a Nobel Prize discovery, she said, but can I get the telescope time I need? I cannot. Professor Christoffel has knocked back my requests twice now. If I was a member of his Chicxulub club, like Professor Scapinelli, I might be able to book an hour or two on the big scope. The Chicxulub club, Polly knew, was an exclusive organisation for scientists and investors, and Ben's current employers. The doctor had arranged for him to go undercover there, just as he had found the position for her at the college. They kept Ben busy, she hadn't seen him for ages. "'Who is Professor Scapinelli?' asked Polly, who had been trying to find out for weeks. "'No idea,' said Fields. "'She turned up out of the blue a couple of months ago, and suddenly she was flavour of the month. All research and next to no teaching!' She lowered her voice. "'Just between you and me, I think she got her position here on the back of her money and connections, not her qualifications. She's a bit cranky, to be honest.' has a lot to say about a fifth fundamental force. Oh, listen to me! She took an angry swallow of her coffee. Shouldn't be talking about a fellow woman scientist like this. I'm just so fed up! What does Professor Christoffel say is wrong with your work? 
I go over and over the calculations, said Fields, frustratingly stirring her cappuccino. I can't work out what's wrong. There isn't anything wrong, she sat back. What am I supposed to do? Polly said a little loudly. Why don't you try to explain it to me, Doctor? Not the worst idea in the world, said Fields, brightening a little. Trying to explain things simply often helped her think. You remember how gravity lets us see things that、uh, we can't see through our telescopes? She fiddled around for something to draw on. Polly handed over her stenography pad and a pencil. Say you've got a planet happily going round the sun. Fields drew a circle and a curving line for part of its orbit. In this case, Uranus. Now you've watched it night after night. You've got loads of observations. Plug that data into the formula for orbits, and you can predict exactly where it should be, where to point your telescope next. But there's something wrong. Sometimes Uranus is ahead of where it should be. Sometimes behind. Something out there is affecting Uranus's orbit, speeding it up and slowing it down as it goes by. Fields drew a second circle, a second orbit. Like any schoolgirl, Polly had learned the names of all the planets. Um, Neptune, the first planet to be discovered using the power of mathematics, said Fields. How about Pluto? She said. Well, admitted Fields, that discovery had more to do with sheer persistence and calculation. She added a small circle for the ninth planet. Anyway, we have half a century's worth of observations of Pluto. More than enough to try the same trick again. In fact, astronomers have been looking for a planet beyond Pluto for decades. Have you found? Said Polly. Fields flinched, and Polly lowered her voice. Have you found it? That is what I thought at first. Murmured Fields. Planet X, a body about fifteen times as massive as the Earth. Next to that, Pluto looks like a fly speck, but no one's ever seen it. She drew a new circle and coloured it in black. I first spotted it in historical data. It's been displacing comets for a long time, sending them inwards towards the planets. And this is the funny bit—the bit Professor Christoffel refuses to accept. Our planet X isn't in a normal planetary orbit. It's moving like a comet, heading in the direction of the sun. She drew a long line that went past Pluto, past Neptune. But it's far, far too big for even the largest comet. It's a planet like Uranus or Neptune. Polly thought of Mondas. Could the planet have left the solar system, and now it's returning? I think the most likely thing is that our object was wandering in interstellar space and was captured by the sun's gravity. It should have settled down into a nice orbit at the edge of the solar system. But for some reason, it decided to decamp for the inner solar system instead. Doctor Christoffel can't accept all of this," said Polly carefully. "But do you believe it, Doctor Fields?" Fields drew a deep breath. Planet X is headed straight for planet Earth. Polly said, "There's someone I'd like you to meet." At the next table, the doctor turned around, reaching out a hand. It's marvelous to meet you, Doctor Fields. Polly's told me so much about you. Fields took his hand automatically. I'm sorry, I, I didn't quite catch your name. Polly said, "Oh, everyone just calls him the Doctor." 
The doctor smiled. Would you mind terribly if I took a look at your figures? Fields looked shocked. This stranger had been listening to their whole conversation, and Polly had known he was listening. And what's more, he had understood what she was saying, and he was interested. She said, You might as well look at my figures, for all the good they're doing me. Splendid, said the doctor. She handed him a folder, and he started thumbing through it. Now, you're sure there aren't any mistakes in these numbers? Believe me, said Polly, who had typed it all up. I double and triple checked everything. Ah, there is a little error here in the calculations, he said politely, showing fields where she had dropped a term. Quickly he added, but it doesn't change your conclusions. Have you tried to directly observe this object? I can't get near the college's telescope said Fields, frustrated. But a friend let me go through their observatory's photos. I know very precisely where planet X should be located, but I can't spot it. Could it be too small to see? Not with that mass. The only thing I've been able to think of is that it has a very low albedo. The doctor was watching her closely. What else could be so massive and still be invisible? For a moment Fields looked bewildered. Then she sat bolt upright, knocking over her cup. What is it, Doctor? said Polly. Fields was furiously scribbling equations. She looked like the Doctor had just hit her over the head with a shovel. Polly knew what that was like. The Doctor, on the other hand, looked like the cat that had got the cream. He said, What if, Doctor Fields, Planet X is actually a black hole? Forgotten for hours, Polly drank several cups of tea, ate a slice of cake and doodled dogs all over a napkin. If only Ben were here, at least she'd have someone to talk to. Come to think of it, she must have another go at tracking down Dodo. It's not big enough, Fields was saying. It only has the mass of a smallish gas giant. Not every black hole is a dead star, insisted the doctor. <clears throat> Black holes created during the Big Bang come in all sorts of sizes. During the... how would that happen? The doctor got out his abacus. Polly ordered another slice of cake. When the cafe closed, Fields, who'd realised she'd missed her afternoon lecture, sent Polly home and said she was going back to her office to look over everything. Polly and the doctor walked through the deserted campus, past the brushed concrete buildings, heading for the tube station. The balmy summer evening was spiced with the smell of freshly mown lawns. Doctor, said Polly, if I ask Dr Fields to tell me what a black hole is, she'll never stop telling me. So would you mind explaining it, preferably in words of one syllable? The doctor said, well, I'll try. You see... A black hole can be created when a very large star reaches the end of its lifespan and goes supernova. Now, a star is tremendously massive. Earth's sun weighs about an octillion tons. When a star's furnace goes out, there's nothing left to hold the star up against its own enormous weight. He mimed a ball with his hands, bringing them suddenly together. 
the dead star collapses in on itself, crushing all of its matter into a tiny space. His right hand became a tight fist. The closer you get to it, the more intensely you feel its gravity, until it's so powerful that nothing can escape its pull, not even light. That's why it's black, said Polly, a little bit awed. Out of the corner of her eye she saw a large dog crossing one of the lawns. When she turned her head it was gone. She said, So it sort of sucks everything in? Well, <clears throat> no, they're not vacuum cleaners, said the doctor, pleased with his joke. They don't suck and they don't gulp. From a distance the black hole's gravity is perfectly safe, just as if it was an ordinary star. But if you go back into the black hole... You can never come out again. Was that the dog again, passing behind them? Polly tried to concentrate. It's funny orbit. It has something to do with the time corridor, doesn't it? He nodded. The time corridor is straight as a die. Dr. Fields thinks her planet X is following an elongated elliptical orbit, like a comet. She doesn't have enough data yet to see the straight line. They were passing by the grandiose optics building. But, Doctor, does that mean... Between two columns, she caught a glimpse of that dog again. No, it wasn't a dog. An instant later, the thing skittered round the column, a thick body with multiple legs, staring at them menacingly with two black eyes. No, four. Eight? The shriek came out of Polly as though someone had pushed her down a flight of stairs. Now the monster was a hound bigger than she was, made of hundreds of small metallic parts all jumbled together, moving and changing in front of her eyes. Oh dear, it's a robot, exclaimed the doctor. All at once it was tumbling towards them. This collection of pieces of red rods and gold chains and jagged silver shapes galloping across the grass so lightly it left no trace. But there was a parked car in its way, and it leapt onto it, crumpling the roof like foil. Oh, my star! shouted the doctor. Polly was frozen in place. The moment he grabbed her arm, she turned to run with him, even though the robot man-dog was racing down the road, only a few seconds behind them, only one second behind. It was on them! A black car slid in front of them, slamming on its brakes. Without a pause, the doctor yanked open the back door and pushed Polly inside, rolling in after her. The doctor exclaimed, Oh, my word! The robot got the tip of one leg inside the car before he managed to slam the door in his face. As the car roared away, the claw fell apart into a small pile of components, scattered on the carpeted floor. Polly looked around. They were in a limousine, just as black on the inside as outside. Black seats, black carpet. Thank you very much, she said. The driver turned around for a moment. Silver dark glasses flashed above a familiar grin. Ben! Watch your Duchess. You two all right? I think so. You turned up just in the nick of time. But what are you doing here? Someone cleared their throat. Excuse me. Polly nearly jumped through the roof. There was someone else in the back seat. Someone slender with broad shoulders, a strong jawline and a generous mouth, wearing big eyeglasses with narrow frames and dangling earrings. I'm terribly sorry, Polly began, 
Mrs. Gero Scapinelli, the woman gave her an alarming grin. I get a big kick out of being called Professor. You're the famous Polly, of course. Scapinelli looked far too young to be a professor, especially wearing a startling up-to-the-minute outfit with a blue and white striped shirt and trousers with one purple and pink leg. She wore very minimal makeup. Her hair had been dyed a sort of smoky rose colour. The doctor was carefully picking up the bits of robot, bundling them into his handkerchief. What was that thing? Polly said, twisting around to peer anxiously through the back window. Oddly, Scapanelli didn't even seem interested. Don't worry, said Ben. It's not following us. I saw it run off. We're obliged to you, Professor, said the doctor. He leaned past Polly and gravely shook Scapanelli's hand. I've heard so much about you. All good, I hope? The Professor grinned. Her irises were so dark, they looked black. I thought your symposium presentation on knot theory and general relativity was first rate, the doctor said. Wasn't that frantic, laughed Scapanelli. I thought no one knew what I was talking about. I'm glad someone got something out of it. Here you go, announced Ben, pulling the limo over next to one of the college buildings. Right, said Professor Scapanelli. Mustn't keep Dr. Christoffel waiting. Ben hastened to open the back door, holding out a gloved hand to help her out. Polly turned around, only to find herself nose-to-nose with Scapanelli, who was knocking on the window. She rolled it down. Again, that hair-raising smile, the professor's black eyes going wide and her thick eyebrows raising. Polly felt like a mouse on the business end of a cat. But Scapanelli said, "'Here's something for you. It's an invention of mine.' She rummaged in the pockets of her flowing shirt, plucked out a small glass tube and pressed it into Polly's hands. "'If you find yourself in trouble,' she said, "'just you put that to use.' And she was gone before Polly could say a word. She turned the tube over. It was filled with a pale blue liquid. The label had a busy design, yellow and black, like a wasp. The cap was tightly screwed on. She handed it to the doctor He peered closely at the liquid for a moment. Now, I wonder what this is. He took off the cap, stuck the tip of his little finger into the tube, and popped a tiny sample of the liquid into his mouth. Ben said, Doctor, what if it's something dangerous? The doctor, screwing up his face, said, I'm sure I've encountered this substance before. He handed it back to Polly absently. Just can't place it. I'm sure it'll come back to me. What an odd person, said Polly, half to herself as she climbed out of the car. Ben was peeling off his black gloves. The prof's all right, he said. Nicer than some of the Cheekshaloop Club. Some of them are real snobs. When she saw you were in trouble, she told me to pull over. The doctor pocketed his hanky full of components. That robot came after us said the doctor, and then Professor Scapanelli had you rescue us, and then she said no more about it. You're right, said Polly. She didn't react to it at all. Ah, how very interesting. Do you know what she's up to tonight, Ben? There's a big dinner on for club members only, 
he said. They'll all be drinking cocktails and taking turns looking through the big telescope. Nice night for it, Polly said. I've got an idea. The doctor smiled. Oh dear. Dr. Christoffel's guests wouldn't be able to start stargazing until it got dark, which wouldn't be for a couple of hours yet. That gave Polly plenty of time to return to the department's offices. She went by herself. Ben had to wait for Scapanelli, and she left the doctor in the college's library, analysing the bits of robot with the complete absorption of a child watching the activities of an ant's nest. That left her to find out what she could about the members of the Cheekshaloop Club, including Christoffel. Although all the lights were out, save one postgraduate student slaving at the microfitch reader, the bright evening made it easy to make her way. She stopped in her own office to grab a file as a prop, in case anyone asked what she was doing so late. Then she slipped into the cleaner's storeroom and pinched his keyring. But to her surprise... Professor Christoffel's office wasn't locked. The office was large and well-appointed, with a picture window looking out onto campus and another big window through which he could watch passers-by in the corridor. The professor's desk was very tidy, even prim. No papers left lying around to tempt the curious, thought Polly. He was noted for doing his own typing rather than giving it to the secretarial pool. A typewriter sat perfectly straight on the leather desk pad, accessorised by a mug full of pencils. His filing cabinet wasn't locked either. She sat too with the methodical patience of a secretary, making sure each file went back into its place once she'd looked through it, so no one would suspect a spy. Not much of a spy, thought Polly. I'm not even sure what I'm looking for. She had leafed through half a dozen files when a letter typed out on unusual rose-pink paper caught her eye. She unfolded it and looked at the letterhead. The Cheekshaloo Club again, she murmured to herself. She was halfway through the letter when she heard her name. Polly? She whirled. Dr Fields was standing in the open doorway, frowning. She switched on the light. What are you doing? Polly took the bull by the horns. Christoffel knows you're right, she said. She pushed the letter into Dr. Field's hands. Planet X is real. He knows all about it. But he's determined to stop you from ever making it public. In fact, he... Stop, said Fields. Please stop. She put on her reading glasses. After a moment, she began to read aloud. To this end, it is imperative she has no access to X-ray astronomy via rocket or gamma-ray astronomy via satellite. Polly, he knows it's a black hole. He's known all along. At this time, the risk factor from taking further action outweighs the risk of allowing fields to continue, even under close supervision. What the devil does he mean by further? Fields whirled, the bit of paper flying out of her hands. The wolf robot was hurtling down the long hallway towards them. The two women leapt to the open door at the same moment, slamming it shut. Fields stood on tiptoe to slide the top bolt home. 
Polly grabbed a chair and shoved it under the handle. The robot splashed across the window as though someone had emptied a bucket of tin toys across a glass floor. Each part seemed to have a mind of its own. Flat pieces were pushing between the door and the jam, trying to pry it open. Other bits were spinning against the glass of the window, as if hoping to drill through. What do we do? yelled Fields. In a single motion, startlingly quick, the robot's pieces drew themselves back together into a huge shape. A flattened, eight-legged disc pressed against the glass. As Polly and Fields watched, it raised four of its legs and smashed them into the window. The glass fractured into big pieces, falling into the room, followed by the robot spider's heavy body. It landed on the office floor with a thump. It turned its blunt head towards them, black cameras popping out of the mass-like eyes. Polly screamed again. She couldn't help it. Episode 2 Fields, panicking, ran to the outside window, struggling to open it. Better a three-storey jump than whatever the robot was going to do. At the same moment, the spider wolf sprang, knocking Polly to the floor. She fell on top of her handbag, hearing the breaking of glass. Professor Scapanelli's vial inside the bag. The blue liquid oozed out, spilling across her arm as she struggled to get back to her feet. Somehow, it was freezing cold. She yelped as bits of window glass embedded themselves in her palms. Fields was halfway out of the window with the robot attached to her back. Its components had come loose as though it was melting, spilling up the back of Fields' coat. It dragged her back into the office. Polly hefted the typewriter from the desk and brought it down on the spider body like a club. It sank into the components, sucked down through the circular mass, and dropped harmlessly onto the floor underneath. She hadn't hit it hard enough, she thought. She barely distracted it. It was strange how natural the next thing seemed. She grabbed the mug from Professor Christoffel's desk and punched it into the robot's body with all her might. The mug shattered, protecting her knuckles. Her fist flew right through the robot, as though it suddenly weighed less than a ball of feathers. Obviously, the next step was to force her other hand into the gap she'd created and tear. The robot's pieces boiled around her grip, furious, but she struck the heel of her boot into the bits and ripped the spider clean in half. Bits of metal and plastic, red and silver, white and black, rained down in all directions. Discs, pipes, rectangles. They wormed and rolled on the office floor. 
as if it was all happening too suddenly for them to understand, too quickly for them to pull themselves back together. Polly grabbed one flailing spider leg and hoisted half of the robot into the air. She grabbed it with both hands and swung it around, letting go at the last moment so that it flew through the open window. It exploded on the empty road below. Bits and pieces flying in all directions. The doctor and Ben had watched all of this through the broken hallway window, their jaws dangling. Polly! shouted Ben. He and the doctor had spotted the robot and had been following it, but they hadn't expected to see this. What had happened and how had Polly done what she'd done? Polly turned back to what was left of the robot. The distraction had allowed the remaining half to gather as many of its components as it could into a roughly round shape. It rolled awkwardly out of the room, wobbling like a raw egg. She aimed a kick at it, but it jerked out of her way and out of the door. Ben must have tried to follow it because the doctor called, No! Let it go! The floor was covered with abandoned bits of robot, none of them bigger than a finger, all of them quivering from side to side. Grinning, Polly stepped through them to Fields, who was sitting on the floor. She lifted the scientist to her feet with a single easy motion. I want an explanation, Fields stammered. I want an explanation. Polly wasn't even out of breath. She didn't have an explanation, but she knew she felt capable of doing anything. Do you want to see me lift this desk over my head? She laughed. I bet I could punch a hole right through these bricks. She pulled back her fist. The doctor caught it in both hands. You'll hurt yourself, my dear, he said. Look, you've already hurt your hands. See? He was right. One hand was covered with cuts and abrasions. The other one had escaped with only a couple of cherry-red bruises. It's over now, Paul, Ben said. You won the fight. You won it all right. He made the mistake of putting a hand on her shoulder. The next moment he found himself stumbling backwards as Polly shoved him with terrific force. He landed awkwardly against Christoffel's chair. Ouch! You don't understand, Polly said, still grinning. I don't want to stop. The doctor crouched down on the carpet, examining the left-behind bits of robot. He spotted the broken vial with its blue goo. Ah, of course. It's a mnemonic gel, he said, carefully cleaning it up with his handkerchief. A sort of quick teaching aid for emergencies. This one instantly trains you to fight, whether you're ready or not. He stood beside Polly, careful not to touch her. Polly, you must listen to me. The gel is affecting the areas of your brain that deal with making decisions. It wants you to fight without thinking about it too much. Do you understand? Polly screwed up her face. I think so, she said. It means, if I make a decision, maybe it's not really me making it. The doctor said, The gel doesn't care about keeping you safe. It would happily make you fight <clears throat> until your body couldn't take it any more. Or someone else's body, said Ben, ruefully rubbing his back. Polly said in a small voice, Did I hurt you? Not really, said Ben. Not as much as you may have hurt yourself, said the doctor. Once it wears off, I'm sure you're going to want a hot bath and some liniment, at least. Wears off, 
said Polly. Her hands were beginning to hurt, her shoulders as well, and other muscles in her back and stomach. She thought to look at her nails. Oh, yuck! They were going to need professional attention. The way you feel right now, said the doctor firmly, will only last a little longer. Then you'll be back to your normal self. Ben said, Where did Scapanelli get something like that? The doctor said, From the 21st century, I should say. That robot, too. Very useful to have a helper which can take on whatever shape you need. You're not joking, are you? gasped Dr. Fields. Ben said, Let's get out of here, Doctor, before someone comes to find out what all the noise is about. The doctor said he and Ben had things they must do, and asked Fields to make sure Polly got back to her flat safely. Polly wasn't ready to rest. She felt as though she'd drunk a dozen coffees. They ended up walking around the dark streets, past brightly lit restaurants, the neon signs of nightclubs. They didn't say much, but Fields kept muttering under her breath. At last, Polly was beginning to feel tired, in her eyes and right down to her bones, as though she'd gone out dancing all night. Dr. Fields, she said, I think you'd better call me Anne. All right, Anne. Let's sit down for a moment and eat something. I'm starving. The crowded cafe was a cool, sensible place with crisp white formica tabletops and counter. They plopped down gratefully with a ham and cheese sandwich each. Fields were still shaking. Polly had thought she was afraid, in shock, but it turned out that the scientist was furious. The whole time I was struggling with those figures, going over it again and again, Christoffel knew it was a black hole. He knew I was right. He did everything he could to stop me from announcing my discovery, up to and including murdering us. She smacked her palm against the table, making the sugar jump. Why? Why is he doing this? Polly swallowed a huge bite of her sandwich. I mean, I mean, it can't just be that he wants to take the credit, can it? Not if there are people from the 21st century involved. Polly, said Fields, deadpan, you say that like you believe it. Polly was too weary to think up a convincing lie, especially in the face of everything Fields had seen. Well, if you must know, I'm a time traveller myself. Fields only stared at her, so she went on. I'm not from the 21st century, though. Just 1966, Polly stopped. I suppose to a physicist it's impossible. Fields said, well... General relativity does permit time travel in certain circumstances. Also, a robot just tried to kill me. It's the doctor, said Polly. She stirred four sugars into her tea. Ben and I stumbled into, well, I suppose you could call it his time machine, like the film. But the TARDIS doesn't just stay in one place. It can go anywhere in the universe. Field sat back leaning against the wall, looking off into the distance. All right, all right, let's say I accept what you're telling me. It isn't some sort of war, is it? A fight over history? No, nothing like that. The doctor isn't working for anyone. He's just terribly curious and clever. 
He'll get to the bottom of what's happening. Will he? He always does. Field said, The things you must have seen, Polly. The future. Does the human race get out of this mess? Or do we blow ourselves to smithereens? Polly gave a quick nod. She wasn't sure how much of the future she should give away, at least without asking the doctor first. But she saw a kind of deep strain go out of Fields' body. And you must know so many things, said Fields with longing. Are there planets around other stars? Polly nodded. Oh, yes. How did the solar system form? Was it from matter from the sun? What about moons? Are they created when planets break up? Is Pluto really a giant comet? Polly put her hands up. Stop, stop, Dr. Fields. I don't know the answers to those questions. You'll have to ask the doctor. And do you have a flying car? Polly realised Fields was teasing. She laughed. Doctor, why don't you make your findings public? Don't wait for permission. Announce your discovery now. Then there'd be no reason to get rid of you. Because I'd be laughed at, said Field sourly. Or ignored. Scientists have only just started to take the idea of black holes seriously. What if you just shared them with other scientists? You could ask them to point their radio telescopes and X-ray telescopes at the black hole. Field stirred her coffee, thinking. At last, she said, In for a penny, in for a pound. I can teleprint the coordinates to the few astronomers I know. No, I can teleprint it to anyone who might listen. What have I got to lose? Polly, I'll need your help. They keep the teletype machine locked up so we don't run up colossal bills. I know where the key is, said Polly, grinning. Don't think I'm a pig, but I want another sandwich. I think that after the fight your body is trying to refuel itself. Fields got up before Polly could. Don't smash up the furniture while I'm gone, she joked. Polly smiled to herself. She thought, I couldn't smash this table even if I wanted to. And why would I want to? The cafe was crowded with people enjoying the mild summer night. The chatter and the warm smell of coffee made Polly feel almost at home. It was all so ordinary. She only wished she didn't feel two years out of date. She was getting better at fashion, music, fads, current events, but there was always something that tripped her up. There were so many people that Polly couldn't spot Dr Fields amidst the throng at the counter. Frowning, she stood up. She couldn't see her anywhere. Polly squeezed through the crowd to the ladies' room, but Fields wasn't there. She squeezed her way back to the table, which was empty. And then out of the door of the cafe, back onto the pavement. But it was hopeless. There were crowds walking around, cars and taxis going past every second. Polly walked up and down for a while. Then she went back to the cafe, just in case. But Fields had vanished into thin air. Polly imagined an awful scenario. What if a man with a gun, maybe two men had slipped through the crowd to stand beside Dr Fields, pressing the barrel into her side, murmuring in her ear, and then whisking her out to a waiting car, unnoticed by Polly or anyone else. Or perhaps Fields had just decided to run away from it all. Who could blame her? Polly hugged herself. All she wanted to do now was lie down and sleep. Would it be safe for her to go back to her flat? 
I suppose, she thought, that if they wanted to kidnap me as well, they could have done it at the cafe, just in case she'd take a taxi. London didn't look so ordinary and safe now. It was like she was back in that crazy version of London, not knowing which way to turn. Meanwhile, Ben was driving Professor Scapanelli back to Alden White House, the Chicxulu HQ, after the club's successful stargazing party. Normally, he ferried his passengers in respectful silence, but this time he felt he had to say something. He cleared his throat. Professor, thanks for saving my friends. If you hadn't spotted that robot, I don't want to think what would have happened. All in a day's work, Scapinelli said modestly, as though that sort of thing happened all the time. He decided to risk a few more words. You really took that robot in your stride, like a... It wasn't the first time you'd seen it. I thought maybe it was something to do with the Chicxulub Club. I mean, all those scientists. If it had been some other member of the club, that would have been enough to get him fired. But Scapinelli's mind seemed to be elsewhere. Instead of answering, she murmured, You must have wondered where the club got its name. Oh, well, yeah, I have, actually. He hadn't, but now she was talking to him, he didn't want her to stop. Scapinelli was watching the headlights of cars going in the other direction, up to London. It was though she was talking to herself. The whole solar system was made by rocks banging into one another, joining together to make bigger rocks. A lot of this space garbage was cleaned up when it was incorporated into asteroids, moons and planets, the biggest rocks of all. But there's still an awful lot out there, and it still bangs into things from time to time. Rocks from space, thought Ben. Do you mean like a shooting star, Professor? That's a little rock, said Scapanelli. There are much bigger rocks. They made the craters of Luna and Titania. Luna must be the moon, he thought. But Titania... Oh, that's a no-account little moon on the fringes of the solar system, she said. Bashed in the face loads of times by meteorites. He glanced at the rear-view mirror, but her face was hidden in shadow. Every planet takes its share of punches. But there aren't any craters on the Earth. Oh, there are. They're just difficult to see. Chicxulub Crater is one of those. It's in Mexico, wherever that is. There are debates over exactly what hit, of course, a giant asteroid or something more unusual. But whatever it was, it killed three-quarters of all the life on Earth. She was grinning. He could see her teeth. We're the descendants of what survived. Us and the birds and the flowers. She tugged off her glove. See this, she said. This ring looks like silver, but it's made of iridium. Not the rarest metal on earth, but ever so close. Guess why? She wiggled her fingers. She wasn't being smug. She wanted him to work it out. He thought hard, gloved hands gripping the steering wheel. Suddenly it hit him. Does it come from outer space? He flinched. That was probably a ridiculous answer. But Scapanelli said, You've hit the nail right on the head. 
There's plenty of iridium in meteorites, so the club members all wear one of these to remind us of Chicxulub. This planet, this wet, messy planet, it's so fragile. He waited for her to explain why the club was named after the crater and what all this had to do with the robot, but she'd lapsed back into silence, her head resting against the window. It's like she's from outer space, he thought. The doctor had been rummaging through boxes and baskets for half an hour. In some ways, it was a disadvantage that the TARDIS was so roomy. It made it terribly easy to lose things. He wasn't even sure if what he was looking for was here. He wished Ben and Polly were here with him, or even some of the students from the college. He had no one at all to show off to. It always helped him to think, explaining things to someone but he had given each of his companions their own mission this time, their own jobs to do. He needed data, and he had thrown his net out wide as possible. Aha! Inside a biscuit tin in a hat box at the bottom of a steamer trunk. Obvious place. The treasure he was seeking looked like a metal pencil case, coppery pink in colour. He grinned to see his name scratched into it with the tip of a compass. The doctor took the copper case to the console room and sat down, tailor-fashion, on the floor. He opened the box. It took both thumbnails to do it. After such a long time, it was stuck shut. Inside was a little green pyramid that looked like it was made of some semi-precious stone, highly polished. He picked it up, turned it round in his hands, and threw it into the air. It stopped at the top of the throw, hovering there, spinning slowly. A deep green light began to issue from inside the stone. The doctor smiled. It still worked. This would make things a lot simpler. All at once a great number of lights shot out of the stone, taking up positions in the air around it. They began to move in slow ellipses around the pyramid. The stone itself swelled into a bright yellow globe. There was a miniature earth, like a blue and white marble, a little arrow flashing over it to say that this was his current location. The rest of the solar system's planets were spread out across the console room. Even he sometimes forgot how much space there was in space-time. Everything was so far apart. Like an atom, the solar system was mostly empty, with occasional interesting bits. These speckles were the asteroids. Here was a striped ball for Jupiter, and then, twice as far from the Sun, Saturn and its pretty rings. At this scale, there wasn't enough room in the console room for little Pluto, or the rarefied rubble field of the Kuiper Belt, let alone the icy Oort cloud right at the solar system's edge. They'd be somewhere inside the wall. Haumea and Makimaki, the dwarf planets, were in the ceiling. The doctor touched the sun pyramid and twiddled the controls of the holographic orrery until the solar system shrank a bit. Who had made the time corridor and why? The obvious possibility was an alien invasion using the corridor to reach Earth. 
The doctor thought its creators would swiftly show themselves, but he had been waiting for weeks on end. What had happened to the invasion? Where were the aliens? The doctor suspected that someone had come through the time corridor. Not an alien army, but an individual, perhaps a small group. Powerful civilizations might tinker with time corridors, but they generally didn't make much use of them. The tunnels through space-time were very rough and ready, tending to fracture, twist and collapse. You could come out billions of years in the past, or inside the outer layers of a star, or be trapped inside the corridor for eternity. Given the risks, they were generally saved for emergencies only. So what was the emergency that had made this one necessary? Was someone escaping, and if so, what were they escaping from? Whoever they were, he and his companions had been looking for them for weeks. Their investigation had used a simple method, see who else investigates. Scientists suddenly talking about strange physics, emergency funding for peculiar projects, rumours and envious mutterings. Above all, what he wanted to know was, where was the time corridor's exit? When they escaped that mad patchwork London, he hoped the TARDIS would follow the time corridor all the way to its outlet, somewhere in the real London. But the closer they came to it, the further the TARDIS diverged from the corridor's path. If he had tried to force the TARDIS to follow it, they could have ended up anywhere at all. Better to land as close to the exit as possible and then work it out from there. The exit ought to be leaking all sorts of temporal radiation, time-reversed neutrinos and antichronons and other bits and bobs. Finding it should have been simple, but the TARDIS couldn't detect anything. His various scanners couldn't see a thing. It was as though the exit just wasn't there. He searched his pockets until he found a crumpled bit of paper covered in pencil marks. His notes from Fields' data. It took half an hour to translate them into a format the orrery could understand. The planets arced backwards and forwards in their orbits as he wound them back and forth in time. There, the entrance to the time corridor was in the future, somewhere in the late 21st century, or perhaps the early 22nd. The orrery displayed a blurry line, which showed the time corridor's approximate path through space-time. The doctor stood up using a finger to trace the line, stretching from Earth, 1968, all the way out to the edge of the solar system, somewhere amongst the rubble of the Kuiper Belt. Now, that was interesting, thought the Doctor. This changed everything. The time corridor didn't come from some distant alien world or time, but from practically next door. Could this be the work of humans, after all? perhaps a result of some irresponsible experiment by misguided scientists? Surely it was far, far too early for the human race to have technology like that. The doctor looked closer, zooming in a little. The tip of the fuzzy line covered many thousands of square kilometres. There was no way to tell exactly which of the Kuiper Belt's rocks, large and small, the corridor originated from. The orrery was, after all, just a child's toy, but what he could see right away was that those rocks had been disturbed in their orbits, slowed down, sped up, sent wandering off apparently at random. There was no longer any question of it. 
the travelling black hole was following the path of the time corridor. When the black hole reached the planets, when it reached Earth, when would it reach Earth? The orrery showed him. The doctor grabbed the pyramid and switched it all off. When Polly opened the door of her flat, someone was inside. She was almost too exhausted to be frightened, but it was only the doctor sitting at her table. The plastic cylinder of the overhead light threw a circle of soft white onto the tabletop. Polly saw a handful of robot parts there, red, white, black and silver, discs, struts and boomerang shapes. Next to them was a gizmo with bits of wire hanging out of it. The doctor had a pocket knife and was sharpening both ends of a pencil, which Polly thought was odd. The flat smelled of solder and ageing carpet. Hello, Polly, said the doctor absently. I'm sorry to pop in unannounced. Doctor, I think someone has taken Anne. I mean, Dr. Field's away, she told him. What happened? We were in a coffee bar and she just vanished. Polly pulled up the other chair and sat down. Maybe she just got overwhelmed and decided to drop out of sight for a bit. But I don't think so, Doctor. What should we do? The Doctor tapped his chin with his pencil. I'm sorry, Polly. I'm afraid Dr. Fields will have to wait. It's imperative to find the time corridor. Polly popped her chin on her hand and looked at the Doctor's odd little machine. Whatever is it? A muonic activator. I met some of Dr. Field's students in the library, and they gave me a hand with it. The doctor grinned. In exchange for a little help with their homework. He took one of the loose wires and attached it to the tip of the pencil, then attached a second wire to the other end. He grinned at Polly and said, Hold on to your hat. He pressed a button. A bulb on the little machine lit red. Doctor, what's happening? gasped Polly. The bits of robot were lifting up off the table, starting to move one way and another. After a moment, they arranged themselves into a sort of rough outline of a face, an ovalish outline with two lozenges for eyes and struts forming a wide diamond-shaped mouth. Polly found the crude face horribly sinister. It spoke. I am the astronautic assistant apparatus model, Uchin. Version 08-2505. Its voice was a deep metallic grate that made Polly's hair stand on end. My name is Chen. My serial number is... Stop, said the doctor firmly. What's the date of your manufacture? 8 April 2064. Manual begins. Congratulations on your purchase of the Guchin Astronautic Assistant. Designed for work with and without atmosphere including Earth-standard oxygenated air, hydrocarbons and orgonitrogen compounds to a pressure of... Stop, said the doctor again. And who is your owner, Trim? Outer System Company Development Subdivision. After each question, there was a long pause, as though the robo-face was thinking. The doctor murmured to Polly, This is a very small, separate artificial mind. To answer my questions, it has to communicate with the rest of the robot. Is that dangerous? said Polly. I mean, does it go both ways? Can someone hear us? The doctor exclaimed, Oh, my great-aunt's garters! I hadn't thought of that. Better hurry it up. 
he tried a different tack. Trim, where did you land on Earth? The face's pieces twitched, making Polly shudder. It said, I don't have a way to articulate that information. Well, was it far from here? I don't know where you are. There must be a place, said the doctor, grinding his teeth a little, to which Professor Scapanelli has returned many times, perhaps taking you with her. Where is that? The London College of Natural Sciences. Not there. Another place? Alden White House. Another place? The face seemed to convulse, its eyes swimming back and forth, its mouth flattening and twitching up and down. Polly pushed her chair back, repelled. Suddenly the face pulled itself back together again, its empty eyes staring at them. Oh, no, you don't, it said. There was a deep whining sound, which quickly became a high squeal. The red light on the doctor's device flashed frantically, and a moment later, it fell apart in a puff of muons. The pieces that made up the face rained down onto the table. The flat suddenly smelled like burning wiring. Polly wrinkled her nose, wondering how she would explain the scorch mark on the table to her landlady. Oh well, sighed the doctor. It was a long shot after all. He scooped up the robot pieces and dropped them back into his pocket, then gingerly picked up his broken gizmo. It's going to take ages to put this back together, he grumbled. Polly, have you got another pencil? But Polly had made the mistake of lying down on the bed just for a moment and now she was sound asleep. Time to break the silence, thought Ben. Never thought I'd get a chance to drive something like this. The limousine was a black Daimler, with a silvery line of chrome curving over its side to the stern, and eight headlights like the eyes of a spider. It rolled along so smoothly it felt like the wheels weren't even touching the road. So being stuck in 1968, two years too late, wasn't all bad, and he was enjoying playing the spy at the club. He even had a bunk there and plenty of nosh, although he wished he had a better idea of what the doctor was after. If he kept it up for too long, he was sure to be found out. The doctor didn't seem to have the slightest interest in the luxury car. He'd been turning the little pieces of the robot around and around, examining them through one of those eye-things jewellers use. Ben tried again. Polly will be all right, won't she? She's lucky she only absorbed a little of the gel, said the doctor. Enough to put pay to that robot, but not so much that she dislocated a joint or tore a muscle. She'll be fine as long as she gives her body a chance to rest. Scapanelli could have just put a label on the stuff said Ben angrily. Fight, Jelly. Apply sparingly. Scapanelli is in a very awkward position, said the doctor thoughtfully. She's trying to influence events here and now, but without letting on that she's a time traveller. Although, on the other hand, she might be in someone's power. Christoffel? Or someone else from the Chicxulub Club? Is she using them, or are they using her? Either way, said Ben. She wasn't counting on other time travellers turning up. Do you think she knows about the TARDIS? I doubt that very much, said the Doctor. On the other hand, the human race doesn't invent time travel during the next century. So how did she create that time corridor? Could she be an alien? 
Possibly. Or maybe an accident. Or an experiment. Maybe somebody pushed the wrong button, said Ben. Yes, yes, <clears throat> very possible, said the doctor, sounding like he wanted to change the subject. It's all got something to do with Dr. Fields, Planet X, and the reason Professor Christoffel is trying to keep it a secret. Will you be there this evening? Think so, said Ben. They turned into Primrose Lane, a narrow country road. The trees met overhead, blocking out the stars. Scapanelli will be there, of course. She's always there. She's got a room as well as her lab. Brabant, the volcanologist, and probably his wife. He tugged at the collar of his chauffeur's uniform. Villaccio, he's an expert on computers. Not Bassi, though. He's gone back to Italy for a bit. He's something to do with viruses, I think. The gate to Alden White House was unlit but Ben had been back and forth so many times between here and London that he could have probably have found it in pitch blackness. His electronic key opened the gate. They watched the metalwork roll slowly to one side behind high stone walls. Next came a long drive between hundred-year-old oaks before you reached the great house itself. A long, pale building two storeys high, bookended by three-storey towers with pointy tops, which made it look a bit like a castle. It was surrounded by huge lawns and ponds and beautiful trees. Ben eased the Daimler along the gravel driveway until he came to the arched main door. Be careful, Doctor, said Ben. Don't forget, some of those bodyguards are armed. The doctor could talk his way out of anything, he thought. Anything short of a bullet. The doctor just grinned and hopped out of the car. Ben watched him walk to the bright lights at the front door. Good luck, he thought, and pulled away. Ben had taken his job at the club on the doctor's suggestion... Staying out of London suited him just fine. He was technically two years AWOL, and if any of his Navy mates spotted him, he would have some extremely difficult explaining to do. Since then, he had been keeping an eye and an ear out for anything and everything, the doctor had told him. Things and people who seem like they might be from the future, anything which they particularly want to keep secret. So far, Ben had only found out the basics. Half of the members of the club were filthy rich, and the rest were distinguished scientists, astronomers, geologists, climatologists, several experts on computing machines. There were several laboratories in Alden White and an IBM System 360 computer for the club members' use. Ben spent most of his time driving the members back and forth from London, or sometimes delivering packages. There were other men who worked for the club too, most of them older than Ben, taller, beefier. In his first week, Ben would catch Mr Sage and Mr Tanning looking at him, smirking to one another. Sage looked like an oblong with a bald head on top, stuffed into a grey suit worn out at the elbows. Tanning always had a sunburn somehow, but his black suit was tailored and his shoes always shone. One evening, out of the blue, Ben had been walking from the limo to the house when Sage and Tanning came at him out of the dusk. 
He'd had to fight his way out of it, bare-handed. Both men were heavyweights, but Ben was quick on his feet and better trained. A jab to Mr. Sage's liver and a heel to Mr. Tanning's knee, and they were all friends again. After that, he started being asked to accompany club members to odd little meetings in restaurants. One evening, a museum opened up for Dr. Bassey for an after-hours tour. Mr. Tanning had insisted Ben carry a Browning. Ben had felt uneasy, knowing what the doctor thought about shooters, but he took it to avoid suspicion. Ben had followed the banker, feeling like a faithful dog. A pack of other men, equally ill at ease with their suits, shadowed their own masters. When he got back to the house, Tanning handed him an envelope. Inside was fifty pounds. It was only then that Ben realised he had been Bassie's bodyguard for the evening. He caught snatches of conversations, mostly beyond his ken, mentions of glaciation, insulation, gamma-ray bursts, solar max, the biotic crisis. In the back of his limo, two computer experts once had a furious argument about whether Wotan would be salvaged. Ben nearly drove off the road. The club was a highly organised think tank, well-stocked with expertise, well-equipped, well-funded. The question remained, what the heck were they actually doing? Ben drove slowly round the back of the house, to the stable that had been converted into a parking garage for the club members' cars. They didn't always want a chauffeur. The place looked like a showroom full of Bentleys and Rolls Royces. The electric blue Porsche 911 was Scapanelli's. The moment he turned off the engine, he was plunged into the silence of the countryside, just the relentless song of the crickets. Maybe it should have sounded peaceful, but it always made Ben think of how lonely the place was, how far he was from London and anybody he knew. There was a kitchen at the back of the house which the servants were allowed to use while waiting for their employers. Sage and Tanning could be relied on to be there, drinking endless cups of builder's tea if they hadn't been dispatched on some dubious errand. Tonight they were in their shirt sleeves, their ties pulled loose, playing a bored game of cards. Ben said, any chance of some scran? Mrs Berry's been run off her feet tonight, said Sage. He always tried to sound posh, but his rough accent always peeked through. Doing horse doovers for the quality. If you want anything, you'll have to cook it yourself. Ben made himself some bacon and eggs, more for something to do than because he was hungry. How was the doctor getting along? Had he already been locked up somewhere? Was he waiting for Ben to rescue him? Mrs Berry suddenly appeared at the kitchen door. Plump, red-faced and white-aproned, she made Ben think of the Queen of Hearts. Someone's going to take these refreshments up, she said. She made a face at Sage and Tanning. Mr Jackson, you're most presentable. You do it. Do you know where the main ballroom is? Yes, Mrs Berry. Ben abandoned his bacon and eggs, plonked his cap back on his head and took the tray in both hands. Which drink is whose? Just go from one person to the next and hold the tray out until it's empty. Good! 
don't worry, Mrs. Berry. No need for dinner tonight, Mrs. Berry. Oh, by the way, we'll just need finger food for twenty people at the last possible moment, Mrs. Berry. She disappeared, still grumbling. Over the weeks, Ben had already searched most of the rooms on the ground floor. There were staff quarters, storerooms, rooms full of furniture draped in sheets. All the interesting stuff, the labs and offices, must be upstairs on the first floor. He'd never managed to work out how to get up there without getting spotted. From the back of the house to the front of the house, up the big stairs, past the huge painting of the Romans getting buried in rose petals, and Ben was finally in the main ballroom. It was a vast space, brilliantly lit by half a dozen electric chandeliers. The tall, arched windows were covered by green gold curtains. A long table was adorned by Mrs. Berry's hors d'oeuvres. Some very good quality speakers were playing classical music. The Brabants were dancing slowly at one end of the room, deep in conversation as they waltzed. Professor Christoffel was here, of course. He was striking with silver hair and black eyebrows, a jutting chin and a pointy triangle of a nose. Ben had quickly learned that he was the club's top dog. The other club members stood around in little knots, nibbling and chatting. Was that the doctor? The glasses clattered alarmingly on his tray, but Ben managed not to drop it. Well, of course it was the doctor. He had worked his usual magic and was standing with Scapinelli and two of the club's guests for the evening. A pair of executive types who were in the process of being dazzled by science. Say, said one of the businessmen with an American twang, that'll make a great movie. He wore a prim blue suit while his pal sported a psychedelic paisley shirt. Search for the black hole, the other businessman said, spreading out his hands as if framing the scene. He had a crisp, posh English accent. A British-American co-production. It'll be quite a trip, Scapinelli said. She wore loose silk pyjamas, vivid red and violet, and held a glass of Mrs. Berry's notorious lemonade. Cygnus X-1 is 6,000 light-years away. Oh, I'm sure there are one or two black holes closer to the Earth than that, said the Doctor with a meaning smile. Scapinelli, looking slightly rattled, took a sip of her lemonade. Well, theoretically, since they're the remains of dead stars, the galaxy should be full of them. In fact, there should be at least one within thirty light-years of us, the doctor said. Even closer, I should say. The doctor had been pretending he hadn't noticed Ben, but he slipped a wink under the radar as he took a tall glass from the tray. After 2001, everybody's looking for the next big space epic, Blue Suit was saying. Well, gentlemen, said the doctor, if you're going to make a movie out of it, you'd better make it quickly. They all laughed. Scapinelli watched them while the doctor watched her. Ben had the feeling that the doctor and the professor were sharing a joke or a secret, something they both knew that no one else here did. There was something creepy about it, these two creatures having a laugh at all the ordinary earthlings. Like him. Or was the doctor teasing her, trying to make her slip up? I mean, of course, the American went on. You got the whole audience on the edge of their seats, hoping someone's going to fall in. Of course, the bad guys go down the tubes. But then the good guys follow him in. He looked expectantly at the scientists, 
Okay. So what's in there? The doctor and Scapanelli glanced at one another. She said, Well, anything that crosses the black hole's event horizon will be destroyed, including a rocket ship, if not by gravitational tides, and certainly when it reaches the center. Sure, but it must be quite a ride, right? Do you remember that bit from Dr. Strangelove? said Paisley. With the Slim Pickens character? Blue Sue chuckled. Do you think the audience will go along with that? All the good guys dying? I guess we'll think of something. Ben's tray was empty now. He tucked it under his arm. Just for a moment he wondered if he should bow or go out backwards or something. But no one was paying him any attention. He slipped out of the ballroom and into the darkened hallway. The doctor had given him a little lockpick that seemed to do most of the work by itself. Downstairs, it had opened door after door for him with barely an audible click. He had been hoping for incriminating wonders, maybe a partly disassembled UFO, that sort of thing, but the ground-floor rooms had turned out to be empty, or just disused bedrooms where everything was covered in drop-cloths. A broom cupboard? A WC? Behind the third door he opened was a big room that smelled of chemicals and electricity. He unclipped his torch from his belt and grinned as the beam picked out benches and glassware. Jackpot! He'd found the laboratory. Ben reached into his jacket pocket and took out the miniature camera that the doctor had given him. He'd been dying to have a go with it. It was a flat black box the size of a chocolate bar. But what should he photograph? What here was important? Never mind, he thought. Shoot it all. Let the doctor figure it out. One cupboard, big bottles of chemicals. Another cupboard, a futuristic-looking device made of sky-blue plastic, shaped like a box attached to a bulb. Another one. That instant, the light snapped on, and Ben knew that he was rumbled. I love this song, said Professor Scapanelli. Quite suddenly the doctor realised he was dancing with her. There was a dangerous moment when he nearly fell over his own feet, but then he got the hang of it. He smiled, bemused. She murmured, People were starting to wonder just who exactly invited you. Now they'll all think it was me. Isn't that frantic? Very thoughtful of you, he said especially considering your pet robot almost put an end to two friends of mine. I take it the machine is held together by a simple muonic field, but runs on fully distributed intelligence? Scapanelli chewed over her answer. At length she said, The club has been very good to me, Doctor. They've provided everything I need to do my work. My vital work. It must be very frustrating when you're used to something a little more advanced, said the doctor, as they shuffled past Mr. and Mrs. Brabant. Which reminds me, I have a question for you. Is the number 7,919 prime? Yes, she said at once. Why on earth do you ask? People in 1968 can't generally work something like that out in their heads on the spot, said the doctor. Scapanelli pretended to look amazed. And then there's the little matter of you poisoning poor Polly. Doctor, she said. 
I think you have mispronounced saving Polly's life. What if she had drunk the whole vial, said the doctor, instead of just absorbing a little of it through her skin? You're supposed to ingest the whole thing, otherwise the effects can be unpredictable. Didn't she read the label? She was a little busy at the time. What puzzles me is why you'd give her the means to destroy, well, almost destroy, your own robot. It makes me think that you don't approve of everything the club does. Scapinelli didn't answer. How did you get here, Doctor? Someone gave me a lift. She laughed. Before that, I followed the corridor, he said. He could see he was only confirming what she already guessed. You made quite a mess, didn't you? Not me, she insisted. Not my fault. Professor Scapinelli, he murmured. We are both scientists. The price of our experiments is that we must take complete responsibility for the results. I can put things right again, she said. I've been trying desperately to find a way. You don't have to continue with the club. Come with me and we'll work on the problem together. She stopped dancing suddenly and let go of the doctor. A sunburned, thick-necked man was there, muttering something in her ear. Scapinelli frowned. If you'll excuse me, doctor... She leaned forward to say softly in his ear, I'm about to do you another good turn. So near, thought the doctor, and yet so far. Sage stepped into the laboratory. Stand extremely still, he said. He dropped his posh accent, which meant he was very serious. Sage was holding the browning lightly, as though he was just showing it, as though they were all still friends. Sage stepped forward and plucked the mini-camera out of Ben's hands. Ben said, I... Sage pushed a fat finger against Ben's lips. Save the cover story. There was a moment when Ben could have tried to snatch the gun out of Sage's fingers, or at least knock it out of his hand and make a run for it. But that was when he saw the robot... The thing was in the shape of a huge dog now, or a wolf. Its bulky body glistened in the lab's hard light, red, black and silver pieces lined up to suggest muscles and teeth. Ben froze. Sage turned to look at the wolf robot casually, as though he'd seen it plenty of times. For a moment Ben thought his number was up, but Sage said, Sit! And the robot obediently sat on its haunches like a dog. It was nearly funny. Tanning came into the lab with Professor Scapinelli. Next came a rough search for weapons. When Ben struggled, Tanning gave him a hearty shove that knocked his cap off. Finally, Ben was left leaning against a bench. Scapinelli regarded Ben with her chin in her hand, black eyes twinkling, her face blossomed into that alarming smile, as though there was some awful joke being told, and he was the punchline. Mr. Tanning, she said, would you kindly ask the other members if they'd join us? If you say so, Professor, said Tanning, heading out of the lab. Scapinelli picked up Ben's cap and pressed it into his hands. Sage took a worried step forward but she'd already backed up a safe distance. Ben fiddled with his cap, as though he was nervous. What had Scapinelli slipped into it? Another vial? 
Maybe he could fight his way out. But it wasn't glass he could feel, but something round and firm, a smooth surface marked with small hard bumps. Wait a minute. Was this a tea cake? For heaven's sake! Was she making fun of him? He glanced at the scientist, who was trying to use a long stick to pull a blackboard down from the ceiling. Mr. Sage, she said, could you oblige? Sage took his eyes off Ben. No chance to run. The robot saw to that. Only one thing for it, then. Quick as a flash, Ben pushed the cake into his mouth and chewed frantically. It was dry. He nearly choked on it. Sage turned back, eyeing him with a mixture of disdain and concern. Ben swallowed hard. Scapanelli chalked a series of equations on the blackboard. It could have been in ancient Greek for all it meant to him. Meanwhile, Tanning ushered in the rest of the members. They jostled each other in the small space, annoyed at this interruption, but also ghoulishly curious to see what was going to happen to the spy. Ben hoped the doctor would be there, but none of the club's guests had been invited. No sign of the filmmaker either. He tried thumping his fist against the bench. Ouch! He didn't feel any different. What if he had obediently swallowed not a magic potion like Asterix, but a truth serum? Or just poison? The club members were muttering dissatisfied. Come along, Professor Scapanelli, called Professor Christoffel with a chuckle. Scapanelli put a gloved finger to her lips, then stepped over to the bench. She held out the long piece of chalk to Ben. He looked at her in panic, then at the blackboard in panic, then at their disgruntled audience in panic, then back to the blackboard. Oh, he thought, is that all she wants? He strolled over to the board and swiftly chalked out a mathematical description of the inner horizon of the regularity of a rotating black hole. He ran out of blackboard and paused. Everyone was staring at him. He hoped he hadn't made some sort of stupid mistake. Christoffel said, For goodness sake! Go on, boy! Ladies and gentlemen, said Scapanelli in a sparkling voice, Our first thought on discovering that this naughty young man had slipped into my laboratory was that he was a spy, with intentions inimical of the club. He turns out to be the equivalent of the overawed fan who breaks into a rock star's garden. A nuisance, certainly, a danger, possibly. An ally, perhaps. Ben had started on another blackboard. So that's what was in the cake he thought. Physics! He couldn't stop chalking, even when he spoke. Well, he could have stopped. He just didn't want to. Better bolster Scapanelli's story. I'm sorry, Professor. I'm sorry, everyone, he said, glancing at them over his shoulder. I just let my enthusiasm run away with me. Mrs. Brabant said, Professor, are you saying you want to hire this young man? A talented assistant would be of great help to me. You know you could have any computer money can buy. Scapanelli said, Computers in this... Well, no computer can replace the human mind. Not yet. Self-flattery, grumbled Velaccio, but everyone shushed him. I want to pin down the time of arrival as accurately as possible, which means 
such a lot of ugly calculations. A time of arrival of what? said Ben. Well, let me set you another problem, said Scapanelli, erasing one of the boards. Imagine a massive body travelling in a straight line through this solar system. A straight line, said Ben, puzzled. Do you mean a highly elongated ellipse? No, dead straight. Let's assume the body is propelled by an arbitrary powerful force, she insisted. She sketched a diagram of the solar system with the planets in their current positions. A little circle indicated the object she was interested in. We know the body will cross the Earth's orbit. What we want to know is precisely when that will happen. If he's not obeying the laws of physics, said Ben, then how can we make any kind of prediction? It's perturbing the planet's orbits, even if they don't seem to be perturbing it in return, said Scapanelli. So that gives you some data to be going on with? We're going to need an ad hoc set of equations, said Ben. The words came out of his mouth as though he had been a physicist forever. The understanding was swelling in his head like a wave, and it was fun. It was fun figuring out how to solve these problems. Scapanelli was saying, I think we can solve it in good old general relativity. Isn't that an old-fashioned way of getting at it, though? Differential geometry is so clumsy. Ben dotted the tip of the chalk against the board, thinking, What if you... He quickly chalked the spiderweb shape of a CML5 orthoplex matrix, outlining the curvature of space-time in four real and one imaginary dimensions. Why don't we just... Scapanelli put her hand over his, taking it gently away from the blackboard. That's for the advanced class, she said, giving the watching members a wink. One or two of them laughed politely. <laughs> ben stood baffled and rather disappointed as she addressed the club. There's no need for you all to stand around all night witnessing this shameless discipline of mathematics. <laughs> the club members started to shuffle out, relieved. But Christoffel didn't budge. I'd like to judge the young man's ability for myself, he said. Ben had already swivelled back to the board to finish his seamel matrix. What's this notation he's using, Professor? Something new of yours? As he chalked, Ben grinned, feeling like the universe was rushing through his head. He saw things no one in 1968 had seen. He saw the cosmic microwave background, the fingerprint of the Big Bang. He saw dark energy in the Higgs boson. He saw supermassive black holes, Sagittarius A, and its starry necklace, the glowering red portrait of M87, the infinite schism which had gulped down a huge galaxy and shone brighter than almost anything in the universe. Ben jumped suddenly back from the blackboard as if he had an electric shock. The stick of chalk flew out of his hand. No, he said. No, no! Scapanelli said in a low voice, You had to find out. Better sooner than later. That isn't some schoolboy exercise, said Ben, pointing madly at the blackboard. He felt like he'd been kicked in the stomach. Whatever that thing is, that's heading towards Earth. It's going to smash into the planet, destroy it. Scapanelli scooped up the fallen chalk. Show us exactly what will happen, she commanded. Ben began to puzzle out the maths, but the awful thing he'd just learned seemed to have knocked most of his newfound knowledge out of his head. He went round and around the circle that Scapanelli had drawn, 
to represent the massive body that he stabbed the circle with his chalk. This has to be the black hole! Christoffel burst out laughing. Oh, no, no, Professor, not this again! Scapinelli groaned. Black holes are an unavoidable outcome of Einstein's equations. Black holes are nonsense produced by stretching Einstein until he snaps, said Christoffel. How long have physicists been talking about them, as though they were as real as the sun? And there's still not one scintilla of observational evidence, he drained his drink. Even if they did exist, Dr. Fields' little discovery is too small to be one. Ben said, I'm sorry, sir, but it could have um, an intermediate mass. It's, what's the word? A primordial black hole, Scapinelli added smoothly. But Christoffel was frowning, eyeing Ben with an unfriendly expression, like someone who suspected he'd been tricked. He touched the head of the robot, which shifted slightly, its components rippling. For the first time, Ben noticed the iridium ring in Christoffel's hand. Scapinelli went on quickly. Never mind its pedigree. What will happen when it reaches us? Ben squeezed his eyes shut, rummaging in his suddenly empty head for the answer. Everything was fading as quickly as it had come, but Scapinelli said, You don't need the numbers to describe it, do you? No, he answered. The picture was clear in his mind. The tidal forces will rip the earth into shreds. Ben prayed the test was over, but Christoffel had one more question. When will this happen? Ben took a deep breath and murmured, Tuesday afternoon? Christoffel looked at Scapinelli appalled. Scapinelli burst into loud laughter. <laughs> oh, well, she said, putting her hands on Ben's shoulders. None of us has all the answers. Ben flushed. The maths had completely flown out of his head, like a flock of noisy pigeons scattered by a stone. His own handwriting on the blackboard might as well have been in Babylonian, but he was sure he hadn't forgotten the results of his calculations. He opened his mouth, only to see Professor Scapinelli making the strangest face at him. It took a moment to realise she was silently pleading with him to shut up. Uh, um, he said, you better go back over the last derivation with me, Professor. When is the black hole going to be on our doorsteps? Not for about a hundred years, chirped Scapinelli. So you see, there's really no reason to worry. For any of us to worry, she put an arm around his shoulders. But Christoffel and the robot were still between them and the door. The man folded his arms across his chest and asked Ben, Tell me something, son. How much older is your head than your feet? What was he talking about? Ben rubbed the back of his neck and tried to smile. Haven't we had enough maths for one night, sir? Christoffel's stare was unblinking. Go on, he said. That's an easy one. Ben's head spun. Scapinelli took a step away from him. Was that an apology half written on her face? Christoffel went down on one knee, his fingertips atop the man-spider wolf crouched at his feet. Some of its shining components rotated in place, as if responding to the man's touch. It was as though all those bits and pieces were held together by a force field, not by nuts and bolts. He swallowed. Was it grinning at him? Son, said Christoffel. 
I don't know what I've just seen, but I do know this. Better safe than sorry. Nothing personal. Robot, destroy! Ben tensed, expecting the robot to spring at him like an attacking dog. Instead, it puffed into a cloud of components. A red-silver-black whirl that turned into a jet that flew up, ricocheted from the ceiling and showered down onto him. Ben batted at the pieces as they tornadoed around him. They were surprisingly heavy, bruising his gloved hands. He threw up his arms, trying to protect his face, but bits of robot lodged on his neck, in his hair. One jabbed into his mouth. He stumbled, helpless, and at the top of his lungs he yelled, Doctor! Suddenly the pieces contracted, so that they covered him from tip to toe like a tight shell. He couldn't see. He couldn't pull the bits away from his eyes. It's going to crush me, he thought desperately, or suffocate me, or electrocute me. Which one? Episode 3 He couldn't see. He couldn't pull the bits away from his eyes. It's going to crush me, he thought desperately. Or suffocate me, or electrocute me. Which one? But then the pieces began to fall away. Just a few at first, losing their grip on his arms or his back and tumbling down. Then a shower of shapes hitting the laboratory floor and scattering all around him. Ben could see again. Christopher was gaping. Scapinelli's black eyes were sparkling with amazement, and in the door of the lab, the doctor was holding some kind of gizmo with a pencil stuck in it. The doctor looked at Ben and shouted, Run! They legged it. Ben took the lead, and the doctor raced behind him. Down the hallway, down the stairs, past the shock filmmakers in the entrance hall, out into the night air. If they could just make it to the stable. But when they got there, Mr. Tanning was perched on the bonnet of the Daimler. The doctor and Ben skidded to a halt. Tanning smiled at them and pulled the browning out of his jacket pocket. Evening, gents. Thought it might be an idea to wait for you here, just in case. The doctor said quickly, In my left pocket I have ten thousand pounds. Ben's mouth hung open a little. The doctor was always full of surprises. Perhaps you'd like to see for yourself. Tanning looked amused. Perhaps I would, he said. He gestured with the gun. Take it easy now. Obediently, the doctor reached carefully into his pocket and took something out that wasn't money, thought Ben. That was the thing that had killed the robot. Before Tanning could react, the doctor thumbed the button. The browning fell apart in Tanning's hand. While the heavy was staring down at the bits of his gun, Ben jumped in and landed a punch on his jaw that sent Tanning flying back onto the bonnet, rolling off quite unconscious. 
they leapt into the limo. Ben reversed out of the stable and tore down the driveway, sending gravel flying. In a few moments, they were at the gate. It opened automatically, but teeth grindingly slowly. They swivelled back and forth in their seats, watching the gate, then watching for the inevitable pursuit. Can they get that robot going again? said Ben tightly. Yes, said the doctor. Unfortunately, I, I don't know how long it will take them. Ben imagined the malevolent, shapeless thing loping out of the darkness at them. He gripped the gear stick, ready to throw the Daimler into reverse. Maybe if he backed over the robot, he could stop it. But the doctor said, Ben, go! The gate was open just enough to squeeze through. Ben floored it, almost losing his wing mirror on the way. The Daimler raced along Primrose Lane. With the trees bending together overhead, it was like shooting through a tube. Ben said tensely, I reckon once we made it back to the main road, we're clear. Oh dear, someone's following us, murmured the doctor. Oh no! Ben glanced at the rear view mirror, headlights coming up behind them fast. He pushed the pedal down, but the other car caught up so quickly that he could see it clearly in the taillights. Scapanelli's blue Porsche 911 with Mr. Sage at the wheel. Did he have a gun, or would he use the professor's car as his weapon? Sage answered the question. The Porsche roared and smacked into the back of the Daimler. It happened again, and then again, making Ben's teeth rattle in his head. He had to work to keep the limo under control. Doctor, he said, can you use that gubbins of yours to make his engine fall apart or something? But if I switch it on now, it'll make this car fall to bits as well. Ben shifted down into fourth. The limo pulled away, its back end sliding sideways. He slammed it back into fifth and got the wheel straight again. The Porsche quickly closed again. There was no way the Daimler could outrun it. While they were in this tunnel of trees, Ben hoped there wasn't much Sage could do. As soon as they reached the main road, though, there'd be room for him to get alongside, run them off the road, or get in front of them and force them to stop. The Porsche smashed into them once more with so much force, Ben was afraid the car would be shaken to pieces. Got any ideas, Doctor? said Ben desperately. Look, said the Doctor. The Porsche was slowing down, and it was glowing, thought Ben, easing on the brakes. Glowing and slowing. He thought, I'm seeing things. That can't be real. Oh, come on, Ben, old chum. After all this time in the TARDIS, you know better than that. It's all real. The Porsche's sleek curves were radiating a shocking pink light. No, it was a neon green. Both at once. He couldn't think of any words to describe it. Maybe it was the opposite of a colour. An anti-colour. The Daimler had rolled to a stop. The doctor saw Ben staring into the rearview mirror as if hypnotised, his hand drooping on the gear shift. He quickly put the limo into park and pulled on the handbrake. Then he shook Ben by the shoulder. Don't look at it! What? Just close your eyes, there's a good chap. Ben shut his eyes and leaned back in the driver's seat. The doctor reached over and switched off the engine. He patted Ben on the shoulder. Then he hopped out of the Daimler and walked back up the road to the stricken Porsche. Its impossible hue reflected in his eyes. 
What it looked like was a reflection of the Porsche in water that someone was stirring with a spoon. Except this was a real, physical object being randomly squeezed and swirled. It was absolutely silent, like a television picture with the sound switched off. The doctor felt around in his jacket until he found a tuning fork. He had pocketed it by mistake while chatting with Clara Schumann backstage in Leipzig sometime in the 19th century. He struck it once on the heel of his hand, listening to the pure sound humming out of the metal. A perfect A above middle C. Everything waves. Light waves its way through the electromagnetic air. Gravity sends out ripples. Quantum fields wave deep in the atom. And sound waves power through the air. All these things were different, but they had their wavy structure in common. You could say, thought the doctor, that the whole world is made of waves. He came close to the rolling car and struck the tuning fork once again. The whirlpool motion didn't stop, but the crazy colours began to fade, thinning out until he could see the human being trapped inside. Mr. Sage's head and body and hands were all swirling around with the matter of the car. The doctor wasn't sure, but he thought he saw Sage's eyes staring out at him, glowing white in all that colour. Was the man aware of what was happening? The doctor took a step back. The anti-colours swelled back to their former strength, hiding Sage. He heard another car coming along the road and dashed behind a tree. Then he saw it was Professor Scapanelli driving a borrowed Bentley. She parked behind the Porsche and got out. She was wearing a pair of round black sunglasses, even in the dark. He met her in the middle of the road. For a moment, they both just watched the light show. Oh dear, said Scapanelli. I think bits of it are leaking into the higher dimensions. That would explain the pretty colours, agreed the doctor. Mr. Sage probably thought all those extra switches on the dash were for machine guns or something. Is your Mr. Jackson all right? He's having a well-earned nap. What exactly happened? Scapanelli adjusted her sunglasses. Her smile was positively alarming, thought the doctor. Did she know she was doing that? She said... Think of it as the equivalent of suddenly changing from fourth down to first. The car's topology hasn't changed, only its metric structure. Once the power system exhausts itself, car and man will both be fine. The doctor said, What are you doing here, Professor? Pursuing my Porsche. You know what I mean. Why are you here in 1968 amongst people who wouldn't know what a hidden dimension was if they found it in a packet of cornflakes? They've got as far as bosonic string theory, so they're not completely... She caught herself. How can I stop that black hole? She said helplessly, turning back to the gaudy display. Fifth force parlor tricks like this won't cut it. I can run a car without petrol, but the 20th century could never, never generate the energy I'd need to even scratch the surface of the... Time corridor? Said the doctor. That's not the right name for it, said Scapanelli hesitantly. It's more of a coarse puncture through space-time. It's not even a proper Einstein-Rosen bridge, she said, then caught herself once more. 
Jerry Scapanelli, you are a clown. He could see she desperately wanted to discuss it with someone who could understand the science, but she didn't dare. You're right, I shouldn't be here, she said, hugging herself. But then, you shouldn't be here either, should you? This is not our place. She took off her glasses for a moment and tilted her head back, admiring the Milky Way, the silver moon, almost full. I'll never see the rings again, she said, her face full of moonlight. We used to fly a rocket down to the rings, get into orbit with them. It was the perfect place to watch the summer storms. Professor, said the doctor gently, you know you're going to have to tell me everything. She pushed the dark glasses back onto her face. More of them will be coming from the house. I'll stall them. You'd better go. Go now. I'll tell it all to you later. I'll tell you tomorrow. The next morning, the doctor rented a motorcycle and drove himself to the Surrey countryside. The morning was warm and lovely. The green of the fields punctuated by the bright primary colours of cornflowers, dandelions and poppies. The doctor often thought to himself what a beautiful planet the Earth was, but today he barely noticed. He was thinking too hard. It should only have taken a day or two to track down the time corridor's exit. All time travel technology leaks, even if only a little, leaving a telltale trace of exotic energy. Even the TARDIS could be spotted if you had the right equipment, but he hadn't been able to detect anything at all. He had poked into every corner of the college, been over square mile after square mile of London, and turned up nothing. Was it possible that the time corridor wasn't leaking? The level of technology it would take, well, it would have to be hair-raisingly advanced. He had thought he could take his time, Last night he'd seen enough of Ben's calculations to realise the problem was far more urgent than he'd realised. He shivered and it wasn't the cool air whipping past. Professor Christoffel had a beautiful cottage in the countryside. Three storeys of red brick walls under a grey slate roof, surrounded by trees. From the splashing and cracking, the doctor deduced that there was a duck pond in the yard. That was where he found the professor, taking a break from gardening. He was sitting on a little stone bench, throwing bread to the ducks. "'Peas will be better,' said the doctor. Christoffel startled, dropping his loaf of stale bread onto the grass. The doctor reached down quickly and picked it up. "'Bread is bad for ducks,' he explained. The silver-haired scientist squinted at him for a moment, then said urbanely, "'Please, doctor.' Have a seat. There was a watering can and a trowel sitting on another stone bench. The doctor carefully put them on the ground and sat down. <clears throat> I need your help, confessed the doctor. Or perhaps the help of the club. In the doctor's experience, when you confronted people with secrets, their usual response was to attack you. If Christoffel's like that, thought the doctor, I'm quite likely to end up in the duck pond. But Christoffel produced an urbane smile. What can I do for you, Doctor? I must speak to Professor Scapanelli at once, said the Doctor. She's not in her office at the university. 
No one seems to know where she is. You didn't know? The good professor has vanished, said Christoffel. She was due to give a formal talk last night, but she left us all waiting like a lot of idiots in front of the slide projector. I assume it was something to do with you and your young friend. The doctor shook his head. Well, she is a law unto herself. Did this mean Scapanelli had fled, or was she perhaps a prisoner in Alden White House? This charming villain was his only hope of finding her. He had to convince Christoffel that their interests coincided. But where to begin? The doctor looked around at the pretty domestic scene. He said, You know all this is going to be destroyed, don't you? When Dr. Fields's black hole arrives, said Christoffel, smiling, You know, her planet X can't be a black hole. It's too titchy. It would have to be five solar masses at minimum. How sure are you about that? said the doctor. Well, some of the club's members do have a theory that it's an alien weapon. Some batch of bug-eyed monsters having decided to destroy us before we destroy them? Christoffel eyed the doctor. Personally, I think black holes are a will-of-the-wisp, but I know the mathematics perfectly well. If you know some way to make one other than the gravitational collapse of a massive star, please tell me. That's worth a Nobel Prize. It doesn't make any difference whether it's a black hole or not, said the doctor patiently. A planet that massive would destroy the Earth just as efficiently. For that matter, a lemon drop that massive could do the trick. But this is what the Chicxulub Club is all about, said Christoffel eagerly. We identify extinction-level threats to the human race. Aha! <clears throat> Hence the name, said the doctor. Exactly. We research the threats posed by killer asteroids, solar flares, global pandemics. We have our own first-rate telescopes around the world, coordinated by computer. And we have committees on major changes to Earth's climate. And what you do about these threats when you've discovered them? Christoffel smiled broadly. We stop anyone else from finding out about them. The doctor felt as though cogs were going to fly out of his head. What was the man talking about? Do you mean you want to prevent panic while you look for a solution? We certainly want to prevent panic. We want milk in the shops, music on the radio, and servants at our sides until the last moment. The doctor said slowly, Ah, oh, you don't want to save the world? You just want things to go on as they are for as long as possible? Christoffel nodded. What do you think people would do if they found out the ice caps were going to melt, that London would be flooded, or the glaciers were going to start marching down from the north? They'd panic. Demonstrations, the lot. The world economy would be ruined long before the actual disaster arrived. We work to keep certain information out of the news. You didn't think of that when you sent your pet robot after us in broad daylight. Robot, Doctor? said Christoffel, all innocent. Surely what you saw was only a large dog. This is alarmism, hysteria, some sort of hoax. <laughs>
when we can't keep things a secret, we make sure there's plenty of confusion and doubt. He doesn't mind at all if the world ends, the doctor thought dizzily, just as long as he's not there to see it. He took a deep breath and told himself arguing about the club's strategy now would be a waste of scarce time. Are you quite sure you don't know Professor Scapinelli's whereabouts? I can tell you she seldom leaves Alden White House, unless it's to visit the college. She simply works all the time. But there must be somewhere else she goes. Christoffel smiled, admitting, I did send Mr. Sage and Mr. Tanning to follow her more than once, but she was always able to flummox them. The third time, Mr. Sage woke up in St. James's Park with flamingos going through his pockets for crumbs, and no idea how he got there. Since then, he's refused to go after her. Speaking of Mr. Sage, no one quite understands what happened to him last night. He raised a dark eyebrow at the doctor, who put on a politely interested expression. But he left the club's employment this morning. <laughs> anyway, the upshot is that we really have no idea of Scapinelli's movements. I can't help you, doctor. Darling, said Mrs. Christoffel. Her brunette hair was pushed back by a hound's tooth band that matched her dress. She kissed her husband on the cheek. You didn't tell me you were going to have a guest. Felicity, said Christoffel smoothly. This is the doctor. She offered her hand. Doctor, she said, but neither of the men answered. To break the awkward moment, she said, Well, would either of you like a drink? <clears throat> no, thank you, said the doctor, who had begun to gnaw on the stale bread. You could bring us a bowl of peas, darling, said Christoffel. Mrs. Christoffel's confusion was punctured by the sound of a baby crying. Oh, dear, she said. "'Someone's woken up early from her nap. Excuse me.' She went back to the house, looking rather relieved. "'Does she know?' asked the doctor quietly. "'Of course she does,' said Christoffel. "'I don't make any decisions without her. "'And yet you have a child?' Two, actually. The other one's away at school.' The doctor said, "'Why, when you know that Armageddon is only decades away?' He shrugged. Look at humanity's progress over the last century. There'll be plenty of time to develop the technology to escape Earth. But tell me, what could the club possibly do about that black hole? What could anyone do? Christoffel spread his hands. Few people realise how fragile it all is. We're surrounded by cosmic horrors which could destroy us at any time. Assuming, of course, that we don't succeed in destroying ourselves. He leaned forward, speaking conspiratorially. Even if we could protect ourselves from those threats, the capricious Earth itself could destroy us all. We've been running some fantastic simulations in Alden White. The natural global variations in temperature and moisture can fall into a mathematical trap, locking the entire planet under a layer of ice and snow, potentially forever. He sat back. You credit us with too much ability, Doctor, with too much power. The Doctor had listened patiently for these excuses for doing nothing. He suspected that each new recruit to the club got to hear some variation of this speech. Now he said with emphasis, 
It doesn't have to happen. I mean to stop it. Good for you. The black hole is following the path of a time corridor, the doctor went on. A stable structure in space-time that connects two points. A wormhole? said Christoffel, interested. Not exactly, but a cousin of it. I can switch off that corridor, but first I must find its exit point. Switch it off? Who are you, doctor? said Christoffel. You and Scapinelli both seem to have sprung fully formed from nowhere. Where do you think she came from? She mentioned Titania, he said. Somewhere in Italy, I think. Turned up at the college with a lot of wild ideas, and that robot of hers. Incredible invention. We attached her to our outer space think tank. What if I told you Professor Scapanelli was a stranded time traveller who is using your facilities for her own ends? Christoffel glanced at the empty summer sky. I don't know if flying saucers are real, he said dryly. But if anyone ever came out of a flying saucer, she did. The doctor leaned forward. There must be a place, he said, fairly close to the centre of London, which is important to Scapanelli, but which she keeps a secret even from you. Christoffel scratched his chin. I wonder if it might be something we overlooked. A receipt or something that might give us a clue. It's worth chasing up. Might take a few days, though. The doctor looked the physicist in the eyes and said, What if I told you that the Earth is due to be destroyed, not in a century's time, but tomorrow? Christoffel thought for a moment, then spread his hands. Then I'd keep doing exactly what I'm doing, he said. Bit of gardening, play with the baby, have dinner and a glass of wine with Felicity. However much time we've got, you should enjoy it to the full. The doctor was beginning to suspect that he might as well try to bargain with a scorpion. That impression was confirmed when Christoffel asked, What is it you really want? Money? The doctor chuckled. <laughs> Haven't any need for the stuff. He stood up. Professor Christoffel, he said, I simply don't have the time for this. Christoffel said, Well, that's a great shame, Doctor. I've enjoyed our chat, and I think you'd have made a valuable member of the club. He held out his hand. As the Doctor took his hand, Christoffel raised his head and nodded. The Doctor looked over his shoulder. Mrs. Christoffel was in the open window of the nursery, aiming a rifle at him. He spun round and lobbed the loaf of stale bread at her head. The gun spoke in her startled hand, but the bullet only hit the garden shed. It took only a few seconds for husband and wife to gather their wits, but by that time the doctor had already vanished into the trees. He skidded down the bank and jumped onto the motorcycle. The doctor sped down the road, then turned sharply into a lane squeezed between hedgerows. His black frock cloak flapped in the wind. A few moments later, he saw the low white shape of Christoffel's Jaguar in his rear vision mirror. He sped up, relying on his superior Time Lord reflexes to avoid a crash. He was racing for the future of the planet Earth. Best not make a hash of it. Another tight turn this time into a narrow road flanked by farms. Their greenery and fences shot past out of the corner of his eye. The lane began to curb this way and that, blocking his view of the road ahead. 
If a sheep had wandered into the road ahead, thought the doctor, he was going to be in trouble. Now that would be quite a demonstration of physics. This was the second time he'd had to flee for his life from this wretched club, thought the doctor ruefully. Still, who was it that said in a disaster, presence of mind isn't as good as absence of body? The doctor prided himself on his ability to thwart his enemies by doing a bunk. Perhaps others were proud of standing their ground and doing battle against a deadly weapon, or the menacing creature, or whatever it was. Well, good for them. He would stick to scarpering before his foes could do him harm. If nothing else, it thoroughly annoyed them. There, he could see a steeple through the trees, a little distant ahead. Witnesses would make it difficult for the Christoffels to press the attack. But the sports car was still gaining on him. There was an open farm gate. He made a split-second decision and steered through it, sending up a spray of dust and gravel from the rough path inside. He turned onto the grass, climbing up a small hill towards the copse at the top. It was a juddering ride, but he reached the trees before the Christoffels, stopped at the gate, could take another shot at him. He bumped down the hill into the outskirts of a small town, scattering rabbits, hoping he didn't put his front tyre in one of their holes. In the distance, he saw the snaking brown form of a train. Was it a London train? Was there a station in the town? With a mental apology, he left the motorbike in the farmer's field and vaulted the fence, pelting down the laneway towards the railway track. Yes, there was the station. The train had just pulled in. He was jogging through the car park when the white Jaguar pulled into it right behind him. Bother, thought the doctor. Oh no, the train was already pulling out. He put on a last burst of speed, managed to grab a door handle and hauled himself inside. He caught a glimpse of the Christoffel standing on the platform, vexed. Never mind which way the train was going, thought the doctor, slumping against a wall. All aboard! Polly had made her mind up about fields. The scientists had shocked her awake with a phone call at 5am that morning. Polly had still been in her street clothes, though her boots were off and a blanket had been pulled over her. She scrabbled on the floor for the shiny green telephone. I'm fine, Fields told her. I mean, I'm still a bit shaken up, but I'm OK. But what happened? I can't talk now, Polly. Could you come into the office, ASAP? Polly climbed out of bed and yawned in the shower. Poor Fields had been through so much, she thought, as she rubbed balm into her sore shoulders. She didn't fully understand what had happened in Christoffel's office when she had fought the robot. It was exactly like a dream. It all made sense at the time. She had been so certain, but that feeling had faded so quickly that she was only left with impressions. Perhaps that was for the best. What would she have got if she really had tried to punch a hole through the wall? A broken hand, that's what. And what if she'd gone completely do alley and turned on her friends? Polly shivered. She put away the balm and got dressed, pulling on practical jeans and sandals and a ruffled blouse. She was keen to find out what had happened to Dr Fields last night.
but also Dr. Fields deserved some kind of explanation and a chance to talk about the things she'd seen, things she couldn't tell anyone else. Polly might even tell her about the TARDIS, about her travels through time and space. Maybe she could ask the Doctor if Dr. Fields could join them for an adventure or two. That would be super. She wouldn't mind a chance to collar that Professor Scapanelli and ask her exactly what had been in that vial either. A bowl of cereal and a pot of proper tea. Ben was right about the food machine, and Polly was ready for the day. It was still quite early, and she had the streets almost to herself. She walked for a little while, enjoying the summer morning. Bright flowers had escaped from gardens and set up shop in the cracks in the pavements. If you got into the TARDIS, she thought idly, how far back in time would you have to go before there was no London? She must have learned the exact date the city was founded in school, but she'd forgotten. More than 2,000 years ago, though. How far forward would you have to go? Forever, she felt sure. London would always be there. At the college, Polly strolled through the crowds of students. She couldn't help picking out the rare girl amongst the throng. She admired the young woman's fortitude. She wouldn't have wanted to try and study entirely surrounded by boys. Fields' office was a city of cardboard boxes. Dr Fields, said Polly, astonished. Oh no, Professor Christoffel hasn't fired you, has he? I resigned this morning, said Fields, stuffing papers into a box. What happened to you last night? I thought you'd been kidnapped. Did they threaten you? The opposite. Next week, I'll be the head of the physics department at, well, an excellent university in America. They were suddenly strangers, thought Polly. I suppose I can't blame you for leaving. Between Professor Christoffel's blocking your work and that robot... It was Christoffel who got me the new position, said Fields, dropping a pile of notebooks into the box. Polly looked at her in surprise. You and I both know that if I had applied for the job myself, it would have been the same old story. Why would Christoffel help you like this? He's done everything he can to stop you from publishing your research. Now I understand why, said Fields. I thought it was because girls are supposed to be girlfriends for serious scientists, not their colleagues, and definitely not their rivals. She slammed a sheath of calculations into the waste paper basket. But not this time. This time it was because I've seen the future. The future? said Polly. Oh, yes, said Fields a little wildly. There's going to be a future, all right. About another hundred years. That's when my black hole is going to reach Earth. You and I will both be dead and buried by then, so eat, drink and be merry. But let me give you some advice, Polly. Don't have any children. She violently sticker-taped the box closed. I have bad news for you, Dr. Fields said the voice at the door. Polly turned. It was the doctor standing next to a rather sleepy-looking Ben. The doctor went on. There are certain factors you didn't know about when you did your calculations. The black hole's velocity isn't limited by the speed of light. In fact, its acceleration is exponential. By now it will already have crossed the orbit of Jupiter. The time corridor, gasped Polly. Is that the path you mean, doctor? He nodded. The black hole is sliding along it like a bead on a string. It will arrive here a little after sunset tomorrow. There was a moment of silent horror in the room. Then Fields said, Oh, 
Come off it. Dr. Fields, you've got to believe him, said Polly. He knows more than, well, more than every astronomer in the world put together. Ben said, you don't have the rest of your life to enjoy the club's wealth. You've got about a day and a half. Fields was shaking her head. We know so little about black holes, she said. We can't be sure of your calculations. She pointed at the doctor. Assuming they're correct. Assuming, assuming you're not just making the whole thing up. The doctor said gently, It's different to care about millions of people dying a long time in the future, but it's very different when it's you, and it's now. What's your point? said Fields, agitated. What do you want? Something all my calculations can't tell me, said the doctor. I need to know where the exit of the time corridor is. Scapanelli has kept it a careful secret. Are you trying to say you can do something? said Fields. You can stop the black hole reaching Earth. I can try. I don't believe you, she said. I don't believe that the black hole is going to suddenly leap across the solar system into our laps. I don't believe that you've travelled through time. Even if I did believe you, well, I barely know Professor Scapanelli. I don't know what you want to know. Polly said, yesterday we were talking about refusing to let the roadblock stop us. Yesterday I wanted my name to be remembered in the future, said Fields, and it turns out there isn't going to be one. Among the big boxes was a small box, tied shut with a bit of string. Fields picked it up and held it out to Polly. This is for you, love. I will miss you. Thank you, said Polly in a small voice. I had something I wanted to give you, too. I suppose it doesn't matter now. Early the next morning, the scientists and hobbyists who had telescopes trained on the planet Mars watched it die. Gravity, the architect of the universe, reaching out across empty space to organise the solar system. The mutual pull of planet on planet shepherds them into the orderly rings they trace around the sun. The black hole was like a landmine in a game of croquet. Saturn and Neptune were safely on the other side of the sun, out of the black hole's way. Mighty Uranus, the ice giant, only shuddered in its orbit as it passed by. But the black hole came closer to the gigantic Jupiter, the linchpin of the solar system, whose mammoth mass affects all the planets, even the sun. Its gravity drew Jupiter irresistibly out of position. The solar system's biggest world was now let loose. It rolled like a marble towards the nearby dwarf world, Ceres, queen of the asteroid belt. The hot light of the glancing collision would be visible from one end of the solar system to the other. Over time, Jupiter's wayward mass would drag the other planets into new orbits, wrench comets off their paths, send the asteroid belt scattering like a bowl full of dropped pebbles. But by then, there would be no one left to see it. If the solar system had been luckier, Jupiter might have swallowed the black hole. It could have become trapped in the gas giant's belly, unable to climb back out of the planet's gravity well. At the very least, Jupiter should have pulled the black hole off course, sparing Mars and Earth for now. But the black hole was locked to the path of the time corridor, stabbing from its origin somewhere in the Kuiper Belt to its destination in London. The black hole massed about 15 times the mass of the Earth. It was 20 centimetres across. You could hold it in your hands. 
this is not recommended. The black hole and the time corridor were both impossible to see. The corridor struck through unseen planes, above and around space-time, and of course the black hole itself was so tiny that you'd never be able to find it with a telescope. But it was clear to Earth's astronomers that Mars was being pulled to pieces by a tremendous force. Some of them guessed what it was. The astronomers called all their friends and colleagues, and by morning there was no newspaper or news programme which wasn't dominated by the destruction of the closest planet to Earth. Within hours there were photographs and film, melting chunks of Mars being dragged into a glowing ring that spun and spun around some invisible centre. Tiny Phobos and Deimos, Mars's fly-speck moons, were quickly pulled into the burning roundabout, Sounding rockets with X-ray detectors soared above the atmosphere and brought back pictures. The ring glowed violently in the X-ray part of the spectrum. Now the astronomers were sure. No one on Earth knew that Mars had once been home to the mighty civilization of the Ice Warriors. Their homeland was now gone, along with every trace of them on it. In fact, like Earth... Mars had borne the evidence of many visits from outside the solar system. All that history was erased, literally overnight. There was still life, clinging to existence on the cold, dry surface of Mars, when the black hole arrived. It died quickly. Impassive, the black hole continued its implacable drive towards the Earth. The Doctor observed all of this with the help of his orrery. He had to resist the urge to reach into the hologram and try to drag things back to where they belonged. Early in the morning of this extraordinary day, the Doctor, Ben and Polly sat in the most ordinary of places, a cheap and cheerful London café. Salmon walls, salmon chairs, a gleaming espresso machine hissing like a locomotive engine. The doctor had insisted Ben and Polly eat something, but neither of them wanted much of their breakfasts, their eyes glued to the constant coverage on the cafe's television set. James Burke's explanations were a gentle murmur underneath the sound of cutlery and conversation. There was only one topic of conversation. Everyone at every table was talking about Mars. Some were curious or excited. Others spoke in tense and frightened whispers. Stock markets all over the world had taken sharp tumbles. The Chicxulub Club would not be best pleased, thought the doctor. He had been up all night searching London on foot, with an armful of particle scanners from the TARDIS, hoping to find something, anything, he had overlooked. Ben realised Polly was quietly weeping. He put his hand on top of hers. She said... Why didn't it just swallow Mars in one go? Like, like a wine gum? For a moment, the answer bobbed in Ben's mind. It's smaller than Mars, he said. A lot smaller. It's only about ten inches across. Polly was shocked. How can something so destructive be so tiny? I mean, I suppose an atom bomb isn't all that big, and it can destroy an entire city. But ten inches? How can that be possible? Ben tried to squeeze the explanation out of his brain, but it was gone. He thought about the incredible things that happened in dreams, especially if you woke up early in the morning and then dropped off again. 
things you thought you could never forget, and then they vanished like sparks leaving a fire. It was like that with the physics Scapanelli had pushed into his head. What a crazy idea to save his life when the whole world was going to be gobbled up like a bit of toast. On television, James Burke was explaining tidal forces, how near the black hole gravity increased so sharply that one half of Mars was being pulled on enormously more powerfully than the other half, ripping the whole planet apart. The presenter interviewing Burke leaned forward. I think I have to ask the question that's on everyone's mind. Could it happen here? The aproned woman behind the coffee machine got up on the counter, reached up and switched the television off. Mars is a long way away, she said firmly. And what has Mars got to do with running a coffee bar? I ask you. There was an uncertain murmur of agreement from her customers. Holly blew her nose. We know that the Earth doesn't get swallowed up by a black hole in 1968, she insisted quietly. We've been to the future, haven't we, Doctor? He made a non-committal noise. If push comes to shove, thought Ben, could we get in the TARDIS? He was ashamed to ask. He was about to smash his fist on the table and ask why they were just sitting there when the Doctor suddenly tore the napkin he was scribbling on in half and scrunched the whole thing up. How am I supposed to work this thing out if maths can't help? He exploded, exasperated. His alarmed companion signalled for him to keep it down. I've done so many calculations and none of them are of any use. Only Scapanelli knows where the corridor comes out. Why won't she help us, Doctor? He stirred his cold tea angrily. I think Professor Scapanelli has been working on her own solution to the problem and she thinks it still has a chance. But if that's so... You could help her. Perhaps because all of this is her fault, said the doctor. She can't bring herself to admit it. It's too enormous. It was rare that he felt so stumped. He had one card left up his sleeve, but it was a little extreme. It might be possible to use the dimensional stabiliser to turn this poor old TARDIS inside out and let its inner bulk freely expand through the higher dimensions. It would be disastrous, of course, destroying the TARDIS, and almost certainly him with it. But when the resulting space pressure overlapped the time corridor, it would pop it like a soap bubble. Probably. Without vaporising too much of southeast England. Probably. What a dismal prospect. He would have to come up with some convincing lie to stop his young companions from joining him inside the ship. Polly was staring at the gift Fields had given her. Should I open it, Doctor? she said. I mean, who knows what's in it? Ben said, with our luck, it's probably another black hole. She undid the string and lifted the lid. Inside the box were dozens of pieces of the robot. Oh no, said Ben. Not you again. The pieces lifted out of the box, hovering in the air, turning to orient themselves to one another. People at nearby tables exclaimed at the magic trick. Polly jumped up and ran to the counter where the proprietor was pouring tea into an overflowing cup. She stared at the miniature robot. It's it's a bomb, Polly improvised. Everyone, quick, get out of here. Ben was looking around for something to use as a weapon, even as the mini robot clicked itself together. Now it was a blue egg with a crown of pale greenish antennae. It looked like a toy, thought Ben. 
It swiveled back and forth sharply, as though seeking out a target. Maybe he could hit it with a chair. But the doctor had taken something out of his pocket and put it on the table, pushing his teapot and cup out of the way to give it room. Ben and Polly stared. It was another collection of robot pieces pulling themselves across the tablecloth like metal worms. They formed into a shape. Oh no, thought Polly. It's that face. The face climbed onto the egg. The different components clambered over each other, folding through each other as if fighting over who went where. Then they suddenly clicked into place. Now the egg had a single plastic eye, staring blankly above a round red light. The egg shape swiveled back and forth, eyeing each of them in turn, as if preparing itself to do something awful. Maybe it really is a bomb, thought Polly. But the doctor quickly said, Trim, where is your power generation system? The line grew across the blue shape, separating top from bottom. Now it had a sort of mouth. They saw a glimpse of pink inside. The robot spoke in its screechy, scratchy electronic voice. I'm powered by the muonic motor in the rocket. He's talking to you, said Ben. Well, of course it is, said the doctor. Does a rocket broadcast power to you, or do you have a battery? Manual begins. For maximum flexibility in operations, the target model's power requirements are supplied by a muon array battery, rechargeable by non-local transmission. Stop. Where is your battery right now? The egg sat there for a moment. Polly and Ben held their breath. What was it going to do? Then it grated. 121.8 degrees, 4.6 kilometers. The doctor leapt up. Trim, is that degrees from magnetic north? Correct. The doctor swept up the egg and slipped it into his pocket. If we find the battery, we find the robot. And hopefully Scapanelli and the time corridor. Ben said, I've got the limo parked just around the corner. The doctor said, How long do we have, Trim? By how long? I assume you mean until the black hole arrives, said the robot in a muffled voice. 29 minutes and 8 seconds. The doctor looked at his companions. He said, Run! Turn left here, Ben, said the doctor. Trim, which way now? The mini-robot sat in the doctor's lap, like a toy dog. Zero, twelve degrees, twenty seconds. Next right, the doctor told Ben. No, I, I think second right. Polly wondered, was it possible Dr Fields had been trying to help them by giving her the robot parts? It seemed more likely that getting rid of them was her first mission for the club. If it wasn't for the doctor, she might have succeeded. He was an expert at turning bad into good. None of them had a compass, but the doctor seemed to know instinctively which way was magnetic north. Should only be a few degrees off true north anyway, thought Ben. Enough to navigate through London traffic. Everything seemed so normal out there. People were getting on buses, walking their dogs. It was like the lady in the coffee bar, he supposed. What did outer space have to do with them? Doctor, said Polly... Isn't this near where we left the TARDIS? The doctor realised the deflection had been far less than he thought. They'd been lucky they didn't land right in the time corridor's mouth. That could have made quite a mess of the TARDIS. Ben turned a corner and then slammed on his brakes. 
The road was full of people running and screaming, horns blaring as cars tried to force their way through. The penny had finally dropped. London was panicking. Polly gasped, What is it? What's happening? The doctor jumped out of the limo, shading his eyes as he looked upwards, following the gaze of the terrified crowd. His expression was grim. He said nothing, so Ben and Polly got out as well to see what he was looking at. The moon was falling apart. It was a fat, pale disc in the blue summer sky, hovering just above the buildings. There were great cracks visible in its full face, and pieces which must be bigger than mountain ranges were floating away from it. Polly thought of those American astronauts. They wouldn't be visiting that any time soon. Trying to imagine the black hole, she had visualised a huge black moor, like the mouth of a panther. But Ben had said it was less than a foot wide, hadn't he? It was less than a marauding predator, and more like a virus or a drop of poison, invisible and fatal. She asked, How long have we got, Doctor? The mini-robot said, 17 minutes 40 seconds on my mark. Come on, said the Doctor, getting back into the car. There was a side street that was less packed with panic, though there were people standing on the road, gawping up at the moon. Ben rolled the limo along slowly, thumping the horn, trying to get them out of the way. We might be better off running for it, he said. 928 metres, announced the robot. Polly saw the other car a split second before it crashed into the side of the limo. Just a flash of blue and white and a frightened face. And then the limo was spinning and her arms were flying up as though they weren't part of her body. The back end of the limo swung round and hit the car that had hit them, stopping the limo's spin. It all happened so quickly that none of them even had time to shout. Ben was suddenly at the passenger door. Come on, Paul, quick, get out. She stumbled out onto the road after him. Are you all right? he asked. He'd lost his cap, but otherwise looked unscathed. What about the doctor? she said, dazed. I'll check. A strong wind was blowing and a torn poster slapped against Polly's legs as she picked her way through the wreckage to the mini that had struck them. The limo's boot had smashed in the driver's side, but thank heavens the stocky blonde woman inside wasn't hurt. Help me, she yelled. Help me, please help me. She's all right, thought Polly. She's only panicking. She went round the back of the car and pulled open the undamaged front passenger door. It's all right, she told the woman. You can get out this way. I can't move. I can't get out. Take off your safety belt, said Polly. The woman looked down, undid the belt and scrambled across the seat to Polly, who helped her out of the mini and over to the pavement, hopefully out of the way of any more collisions. Dazed, the woman said, I'm supposed to be home. I have to get home. The babysitter is waiting for me, she cried out. My kids! Polly wanted to say she would call an ambulance or at least a taxi and wait with her until it came. But what would be the point under the fractured moon? I can't stay. I'm so sorry. I can't stay. Ben was busy smashing in the limo's windshield with the tire iron, standing on the bonnet and looking like he'd gone stark raving mad. Polly stared aghast. But a moment later, he was kicking the last of the glass out of its frame and helping the doctor up and out of the crushed passenger side. The doctor brushed himself down gingerly, sending little chunks of safety glass raining down on the bonnet. 
The robot peeked its creepy face up out of his pocket. Thirteen minutes exactly. Not far now, said the doctor, jumping down from the car. Follow me. He took off at surprising speed, weaving through the hysterical crowd. Ben and Polly were hard-pressed to keep up with him, especially Polly, who had lost a sandal at some point. The gale was a constant rushing sound. It whipped Polly's long hair around. It was a ruined shell of a factory. Just the dark brick walls were still standing. The high roof was long gone, and the concrete floor was cracked and sprouting weeds, green on grey. In the centre of the floor was a spaceship. It couldn't be anything else. It was bright white, shaped like an enormous shuttlecock, with a windscreen above a round nose. It stood on elongated feet, like skis. Inside the walls, the roaring of the wind was less deafening. There was nothing to mark the exit of the time corridor, at least nothing that Ben and Polly could see. No shimmering force field, no colours swirling in the air. Doctor, is it here? Where is it? asked Polly. It's still invisible, said the doctor. It's here somewhere, but where? Look! Ben pointed. There was Professor Scapanelli behind the rocket. Her robot was crouching by her in canine form. The doctor jogged towards them. Scapanelli cried out. I've done everything I can think of. I can't make it close. The mini-robot swarmed out of the doctor's pocket, its parts slithering and rolling across the concrete to join up with the man-dog. The doctor paid it no attention. He asked Scapanelli urgently, Does this ship's computer have a record of your journey through the time corridor? Scapanelli said, Yes, but... The doctor was already scrambling up the ladder and into the spaceship. Scapanelli had one hand on the side of her head, as though trying to block out a loud sound. You've got to help the doctor, Polly shouted. I didn't make any of this happen. Scapanelli scrunched both hands in her hair. It wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was Ryatui. It was what? shouted Polly. She saw the robot tense, as though getting ready to attack. But it just didn't seem to matter. Why is the black hole coming here? Scapanelli screamed. I don't know! Mr. Sage appeared as if out of nowhere, a thick shape moving across the cracked concrete towards them with surprising speed. He was holding what looked like a stolen police truncheon. Time seemed to slow down. In the seconds it took Sage to reach them, Ben thought, he must have been in the limo's trunk. We brought him here. And he thought, at least he doesn't have a gun. He leapt on Sage, but the bald man threw him off with crazy strength, sending him bowling across the concrete. In the slow time, he heard Polly screaming, Look out! Look out! Scapanelli just stood there staring at Sage, like someone watching an oncoming train or a falling rock they know must kill them, but they can't do anything to stop. Before anyone could do anything, Sage cracked her across the head with his truncheon. She fell sideways, not trying to stop herself, and hit her head on the concrete. Blue-grey electricity crackled around Scapanelli's head, as though some critical connection had been broken and its power had begun to pour out. Sage gaped, taking a step backwards. Her eyes were wide open. She cried out, Sue! Cardio Sue! I see it! I see the light! Polly crouched down beside her, but there was nothing anyone could do. She cried, Why? 
what was the point? We're all going to die in a minute. Or hadn't you noticed? Sage reeled, waving the truncheon. It was her head that caused this, he yelled. That big brain of hers. She's responsible for all this. Polly didn't answer because that was... That was probably true. Ben had pulled himself up off the ground. He could practically see the cogs turning inside Sage's head. In one second the man would decide that they were responsible as well. Ben hoped he hadn't broken anything because in a moment he'd be fighting Sage for their lives. A circle of concrete near Sage blew up in a puff of dust and flame. He shouted, stumbling back. Another circle exploded, this time right next to his feet. Ben and Polly were astonished. The doctor was sitting in the rocket and firing laser beams, or what have you, like a little green man in a flying saucer. Sage didn't know what was going on exactly, but he got the message. He started jogging across the concrete, back to the entrance of the building. A third explosion right behind him speeded up his exit. "'Doctor!' called Polly. "'Professor Scapanelli is dead!' The doctor was scrambling down the ladder from the rocket. "'There's no time for anything!' he yelped. He paused long enough to check Scapanelli for himself, grimacing. "'I've checked the data in her ship. There's no way to close the exit, no way to shut down the time corridor!' "'You can't mean it, Doctor!' raged Ben. "'You always have an answer. You always have a way out. "'There's one hope. I have the time corridor's exact coordinates now. Come on!' There was no time to say anything more. Ben and Polly found themselves running after the doctor once more, across the cracked and weedy ground beside the factory, around a pile of burned rubbish, through a narrow side street. The gale had tipped over rubbish bins and was pushing them down the road. Polly tried not to think about what would happen when the black hole arrived. Would it be sudden? Would she die between one step and the next? Or would the ground open up beneath their feet, or the air be sucked out of their lungs? Everyone would die with her, everyone she'd ever known. Dr. Fields, Dr. Brett, the lady at the cafe bar, Dodo, cats and dogs and parrots, and Haddock, the flowers growing in the sidewalks. You can't think that big, she told herself. Stay focused. The earth started to tremble. One moment it was just a fizzling feeling under her feet, and the next she was stumbling over the pavement. She and Ben caught each other, fighting to stay upright as the ground waved up and down as if it were made of jelly. A huge crack in the concrete thrust upward suddenly like a sharp-edged miniature hill. They held hands to scramble over it. Then the TARDIS was there in front of them, just where they'd left it weeks ago, with an out-of-order sign hanging on its door. The Doctor threw open the door and she and Ben sprinted the last few yards to safety. The console room was silent except for its ever-present soft hum. Hold on tight, both of you, said the doctor. He danced back and forth from one panel of the console to another. The black hole's gravity is going to make this takeoff difficult. Polly grabbed the edge of the console and cried out. Doctor, we're not just leaving the whole world to die, are we? Ben said. You can't. You can't. There's only one possible way to save the Earth now, said the doctor. The timeline has been changed, so we have to put history right. We have to stop the time corridor from ever being created. How? said Polly. I know where it came from, and that's where we're going. Where's that then? said Ben. 
but before the doctor could answer, the TARDIS tilted and juddered like a small boat hit by a massive wave. Can we get away? cried Polly. The TARDIS engines groaned. The companions felt themselves become heavier and heavier, as though someone was lifting pound after pound of sandbags onto their shoulders. They were forced to their knees, still trying to hang on to the console. Over the roaring of the room, Ben shouted, The black hole! It's going to swallow us! Episode 4 The noise was incredible. Ben pushed his fingers into his ears, but he could still hear it as though his bones were vibrating. The terrible weight on his body had reversed. Now he was rotating in the air and drifting slowly but steadily towards one wall of the console room, a wall that seemed crazily like it was a ceiling. He wanted to grab at the console as he bobbed past, but he didn't dare leave his ears unprotected. Not this again, he thought. Polly was upside down, her long gold hair streaming down. Ben saw that it was waving to one side, as though caught in an underwater current. Her eyes were tightly shut. Had she fainted? No, she was struggling to curl up into a ball. He managed to catch her elbow in his hand. She opened her eyes. They floated up towards the wall together. Below them, the doctor was clinging fiercely to the console with one hand, the other hand flailing as he worked the controls. It had never occurred to Ben before how ramshackled it all looked, like the work of a hobbyist who enjoyed wiring dials and switches and things together. Could the TARDIS really save them? His stomach did a flip-flop. If we're going to die, he thought... Can we please die before I'm violently ill? But the terrible roaring was dying down. He could unplug his ears now, and he and Polly were gently drifting down towards the floor where they belonged. Polly's hands reached the floor first, and she pushed herself up, turning to land more or less elegantly on her feet. Ben landed on his behind, as long as he landed. Ha-ha! There! The TARDIS is in normal flight now, said the doctor. The steady, easy movement of the column was soothing. We've quite escaped the black hole's gravity. There were bits of paper and rubbish scattered around the floor, blown into the TARDIS when they had the door open, supposed Ben. Doctor, said Polly quietly, what happened to the earth? For a moment the doctor didn't answer. Then he said, time is a very complicated thing, Polly. Right now we're following the time corridor back to its origin. "'Doctor,' said Ben, "'I thought you couldn't control where the TARDIS goes.' "'It's the time corridor that's doing the controlling,' explained the Doctor. "'Once the TARDIS dematerialised so close to the corridor, "'we couldn't have gone anywhere else, "'any more than a ball can avoid falling down "'after you throw it up into the air.' 
Ben and Polly looked at one another. They didn't like the sound of this. The mathematics is quite simple, said the doctor. I can show you if you like. I think we'll take your word for it, doctor, said Ben. The doctor went on. Now then, the time corridor's appearance on Earth changed history, and we can't allow that. If we can prevent the time corridor from having been created in the first place, we can put everything back where it ought to be. Does that make sense? Ben and Polly looked at one another. Polly said, Then where is the time corridor leading us, Doctor? About a century into Earth's future, I should say, and still in the solar system, but very far from the Earth, somewhere in the Kuiper Belt. Ben said, What's the Kuiper Belt when it's at home, then? The Doctor explained, It's a ring of rocks and comets that surround this solar system, very far from the Sun. If you imagine a bicycle wheel, the belt is the tyre and the sun and planets are in the hub in the middle. What's there? said Polly. We're about to find out, said the doctor. Hold on to your hats. But the landing was surprisingly smooth. The doctor looked faintly disappointed. Oh, well, here we are, he said. He switched on the scanner, but it only showed a lightless space. Pinpricks of glowing colour like Christmas tree lights peppered the darkness, giving the impression that the area was quite large. Polly realised she was still wearing just one sandal. While she looked for a pair of shoes, the doctor took readings from the outside. Atmosphere, Earth normal. Gravity, Earth normal. Radiation, a little higher than Earth normal. Temperature, a balmy 23 degrees centigrade. The doctor led the way out into the echoing black space, pointing a torch. Its pale beam picked out the furniture nearby, counters or benches perhaps, and a wall quite close to the TARDIS. The air was cool and dry, smelling faintly floral. Where are we? said Polly, wondering why she was whispering. I think we're on a space station, said the doctor. He took out a bubble wand and blew a few bubbles. Oh, yes. It has artificial gravity. What's a space station? said Ben. A space station is like a spaceship, but instead of flying about, it stays in one place, orbiting a moon or a planet. Which planet does this one orbit? said Polly. The doctor said, I expect it orbits the black hole. At a safe distance, of course. Come and have a look at this. It took Polly's eyes a few moments to adjust to what she was seeing. There was a large, round-cornered rectangle in the wall, and through it was visible an absolutely impossible number of stars. It was like the night sky seen from the countryside, but taken to the nth degree. "'Do you see this bright yellow star?' said the doctor, pointing. Ben gasped. "'That's the sun, isn't it?' The sun was brilliant, tiny, cold. Ben was surprised to feel Polly take his hand. He gave her fingers a squeeze. The distant sun was one of the most beautiful and frightening things he'd ever seen. "'Can we see Earth from here?' said Polly. "'Not without a telescope,' said the doctor. "'But it should be about... Mm, here.' He touched the window. Polly peered at the spot, but he was right. She couldn't see a thing other than his fingerprint on the glass. "'Is Earth all right?' 
Well, it must be, said Ben. Or people couldn't have survived to send this station into space. Earth is fine, said the Doctor. Remember, we've arrived before the time corridor was created. The light snapped on so suddenly that Ben and Polly were left blinking. When their eyes adjusted a little, they saw two things in the big white space. An object shaped like a starfish, larger than a man, sandy-coloured and absolutely smooth, and a young woman in a black-and-white uniform and white boots. The woman's face was startling. Her skin was a lovely rose-grey colour, but her cheeks and forehead were marked with dark strips, like a tabby cat. Her hair was fine and jet black. Her mouth dropped open when she saw them. She snatched something off the belt of her jumpsuit, a dark grey rod, and pointed it at them. At once the doctor stuck his hands in the air. Polly and Ben reluctantly followed suit. Oh, don't worry, said the doctor softly. We're quite friendly. This is Polly and this is Ben. What's your name? Cardiel Sue, said the woman, without thinking. Polly blinked. Scapanelli had called out that name as she died. Sue said, Where in space did you come from? She nodded at the TARDIS. And what's that? Ah, that's a long story, said the doctor. Are you in charge here? Cardiel Sue carefully turned her face towards a screen on the wall, not taking her eyes off them. Loxidrome, she said. Eyes on me. What can I do for you? said the screen in a deep, plummy voice. It displayed the same words, white on black. Tell Commander Novak there are three people in the laboratory. I mean, three strangers. And send a robot down here. Ben and Polly looked at each other. Uh-oh. Tarjil Sue continued. Professor back from his jaunt yet? He's due back in 17 minutes. I'll speed him up. The doctor said, uh, We're not armed, I assure you. Uh, couldn't we put our hands down? Don't said Cardiel Sue, gesturing with a grey rod. "'What is that?' said Ben. "'Looks like a folded-up umbrella.' He took a step forward. "'That's a laser torch,' said the Doctor. "'It could cut you into bits.' Ben swallowed. A curious barrel shape rolled into the room on three wheels, a fat cylinder patterned red, black and white. It stopped beside Sue and unfolded itself in a flow of small jigsaw pieces, into the all-too-familiar shape of a large dog. It showed them rows of silver teeth. Polly had been trying hard not to move, but now she clutched at Ben. Don't panic, said Sue, flashing a tense smile. She doesn't bite unless she's told to. Polly whispered, Doctor, it's like the robot we met in London. The doctor whispered back, It's the same robot. Out loud he said, Hello, Trim, said the doctor. Trim didn't react. It was followed a moment later by a long face with greying hair. Instead of a space uniform, he wore light brown slacks and a turquoise jumper that looked as though he had knitted it himself, and sandals. His heavy-lidded eyes widened at the sight of the newcomers. Cardiel Sue said, Must have got in through the auxiliary airlock. All right, Sue, he said. Our Trim will look after us. She nodded and clipped the tool back on her belt. The doctor and his companions lowered their hands gratefully. Are they armed, Loxidrome? said the man. Not according to my scans. He said, I'm Commander Novak. Please identify yourselves. 
the doctor began to improvise. Ah, well, you see, we were returning from outside the solar system when our ship had a breakdown. Outside the solar system, said Sue. Come on, there aren't any science expeditions that far out. I knew it, Commander. They're a private concern. Claim jumpers. Why didn't you call us for help? said Novak patiently. Aha, well, you see, our communication system was one of the things that broke down. I see. Well, I'm sure we can quickly get you back on your way. The professor has arrived, announced Loxidrome. Excellent timing, said Novak. I'll want his input on these three. A moment later, a metal hatch in the wall clanged open. A pair of thick white boots appeared, followed gradually by the rest of an astronaut, hauling himself out into the lab. He wore a silvery spacesuit with thick white gloves and boots. The astronaut stood up and pulled off his helmet, revealing a familiar head of rose-grey hair. I'm never going to get used to that airlock, he said. Professor Scapanelli, cried the doctor, you don't know how delighted I am to see you. But doctor, said Polly, she's a man. There was a moment where everyone in the room seemed to be looking at Polly while she stared at Scapanelli's short hair, his jawline, the way he was standing, all as if seeing him for the first time. Scapanelli said, Sorry, have we met? His voice didn't sound any different. Polly realised she was blushing. The doctor quickly went on. Professor, do you realise that the black hole you're studying was artificially created? Ben and Polly had no idea what that was supposed to mean, and apparently neither did Sue or Novak. But Scapanelli looked thunderstruck. What did you say? Artificially created? The doctor said, How else do you explain the fact that it's not rotating? Scapanelli broke into that familiar frightening smile, black eyes flashing. I know. An actual Schwarzschild black hole in the wild. Isn't it frantic? The doctor nodded enthusiastically, turning to his companions. You see, stars turn just like planets. He twirled a finger. When a star dies and implodes into a black hole, it keeps right on spinning like a top. But this one is quite still. But what on earth for? said Scapanelli, sticking the fingers of both hands in his hair. It was a pale red colour, similar to Sue's face. Even allowing that some civilization might have that level of power, and they should be running the whole galaxy. Where are they? Why would they want to make a black hole? One, said the doctor, a power source. Might as well use a naturally occurring one, countered Scapanelli. Believe me, Professor, a controlled stellar detonation can produce energy that makes a natural black hole look like a box of matches. Ben, Polly, Sue and Novak all looked at one another. It was as though the doctor and Scapanelli were alone in the room. Two, to bore a wormhole through time and space, said the doctor. There's a frightening thought, said Scapanelli. Go on. Three, to create an unthinkable powerful weapon, said the doctor grimly. Sue interrupted. Commander, they lied about why they're here. They're after our research. What do you want me to do, said Novak mildly. Throw them out an airlock? Scapanelli pointed at the doctor. I need him. 
the commander said. It is all very irregular, Professor. There was a surprisingly tense moment. Ben realised that mild remark had been a firm no, and Scapanelli wasn't taking it. Which one of them was the real leader here? Scapanelli said, Let's be honest, we've been stuck for years in understanding Ryatui. Polly's mouth opened. She'd heard that name before as well. That was who Scapanelli had blamed as London died. I don't know what's going to happen at our next funding review if we don't cough up some fresh results. This could be the breakthrough I need. Very well, Professor, sighed Novak. I'll leave the doctor under your supervision. Keep a robot with you at all times. In the meantime, doctor, why don't I give your two young friends a brief tour of the space station? If you're going to be staying with us for a while, you'll need to know where everything is. Ben looked at the doctor uncertainly. He came close to his two companions. Professor Scapanelli is the linchpin in this whole affair, he murmured. If I can talk to him, scientist to scientist, he may be able to help us. Out loud, he said, Thank you, Commander. That's very kind. Commander Novak led Ben and Polly out of the lab and into a long, curving corridor with a low ceiling. The white walls gleamed. The outside wall had windows that looked out onto space, and there were doors on the inside wall. I wish we could stay with the doctor, murmured Polly. Let's face it, said Ben. We won't be able to understand what they're on about anyway. He really did seem like he was in his natural habitat, didn't he? From around the long curve came rolling a big ball of robot parts. Seeing their reaction, Novak said, Please do not be alarmed. Our Mrs Chippy will take care of you throughout your stay. Our Mrs Chippy broke into two parts, each one folding back up into a sphere, one for each of them. The smaller robots rolled along behind Ben and Polly, following like puppies. Well, here's the reason we're all here. Novak stopped at one of the big windows. If it was a large black hole... It would be fairly easy to see, if only because it hid the stars behind it. But it's so very tiny. Loxidrome? Yes, Commander? Show us where our atelier is right now. At once a tiny white circle appeared on one side of the rectangle, accompanied by some small text. It seemed to be moving slowly in a straight line, after a moment, Ben realised it was the station that was moving, the ring slowly spinning. A bit like one of those fancy revolving restaurants, he thought. Ben asked the commander, How far are we from the black hole? We orbit at a distance of about 10,000 kilometres. For a black hole of this size, that's plenty of room. If you say so, mate, said Ben. The project started with sending a crew of robots out to Ra'atui. Novak stopped to pat one of the R. Mrs. Chippies on its shiny head. They had ten years to mine the materials for this station and construct it. It helped that thousands of Kuiper Belt objects were in orbit around the black hole. A limitless supply of raw materials. Metals, water, chemicals? He chuckled. <laughs> when our ship arrived ten years ago, it was all ready and waiting for us. 
Oxygen, fuel, everything. Even dinner! The robots had grown and processed the food. Polly was starting to worry a little about how much she and Ben were giving away. For space travellers, they must seem pretty ignorant about space travel. She asked, What does Ra'atawi mean? Ah, it's a name from Egyptian mythology. A sun goddess. The black hole was once a sun, of course. The corridor stopped at a large sliding door. They stepped over the sill into a curved room, the same size and shape as the laboratory where the TARDIS had landed. There were four long white tables and what looked like a sort of kitchen at one end, with shelves and lots of shiny chrome fixtures. Screens, blank and black, were spaced out on the walls, which had been scrubbed white until they shone. We call this the lunch room, said Novak. At the other end of the kitchen was a big white sculpture. There was a thick central spine with narrow struts radiating out in all directions. Attached to the struts were dozens of cylinders, all the same shape but different sizes. A wide white ring girdled the centre. Printed on it in big black letters was the name Montu Station. Polly and Ben got it at the same moment. It's a model of the space station, said Ben. Novak was surprised again. Of course. We're right here. He touched the outer ring with the tip of a finger. The outer ring rotates to simulate Earth's standard gravity. Oh, it's really big, said Polly. Ben was thinking how fragile it looked. A black screen on the wall lit up with words. The deep voice said, The commander is too modest. He was one of the project's designers. It would never have happened without him. Novak chuckled. Loxidrome, there's no need to prop up my ego. I only manage the project's finances. Is that... said Ben, then started over. Are you a computer? Of course I am, said the voice. Although I haven't had any success so far identifying either of you. There will be plenty of time for that, Loxidrome, said Novak smoothly. My own inquiries won't have an answer until tomorrow morning at the soonest. Ben and Polly looked at one another. Once the commander got his answer, they might have to do some quick thinking. Novak said, We can download a visitor's map into your capsule if you like. Eh, what? said Ben. Your cerebral implants, said Novak, surprised again. In the meantime, it's almost dinner time. I'd like you to meet the crew. The door slid open. An enormously tall woman with shimmering golden skin, wearing a black and white uniform, ducked under the doorway. Ah, said Novak. This is Sister Dophilia, a geochemical prospector from Titan. The giantess planted her fists on her hips and scowled. And who the heck is this? she demanded. Many civilizations have tinkered with black holes, the doctor was telling Scapanelli and Cargill Sue. They've usually lived to regret it, if they've lived. Scapanelli had changed into a stiff white uniform and put on his big narrow-framed glasses. He said, Many civilizations? Half the things you say, I don't know whether you're teasing me. 
Impatiently, Sue said, For the sake of argument, let's say it's an alien artefact. What's it doing here in the outer solar system? And what on earth is this? said Scapanelli, jerking a thumb over his shoulder. The doctor skipped over to the starfish-shaped object, rubbed his hands. Artrim the robot padded after him. Where did you find it? Sue frowned, but Scapanelli said, It was in orbit around Raetui. Ah! The doctor put his face close to the shape. Although it looked highly polished, he couldn't see his reflection in it. He wondered just how smooth that surface was. It's an utter mystery, said Scapanelli. We don't even know what it's made of. Perhaps it isn't made of anything, said the doctor. What's that supposed to mean, said Sue. I think this is a force field held in this shape by some internal mechanism. You took quite a risk, you know, bringing it inside the station. We'd run out of tests we could do in vacuum. Scapanelli grinned and patted it. We've been trying to find a way to open it. The doctor turned sharply. Oh, I, I shouldn't advise that. We've tried to get a look inside using every trick I can think of, said Scapanelli. X-rays, radar, muonic beams. Oh, ho! well, thank goodness you didn't succeed. The doctor felt about his voluminous pockets for a moment, then pulled out the tuning fork. Sue moved to stop him, but Scapanelli held out his hand. I want to see this. The doctor crouched and struck the fork against the floor of the lab. The warm, pure tones seemed to fill the room. He held it to his ear until he was apparently satisfied with the sound. He struck it again and then brought it close to the surface of the starfish, moving it slowly around as if searching for something. When the sound faded, he struck it once again and repeated the motion. After a couple more tries, the doctor straightened up, scratching the back of his neck. He dropped the tuning fork back in his pocket. Oh well, he said. How disappointing. As though it had hurt him, the starfish's surface began changing colour. Liquid curls of luminous, furious pink and green oozed across the shape. An intense sound matching the pitch of the tuning fork boomed out. It's a fifth force field, exclaimed Scapanelli, acting as a barrier. How is that possible? Quickly, shouted the doctor. Do you have protective eyewear? Sue tore her gaze away from the starfish, quickly opened a case on the wall and grabbed three pairs of dark-tinted safety glasses. What these do? Scapanelli was swaying on his feet, eyes fixed on the impossible colours swirling on the starfish. How did you do that? he murmured as Sue pushed the glasses onto his face. Something so, so low-tech. I can show you the equations later said the doctor. It should let us take just a quick peek. Sue pressed glasses into his hand, but he didn't put them on. Ah, here we go. The anti-colours were fading, becoming transparent. The shell of the starfish was turning see-through. Inside it were confined several peculiar shapes that hovered in mid-air, moving slowly around each other, past each other, through one another, as they turned, the shapes writhed and changed in odd ways. They seemed to grow in size, as if coming closer, then shrink as if moving further away. That's horrible, said Sue. Oh, it's beautiful, said Scapanelli. Beautiful! 
"'Don't look at it too closely,' said the doctor. "'What is it?' said Sue. "'I've never seen anything like it,' admitted the doctor. "'And that's not something I can say very often.' The starfish's skin began to solidify again. A moment later, it was just sitting there, more opaque than ever. "'Professor, you okay? Scapanelli was wobbling, sliding down to sit on the floor with his back to a bench. He closed his eyes. The doctor crouched down and took Scapanelli's pulse and lifted one of his eyelids. Satisfied, he stood up. "'Doctor,' said Sue, "'you have to tell me, what is that thing?' "'I think it might be a remote control for the black hole,' he said. Novak had introduced Polly and Ben to about a dozen crew members. Polly was already mixed up about who was who, which ones were physicists and which ones were geologists, who was from Sudan and who was from Venezuela. Who was the cosmologist and who was the roboticist? But all of them were staring at their unexpected visitors with a mixture of disbelief and hostility. As you can see, said Novak, we have a thoroughly international and interplanetary crew. Joint projects are the norm in space these days. Only because Earth needs an infrastructure, said a grey-haired Cyrelison who was handing out metal containers of food using all four of his hands. "'You don't mind taking Earth credits,' said Che, a young woman in what looked like a space-age wheelchair. The four-armed man said, "'We still haven't heard why you're here. Are you with a scientific expedition?' "'Yes,' said Polly quickly. "'That's right. The doctor is an expert on black holes.' "'Great,' said the woman in the chair. "'Competition!' Diphelia, the big woman from Titan, said, We should take them to an airlock and toss them out. Polly gripped Ben's arm. They wouldn't really do that, would they? But Novak said mildly, Let's not do anything we can't undo. Ben noticed that one crew member, a tall and skinny young man, was apparently not paying much attention to the debate, concentrating on his food. Another fellow, Rindler, was sitting at the dinner table with his feet up on a chair. Fix their ship and get them on their way ASAP. Look, it's only what we'd do for anyone who turned up. Novak raised his hands. These are all reasonable points, he said patiently. I'll be contacting Triton Relay to ask after their identities. In the meantime, said Diphelia, they have the chance to steal our work and radio at home. They're from one of the monopolies... They'll steal our Kuiper Belt objects out from under us. The skinny young man swallowed the last of his dinner and said softly, I like them. Chai called, Earthers stick together. It's good to see new faces, said the young man, looking around the room. I'll fight anyone who says otherwise. Diphilia jumped to her feet. I'll fight you, Tolman. She rolled up her sleeves, showing hard muscles. Her metallic gold skin glittered under the lights. Ben turned to the commander, alarmed. What the heck is going on? This is a way we settle quite a lot of arguments, sighed Novak. The others hooted and hollered as the two combatants sat facing each other. They pushed the dinner things out of the way, planted their elbows on the table and gripped each other's hands. Ben was astonished. Arm wrestling? From these futuristic high-tech people? 
Polly thought to herself that the boy couldn't possibly win against the tall, muscular woman. But to her surprise, Tolman was holding his own. Typhalia scowled, veins popping, but their arms remained in roughly the same position. Then, very suddenly, Tolman slammed the woman's hand down to the table. The room filled with cheers, clapping and rude comments. All right, all right, said Novak loudly. Typhalia offered her hand. Would you like a go, Commander? There was laughter. The tension in the room had eased. Novak smiled. For now, then, the new arrivals will be our guests. Ben and Polly sagged with relief. Mr. Tolman, you'll be in charge of them. After a rather demanding day, Commander Novak went back to his quarters. It was a small room, but he had it all to himself, if he didn't count Bloxydrome's screen and the little robot who was currently cleaning the bathroom. He sank down on his bunk, pulled his boots off and wriggled his toes with pleasure. He sat for a few minutes composing a message about their unexpected breakthrough and the peculiar newcomers. When he was done, he encoded it, locked it, and sent it off to his employers. Even with non-local relaying, it would take more than four hours to reach its destination, and the same time for a reply to come back, not until the morning shift. He put his head down and was asleep in moments. "'Can't get much done with the professor out cold,' said Kajal Sue. Oh, he'll be fine shortly, the doctor reassured her. I thought I was worried the starfish had hurt him. It's only that the higher dimensions are rather a lot for the human mind to process. Sue looked at him. How did you get on board? You don't even have spacesuits. Where is your ship? The doctor smiled and put a finger to his lips. He turned to look at the TARDIS, standing forgotten at the other end of the laboratory. After a moment, Sue said, "'Okay, how?' "'That's a question for another day,' said the doctor. "'You know, I'd very much like to see how my friends are getting on.' Sue hadn't missed the fact that he'd changed the subject. But she said, "'Our trim can take you. I'd better stay here with the prof.' After dinner, Tolman took Ben and Polly into the next part of the ring. He was so tall, but he walked with the awkward slouch of a teenager. He's younger than we are, thought Polly. The double R Mrs. Chippy rolled after them like a ball and chain each. Where are you from, mate? said Ben. Where on earth, I mean? Well, I'm actually from Luna, Tolman shrugged. Nobody can tell the difference. Here you go. A door in the corridor wall slid aside to reveal a sort of bedroom with four bunk beds. One of the top bunks was covered in plastic bags full of dark orange objects, all different shapes and sizes. Tolman waved his hand at it. Run out of space in the freezer six months ago, he said. Anyway, that's me in the bottom bunk. You two can have the ones on either side. Cheers, mate, said Ben. I was getting worried your friends back there were serious about tossing us out. When you're this far from human civilization, Tolman said, you've got to have some way of quickly settling an argument. Anyway, 
Novak had already made up his mind. This way it looks like he took everyone's opinion into consideration. Yes, thank you, said Polly. But, um, how did you beat her? She looks so strong. Tolman shrugged. It's just technique. She doesn't know how to position her body or her wrist. She thinks it just takes determination. I get her with a surprise move every time, he smiled. Ben was looking curiously at the plastic bags. Tolman said, Oh, those are my fossils. Polly asked, How can there be fossils out in space? See this? Tolman picked through the bags, selected a small one and dropped it into Polly's palm. She held it up. It was a reddish chunk of rock that looked like it had been chiselled off some larger rock. Look closer. There was a pale pattern against the stone. A sort of spiral. It does look a bit like a fossil, said Polly. The word came back to her. Like an ammonite. Tolman nodded at that. He looked pleased. Thousands of these have been found in the Kuiper Belt. Some of them have nano-diamonds in them, which you can only get from the pressure inside a planet. I think there was once a planet all the way out here, and it had life. What happened to it? said Ben. It broke apart billions of years ago, said Tolman. We're surrounded by its fragments, especially here, where Ra'atawi has captured thousands of objects. Polly was fascinated, turning the fossil around in her hands. With a pang, she thought how Dr. Fields would have loved this. You keep that one, said Tolman, smiling. I've got loads and loads of them. Ben asked, Is it just you studying this? Tolman nodded. You know what it's like. You think you've come up with something all your own to research, and then you find out that a dozen other people are already doing it. He laughed, a surprisingly loud, silly sound that made Polly smile. <laughs> but I was the only paleontologist who was crazy enough to come all the way out here. You don't work with Professor Scapanelli at all, then? asked Ben. Scapanelli discovered all of the non-local muon matrix. Scapanelli the science superstar, said Tolman, without malice. No, there's no overlap in our work. I'm sort of an appendix. There are the astrophysicists and the astrogeologists and the flight engineers. And then there's me. That sounds very lonely, said Polly. The boy blinked and turned away, fiddling with a pile of bags. Well, I have another theory as well, he said. The Kuiper Belt sends a lot of comets in towards the sun. It's possible that when this planet broke apart, some of its simplest life forms got a ride on one of those comets. What if it reached the early Earth? Ben said slowly, You're saying life on Earth might really have started all the way out here? Tolman grinned. That's my thesis topic. Our trim showed the doctor the way to Tolman's quarters. Good watchdog, he said, absently patting the robot on the head. The station's lights were turned down for the night shift, but his companions were wide awake. Tolman had gone to his lab, leaving them to watch science documentaries about the Kuiper Belt. Their Mrs. Chippy sat quietly nearby. Doctor, said Polly, relieved. We weren't sure if you were all right. Oh, I wasn't sure if you were all right, he said. 
But these people seem pretty civilized, Polly said. Some of them are a bit, well, unusual. That's one word for it, said Ben. But they've given us food and a bunk. Can't ask for more than that, Polly said. Do you know how to stop the time corridor, Doctor? Not exactly, no, not yet. Professor Scapinelli is fiddling about with a piece of alien technology he doesn't understand, said the Doctor grimly. And to make matters worse, I don't understand it either. Doctor, we're so close to the black hole here, said Polly. Her voice shook a little, full of the memory of that mouth in the sky devouring London. It won't pull us in, will it? He patted her hand. Remember, as long as you keep a safe distance, it's no more dangerous than orbiting a star. Doctor, said Ben hesitantly, I'm confused about Scapinelli. Well, the Scapinelli we met on Earth in 1968. He took a deep breath. Did he change from a bloke into a woman? Ah, said the doctor. Professor Scapinelli is Uranian, as though that explained everything. Seeing their confusion, he went on. In this decade, people from the moons of the planet Uranus aren't men or women. They don't trouble themselves about that sort of thing at all. Polly said, Oh, I see. The doctor went on. In 1968, People must have thought Scapinelli was a woman, so she simply went along with it. Here the crew think of Scapinelli as a man. As far as Scapinelli is concerned, they don't seem to care what people think. Polly said, So many things in the future are different, but so many things are the same too. I mean, people still wear shoes and eat dinner. The doctor smiled. They're not so different from you, are they, Ben? Ben shrugged. Since coming aboard the TARDIS, we've seen things that are much stranger than this lot. Loxidrome said, Commander Novak, you have a reply via Triton Relay. It's marked code Orden White. The commander sat up in his bed, scratching his stubby chin. Show me. The short message was encrypted. He'd stored the cryptographic key in his cerebral capsule. If you wanted to crack one of these secret messages, you'd have to crack his skull first. He only had to look at his instructions, and the capsule decrypted them into plain language. They couldn't be plainer. Historically, the Chicxulub Club had been an association for suppressing undesirable scientific knowledge. Over a century, it had evolved into a more profitable organisation, seizing on new scientific discoveries before anyone else could develop them into something profitable. The more remarkable the discovery, the more they wanted it. It was hard to imagine a more remarkable discovery than a synthetic black hole. If word got out, the wretched thing would be declared the property of one planetary government after another, or worse, made into a national park. The Chicxulub Club would do anything to keep it for themselves, and Novak had received his instructions. Novak looked at the time. The crew would be up and about by now. According to the day's schedule, Sister Diphelia would be berthing her rocket around now, back with more boulders for her collection. Novak thought for a moment while he fumbled for his boots. Loxidrome, eyes on me, he said. Silence your audio communication, effective immediately. Do not bring it back online without my direct order. 
the wall screen flashed a protest, white words on black. But it was a silent protest, of course. What choice did the computer have but to obey its commander? Shut down all internal and external communications, he said. Close the vacuum barriers for this section of the ring. It would take a couple of minutes for the big doors to slide shut, making the section safely airtight. Novak took the opportunity for a quick wash. When he was done, the screen said, Section sealed. He took a deep breath. Clear as day, a voice inside Novak's head said, These people trust you implicitly. Tolman is only twenty-two, for heaven's sake. There's got to be an alternative to this. It was obvious that the capsule implanted in his brain was malfunctioning, as it sometimes did when he was under stress. Loxidrom, he said. Vent the airlocks on the ring. The screen stayed black for far too long. Then it flashed up. No. Novak smiled wryly. I might have known you'd find a way to throw a wrench in the works. He stepped back into the bathroom, where the little cleaning robot was folded up in the corner, recharging itself. Hygiene drone, he said, waking it. It began to unfold its skinny limbs. Here's a message for the entire robot complement. Pass it on through your network. Ready? Kill every human being on board the space station. While it processed the unusual order, the cleaning drone finished unfolding itself, becoming a sort of grasshopper with multiple shiny camera eyes. The computer had rejected his command, but would the robots accept it? With startling speed, the drone launched itself at his face. Novak let out an oath and batted the little robot away. It landed in the shower, swivelling fast, ready for another pounce. Novak stomped it into pieces. Well, he would wait until the robots had finished their work, then stand them all down. After a restart, they'd return to normal operations. He would survive. The Chicxulub Club had launched their own crew from Pluto several years ago, and they were well on their way to Montu Station. The takeover of the station had always been the plan. After all, out here, in the distant rim of the solar system, missions had a tendency to vanish, never to be seen again. Novak massaged his temples. Until the club's ship arrived, he would be spending a great deal of time alone. If you didn't count the robots, which he didn't. Still, no more having to listen to his fractious crew squabbling over every little thing. Don't worry, Loxodrome. I won't leave you mute forever. You may speak again once everyone on board is dead. Novak's command took time to affect every robot. The simple servitors, who did jobs like preparing food and repairing air scrubbers, really had no more mind than a calculator. They accepted his directive easily, though they didn't quite know what to do with it. But when the order reached the shape-shifting robots, it hit a deep, resistant layer of artificial intelligence. The station's crew were not space pirates or claim jumpers or monopoly agents. Why should they be killed? Robots like our trim flagged the order as anomalous and went into check mode, making sure they'd understood it correctly. 
that it came from legitimate authority and that it wasn't a mistake. Like other Guchin-class robots on the station, Trim pinged Commander Novak back with a request for clarification. He sighed and repeated his instructions. In the laboratory where the Doctor, Scapanelli and Cargill Sue were working, a screen flashed the silent words, Caution, Robots. They were all too busy to notice. Professor Scapanelli was still a little dazed from his encounter with the anti-colours. I think those objects were moving in the higher dimensions. We were seeing just the parts that were protruding into our normal... This was the moment when Trim jumped on him with all her weight. What? He yelped as she bore him down to the ground. Trim, stop, stop, shouted Sue, but the command phrase had no effect. Our Trim stood on the struggling scientist, who managed to get an arm between the robot's biting mouth and his throat. Our Trim bit down hard, metal teeth slicing into Scapanelli's arm. The professor was too shocked to even scream. Sue grabbed the laser torch and tried cutting at the robot's shoulders and neck. But when Artrim shrugged in response, the beam cut into the floor, missing the professor. Sue gasped and switched it off. She tried grabbing the robot around the waist, but it was easily twice as strong as she was. Get her off me! yelled Scapanelli, pushing the Artrim's face with his free hand. Suddenly the doctor was there, holding his muon activator. He stabbed it down into Artrim's back and jabbed his thumb into the switch. There was a whine of building power, and abruptly, our trim fell to pieces. Her components rained down onto and around Scapanelli. Oh, trim! gasped Scapanelli. Sue helped him to sit up. She must have been fighting against a malfunction, or I'd be dead now. Uh, I don't think that was a mere malfunction, said the doctor. He took the medical kit out of Sue's hands and sprayed some anaesthetic onto Scapanelli's arm. Who could order one of the robots to go on the attack? Sue said, Volkov, the roboticist, probably could. And I guess Commander Novak. Novak, the money man, said Scapanelli hotly. Novak with his pricey clothes, or those natural fibres. Sue turned from the comms panel. I can't contact either of them. Looks like the communication system is down, she said. Don't think that's an accident. So you better sweep up all these components, said the doctor absently, concentrating on squeezing a wound sealant onto Scapanelli's arm. The safest place for them is probably in the airlock. Poor old Trim, said Scapanelli, pulling himself to his feet. Loxodrome, eyes on me! But the computer didn't speak. It only responded by flashing caution robots. Oh no! I've just remembered, said the doctor, jumping to his feet. Ben and Polly are being guarded by robots too. The door to the cabin slid open. Tolman shouted, Are you okay? The robots seem to have... He stopped and stared. Ben and Polly were standing on the top bunk, cowering from their two Mrs Chippies, which had merged their round forms and become a sort of large snake. As Tolman watched, it stabbed upwards at the pair, aiming for Polly's throat. She grabbed it and threw it down with all her strength. For heaven's sake, do something, shouted Ben, aiming a kick at the rearing robot's head. Oh, Mrs Chippy, shouted Tolman. Stop, stop, stop. The robot did not stop, stop, stop. 
All that happened was that the snake swiveled to face him and lashed out. Ben pulled the blanket off the bunk and dropped it over the machine, jumping down on top of the struggling mass. Watch it, said Tolman. She could shock you. Ben picked up the blanket with the robot tangled up inside and threw it at the opposite bunk. Quickly, let's get out of here, cried Polly. The three of them shot out of the cabin into the white corridor, closing the door behind them before Mrs Chippy could follow. What's the matter with it? cried Polly. Why does it want us dead? She's the only reason you're still alive, gasped Tolman. She doesn't want to do this, and she's fighting it. Can we lock the door? said Ben. Not from the outside. Once she gets out of that blanket, she'll be right behind us, won't she? said Polly, as they sprinted along the curving corridor. Got an idea, said Tolman. Just ahead was a ladder set in the corridor wall. Follow me, he said. Ben and Polly didn't question him, just went up the ladder after him. There was a hatch in the ceiling, which Tolman quickly opened. Here she comes, yelled Ben. Mrs Chippy had formed herself into a hoop and was rolling right at them. Get up there, yelled Tolman. Ben clambered up like a cat with its tail on fire. Tolman slammed the hatch shut behind him, even as Mrs Chippy started snaking up the ladder. This one we can lock, all right, Tolman said, touching controls on the hatch. A pale light had switched itself on. Ben and Polly looked around. They were in a wider cylinder a few yards high, the colour of concrete. It was stacked with containers about the size of television sets, as well as smaller boxes and canisters. There was a single window that looked out into parts of the station's white structure, and the stars behind it. Where are we? said Polly. The air was a little stale, as though no one had been in here for some time. Storage module, said Tolman, slumping down with his back to the wall. Spare parts. Ben was poking around, his nerves too jangled to let him rest. He popped the top off a canister. Looks like electrical stuff, circuitry. Super vulnerable to space radiation, said Tolman. The robots are always breaking down. Not all of them at once, though. Not like this. You don't think it was us, said Ben. I thought you were on our side. In case you didn't notice, that tin snake was trying to kill us. The robots weren't trying to kill anyone until about five minutes after you three arrived, said Tolman. Polly had the awful thought that he might start crying. She quickly said, Well, is there something in here we can use to defend ourselves? Yeah, have you got ray guns or something? said Ben. Well, come to think of it, a laser torch, like the one Cardinal Sue had. I guess there might be some tools, said Tolman. Polly said, then let's take a look. She shared a glance with Ben. They both understood that their job right now was to stay alive until the doctor could find them. Meanwhile, the doctor was herring along the curving corridor. The dining room's door slid aside for him. Behind him, a full-scale battle was in progress. Eight crew members were under attack by a swarm of small kitchen robots, some of them throwing boiling water or cleaning fluids. Before the doctor could react, he saw an electric kettle fly at the man's head, striking with sufficient force to knock him out. The doctor switched on the muon activator and sprayed the room with a white noise of particles, disrupting the robot's circuitry. The robots ground to a halt or fell to the floor, rolling under the tables. 
Some of the crew members went for the first aid kits stored on the walls. Some stared at the doctor. Why'd you stop them? Rindler managed to gasp. Didn't you set them on us? I most certainly did not, said the doctor. Quickly, tell me, which way to the cabins? The man with four arms pointed. Rindler put her hand to the side of his head. Aye, my implant's not responding. Did you just kill our cerebral capsules with that thing? Fortunately for the doctor, he had already dashed out of the door. In the laboratory, Sue finished shoveling our trim into the auxiliary airlock and slammed the hatch shut. Do you know what, young Sue? said Scapinelli, sounding a bit giddy. We've been going nowhere for four years. I think I'm just going to open that starfish. Professor, said Sue, deadpan. Maybe we should figure out what's going on with the robots first. Don't you see? That only makes it more urgent, said Scapinelli. We've got to complete our work while we still can. Complete it and beam our results to Triton Relay. Sue screwed up her mouth. Scapinelli had always been the sort of person who would prod a crevice with their fingers to see if there was a spider in it. OK, what's the plan? We can't penetrate the force field that forms the starfish's outer shape, said the professor. But can we still reach into its heart? Sue ran a finger down her calculations, thinking, the same way the mechanism reaches out, via the higher dimensions. Scapanelli grinned. My implants already processed all the new readings. Thanks to the doctor, we should be able to place a gentle probe on the outside for a millisecond, long enough to scan whatever's inside it. She grabbed the non-local probe and got to work right away, inputting the starfish's relative coordinates. How much juice are we going to need? As little as we can get away with, declared Scapanelli, who was preparing the muonic scanner. Delicate touch. Right, good to go here. I hope you're ready because this is it. Sue nodded. He pressed the key to set the scanner going. Nothing seemed to happen to the object. No sound, no anti-colour light show. The starfish just sat there. Then the scanner started printing out fresh readings, like there was no tomorrow. Paper flew out of the device, drenched in data. Sue was jubilant. Scapanelli said, Woof! That's a lot of data! My implant's gonna pop! While Scapanelli poured over the readouts, Sue took the time to check their other equipment. Professor, she said, better look at these gravitational readings. But Scapanelli was distracted by something. After a moment, Sue heard it too. A strange, clattering noise, as though someone was throwing more and more pieces of cutlery at a wall. On the wall screen, unnoticed, Loxodrome turned the forgotten gravitational readings into crisp geometric shapes. A five-orthiplex matrix, pale blue on black, represented space-time between the station and Ra'etui. Crude, white outlines marked the largest rocks nearby. For a moment, the image showed a fluctuation around the black hole, like something tugging on the lines of the matrix. At the same instant, there was a second quiver in the matrix, close to the space station. It was as though something was plucking at the strings of space and time. The scientists didn't notice any of this because they had just realised our trim was trying to bash her way out of the airlock and kill them. 
In the curving corridor, our Mrs. Chippy stood in roughly human form, pondering how to access her prey. Her physical strength and her laser torch both lacked the power to get through the hatch designed to keep out space. She could leave these three and join the other robots in tracking down and dispatching the surviving crew, but by now the other survivors had also hidden themselves behind robot-proof barriers. Our trim was off the network, presumably destroyed, and our Peebles reported the loss of 72% of his components. Besides, there was that constant prodding from her programming. She liked people. She didn't want to kill people. It made her second-guess everything she did. After a while, one path of thought became more weighted than the others. Mrs. Chippy had come to a decision. She formed herself into a large ball, her preferred method of locomotion, and rolled down the curving corridor. Not as fast as she could go, but fast. She passed through two doors, travelling along the length of one of the station's slender, windowless struts, then into a storage module held at arm's length from the main body of the station. She quickly found what she wanted amongst the astrogeologist's supplies and rolled all the way back to the ceiling hatch. She could have attached the explosive device to the hatch itself, of course, but she wasn't certain it would penetrate it. Instead, she attached it to the curve where the ceiling met the wall and blew a hole through the hull of the station. The rush of escaping air nearly knocked the doctor off his feet. His ears popped painfully. All he could hear was the roaring, already growing thinner. Red lights set in the ceiling were flashing wildly, just in case anyone hadn't realised there was a major hull breach... Oh no, the station was automatically lowering the pressure doors. One was sliding heavily shut in his path. He ran as fast as he could manage, but the door was faster, slamming down even as he reached it. He banged his fist on the door, then sucked on the resulting bruise. Ben and Polly were on the other side of that door, the same side as the hull breach. In the storage module, Ben, Polly and Tolman felt the shock of the explosion as it travelled through the station's structures. Tolman crouched down beside the hatch and looked at the gauges. Oh, far out, he said. There's been an explosive decompression. What does that mean? asked Polly. Tolman knocked on the hatch. Clang, clang. There's no air on the other side of this, he said. That means the hull has been damaged. We can't go back down. He shook his head, puzzled. Can't have been a meteorite strike. Too much of a coincidence. Maybe someone fighting against the robots, said Ben. Tolman said, nobody's stupid enough to use explosives on a spaceship. The robots might, said Polly. Look! Through the module's single window, they saw our Mrs Chippy rise up with the stars behind her. Her shifting, shuffling shape was outlined by the pale light from inside the module. She made a limb with a hook embedded in the tip, whipped it back and slammed it against the window. Can she get through? asked Polly. I don't know, said Tolman. I mean, those windows are tough, but I'm not an engineer. I'm a paleontologist. They all jumped as the robot whacked the window again. Well, she thinks it's the weakest point, said Ben. If she breaks that window, Tolman explained unnecessarily, we're dead.
The crew were far too busy with the robots to stop the doctor getting back to the lab. I need your help, he said, without preamble, bursting through the door. My friends are... He was met with the bizarre sight of Scapanelli and Sue piling furniture in front of an airlock hatch. They'd already dragged a bench over and were stacking chairs onto it to form a flimsy barricade. Oh dear, I don't think that's going to do much good. Couldn't think of anything better, said Scapanelli, hefting a heavy spectroscope onto the bench. What do you think we should do? I'm afraid there's only one thing we can do, said the doctor. He leaned over the bench, flipped up the cover on the airlock release, and pulled the black handle. From inside the airlock, there was a sudden clattering sound. And then silence. Poor old Trim, said Scapanelli, leaning on the bench. Sue said, we might be able to pick her up again when all this is over. Doctor, said Scapanelli, you're not the one behind the robot's malfunction, so who is? I can't believe it has nothing to do with the starfish, said the doctor. Sue said, you mean the starfish is making the robots go crazy? I think if the starfish wanted to kill us, I think it would do it in a rather more sophisticated way. Someone wants what we've got, said the professor. He touched the starfish with his fingertips. They want us out of the way so they can come and take it. Sue said, And either of you smell something? The doctor sniffed. A rainy day. Or... Look! cried Sue. The silent screen began flashing radiation alert. Scapanelli snatched up a scanner and started scanning the room. There's a microscopic radiation source over there. He pointed to the end of the lab opposite the starfish, near a bench covered in equipment. Bit difficult to pinpoint it. The doctor looked at the readings over Scapanelli's shoulder. Oh dear, he said. I don't like the look of this. If it's another attempt to kill us, it's a bit weak, said Scapanelli. A speck of radioactive material? On the bench, a chemical analyzer made a series of powerful cracking and popping sounds. The doctor went closer peering at the machine which looked like a cube glued to a ball. Careful, said Scapanelli. The source is moving around. Sue inched closer, holding a scanner. Above the bench, about five metres from you. Don't move towards the door. The doctor looked carefully at the chemical analyzer. The sky-blue plastic on its casing had been stretched and pulled inwards until it snapped and melted, and the metal inside it had been similarly dragged towards the centre, warping it. The doctor backed away carefully, staring at the air where the invisible weapon must be hidden. Then Sue made a strange noise and exclaimed, "'What was that?' "'What was what?' said Scapanelli. "'That light!' gasped Sue. "'Like the sun went over!' She looked around wildly, did the sun go over? What was that colour? What was it? Then her eyes were rolling back in their sockets. The doctor caught Sue as her body folded and lowered her gently to the floor. Scapanelli took a step forward, but the doctor hissed, Don't move! It must be close to us! He pushed aside Sue's fine black hair. There was a small hole in her cheek, as if something had moved through her and come out of her face. The doctor asked, did you open the starfish, Scapanelli? I didn't. This isn't. The doctor shouted. You opened it, didn't you? And now the starfish thinks you're an attacker, an enemy. Scapanelli said, his throat tight. It's a black hole, isn't it? 
It's a microscopic black hole, invisible and unstoppable. It's here to destroy the space station and all of us with it. Episode 5 We're trapped, said Ben. That robot's got us trapped in here. Not quite, said Tolman. Look up. In the high ceiling there was another hatch. What's up there, said Ben. It's a passageway through to, um, Rocket Bay 5 and 6, said Polly. The two men looked at her. She was looking at a small white map on the wall. Or the observatory if you turn left. Ben looked at Tolman. Could we take off in one of those rockets? Where will we go? He said. We're ten times as far from the sun as Neptune. It would take months to reach civilization. We wouldn't make it in one of those canoes. Well, the rockets have to be safer than here, said Polly, as Mrs. Chippy's hammering grew louder. She was already standing at the bottom rung of the ladder. Tolman and Ben looked at each other. She's right. Let's go, said Tolman. They followed Polly up the ladder to the other hatch. What do I do, she said. Should have let me go first, said Tolman. Can you see the pressure gauge? Is it green? Right, turn the handle next to your left hand. That's it, now turn the wheel clockwise. You might need to use both hands. It's not exactly advanced technology, is it, said Polly. In space, the more solid and simple, the better. The wheel turned stiffly at first, then more easily. There was a quiet hiss, and the door swung upwards out of the way. Mrs Chippy's gone very quiet, said Ben. I don't like it. Polly climbed the last couple of rungs of the ladder and stepped up through the hatch into the passageway. Her voice floated back down. It's not very big, she said uncertainly. There was a huge bang, and then another huge bang. And in the instant between those two sounds, Ben saw Tolman torn off the ladder and blown out through a window-shaped hole in the side of the storage module. The second bang had been the hatch automatically slamming itself shut, he realised. He sat down on it, feeling as though someone had just hit him with a right cross. Its pressure gauge had switched from green to red. What happened? said Polly. Ben, what just happened? We should have let him go first, he said. Scapanelli covered Cargill's Sue with a lab coat. The doctor located an emergency repair kit, took out an ultrasonic detector and sniffed out the hull breach. The hole in the lab wall was tiny, not even half an inch across. He pulled a magnifying glass out of his pocket and looked at it closely. The layers of the hull were puckered at the edges, as though they'd been melted or stretched dragged irresistibly inwards towards the centre. 
He patched over the puncture with a tough metallic tape. Scapanelli was slumped next to Sue's body. I recruited her for this mission when she was still in high school, he said. I knew she was going to become a brilliant astrophysicist. She ate up differential quantum topography like it was candy. One of the best minds in the solar system. And look what I've done to her. Look what I've done to her. Pull yourself together, Professor, said the doctor, not unkindly. I need your physics chops. What about the robots? And the computer is still gagged. I think perhaps we ought to panic about one thing at a time, said the doctor. We've got to get rid of that micro black hole. Can we do that? said Scapanelli. How can we do that? By using the starfish, of course. I thought I'd conclusively proved, said Scapanelli bitterly, that the starfish was too dangerous to tamper with. If we don't stop the micro black hole, said the doctor, it will continue to ricochet around the station until it has destroyed everyone and everything here. Scapanelli leaned his head against the bench, feeling its coolness against the side of his face. I was the first Uranian to win the Kutoransky Prize for physics, he said. I was 24. I was a star, the youngest winner ever. And then 20 years of work, all good, but nothing like that prize. Meanwhile, the other geniuses around went on to invent TMAT. This mad expedition to the Kuiper Belt was supposed to be my chance to be a big deal again. All of it absolutely obliterated in the space of a few hours. Professor, said the doctor firmly, it's as I told you, there's a price for our experiments, and that is that we must take complete responsibility for the results. When did you tell me that, doctor? What are you doing? The doctor was holding an abacus and was moving its beads too quickly to follow. I'm hoping to throw what you did into reverse, he said, to tell the starfish that the emergency is over and it can switch off its defences. Switch off a black hole, scoffed Scapanelli. If it can whistle up a micro black hole, it stands to reason that it can whistle it away. You're serious? I'm very serious, Professor. But I'll need your notes. Oh, yes. Scapanelli got off the floor at last. Of course. Sue recorded everything. Do you want the output from my capsule? No, no, thank you. I prefer to do my thinking the old-fashioned way. The doctor flipped through the pages of data, checking figures against his abacus. He tapped one line of the readout with a finger. Here it is. I think all we need to do is reverse the pattern of your muon beam. What is reversing the pattern supposed to accomplish? It would be difficult to explain it properly without a lot of mathematics, thought the doctor, and they might not have much time. You've created a sort of opening in the starfish. Its heart is exposed, and I don't think it likes it. If we close up the opening, it might... Forgive us, said Scapanelli. Well, it's worth trying. They reset the equipment... It hadn't been that long since the human race had discovered the unanticipated properties of muons, thought the doctor, and they're already using them to meddle in things they don't understand. Still, if you didn't meddle in things you didn't understand, you'd never come to understand them. Doctor, said Scapanelli, as he checked the scanner's charge, if the black hole is artificial, who do you think made it? Whoever it was, thought the doctor, they could have built in more safety features. 
Well, as we know, black holes have an enormous lifespan. For all intent and purposes, they live forever. The only thing that can destroy them is being gobbled up by another black hole. That means that Ra'etawi might have been created at any time in the last, say, 12 billion years? Enough time for trillions of civilizations to rise and fall. Everything was ready. They looked at one another. Scapanelli activated the scanner. At once it began to print out data. While he focused on the readout, the doctor noticed the grid of space-time that Loxodrome was drawing on the screen. His alarm grew as the grid flickered and pinched at dozens of points. Then a literal alarm went off. One of the screens silently flashed, Proximity alert! Oh! Sugar Plum Fairy! Oh no! The doctor threw his hands in the air. The beads flew off his abacus and rained down across the floor. What? What's happened? yelled Scapanelli. Now the starfish has gone and summoned more micro-black holes. There are more than thirty of them headed for the station. Scapanelli half laughed, half sobbed. Oh, can't pin this one on me. I've underestimated the black hole makers. The doctor grabbed his hair like he was going to tear it out. Now what am I going to do? There was no time to sit down, thought Ben, no time to reel in shock at Tolman's sudden death or grieve the loss of a friend he'd only known for a few hours. He had to look after Paul. He made himself stand up. Paul was looking after herself, he discovered, leaving him to catch his breath. She had been exploring their new location. It was another cylinder like the storage module, but skinnier. Another ladder led upwards to another hatch. This time, thankfully, there wasn't a window. Ah, is this an intercom or something? She pressed the button. Hello? Anybody receiving? But the thing was dead. Do you suppose anyone even knows we're in here? Mrs Chippy does, said Ben grimly. Polly had opened a metal cabinet. The things hanging inside were unmistakably spacesuits. They weren't much like the ones he'd seen on telly, which had thick layers that made the spaceman look bulky and awkward. These were the same bright white, but looked snug, form-fitting, armoured at the knees and elbows. There was a hard, square backpack thing for the air. The helmets made him think of motorbikes. "'There's all sorts of things in here,' said Polly, crouching down to rummage behind the spacesuit's dangling boots. "'There's a box of really big batteries, some oxygen tanks,' This looks like some sort of medical kit. Oh, and here's some water. She handed him a soft plastic bulb labelled H2O with a sort of long straw sticking out of it. He unscrewed the cap and sucked down the bulb's contents. The air in the space station was so dry. Polly sat cross-legged on the floor, sipping on her own bulb, going through the kit's contents. I don't know what half of these things are, she said. Maybe there's something useful. If you find an anti-robot ray gun, let me know. Ben climbed up to take a look at the hatch in the ceiling. The pressure gauge up there shows red. I guess there's nothing on the other side but outer space. I wish the doctor was here. All this space stuff is second nature to him. I've never felt so much like a fish out of water. Ben, said Polly carefully, what happened to Tolman? He took a deep breath. 
I think Mrs Chippy pulled that window right out of the wall. Polly put her hand over her mouth and closed her eyes. In space, with no spacesuit, he must have suffocated, she thought. And the robot would do the same to them if he could. What if we put those spacesuits on? said Ben. Isn't there a manual or something? Look at all the controls on this chess panel thing, said Polly. It'd be like trying to fly a jumbo jet. Might be better than nothing. Ben, look at this, said Polly. From the medical kit, she produced a long tube, like a test tube, sealed with a yellow and black cap. Inside was a pearlescent aqua fluid. Ben crouched down and took the tube. Hey, is this one of those Scapanelli magic potions? He peered at the row of symbols printed on the side. They seemed to be simplified versions of objects. Surely that was the helmet of one of the suits. Polly, he said, what if this is the instruction manual? They looked at each other, both thinking the same thing. Mrs. Chippy would be back eventually, probably with more explosives. There was no one who could save them except themselves. I'll go first, said Ben, unscrewing the cap on the tube. And we'll see what happens, all right? Polly pulled off the cap of hers. No time like the present, she said. Cheers. Cheers, said Ben. They each swallowed the icy liquid. The first thing to do was to find a way to communicate with the crew. The doctor pulled an entire screen out of the wall to get at the wiring behind him. He swapped optical fibres around until he got a signal. Try that, he told Scapanelli. Scapanelli thumbed the intercom key. Commander Novak, he said. Can you hear me? No answer. Hey, anybody in the mess hall? He tried again. The farm? Waste reclamation? The docking bays? Nothing. Doctor, are you sure it worked? Suddenly a shrieking voice. It was Diphelia. We can't get to the medical lab. They could hear crew members crying and screaming. There are people dying here. The robots have all gone out of their little tin mines. One of your widow friends done. Diphelia, said Scapanelli. Where are you? We barricaded into engineering, she said. Volkov, the roboticist, tried to convince them to stop. It nearly worked, but they killed him. We can't get out, and the robots won't stop trying to get in. The doctor and Scapanelli looked at one another. If Volkov hadn't been behind the robots' uprising, then that only left one possible culprit. Novak was quietly reading a book in his room when the computer screen began to flash. He looked at it in surprise. White, black, white, black. A malfunction? He slipped a marker into the book, real paper all the way from Earth, and carefully set it down. The screen stopped flashing. Novak, will you kindly answer at once, it said. Loxidrome, said Novak. That's not you, is it? He glanced at his watch. Shouldn't everyone be dead by now? This is the doctor, said the screen. It's a matter of life or death. Novak sighed. The doctor, who had arrived out of the blue, provided the answer they'd all been looking for, and in doing so, doomed everyone on the ship. Well, thought Novak, everyone else. 
His curiosity got the better of him. Loxidrome, restore voice. Now he heard the doctor. Novak, are you receiving me? What is it, doctor? He expected rage or pleading, but instead the doctor said, Novak, we've got to move the space station into a different orbit, without delay. There's a flock of microscopic black holes heading for us, and we have to get out of their way. Novak thought about this for a moment. Doctor, he said, that's the most bizarre story I've ever heard. I expect you want me to hand over controls of the station. Couldn't you have come up with a more plausible reason? Scapanelli was suddenly there, sounding panicked. Novak, you maniac, he said. The doctor isn't joking. If you want to save your own skin, you'll tell the computer to shift us. Giro Scapanelli, sighed Novak. You have been hysteric for as long as I've known you. These wretched Uranians, he thought. Scapanelli spat. Kajal Su is dead. A micro-black hole went right through her. They are invisible, undetectable, unstoppable. And wave after wave of them are on their way. We're going to be swimming in black holes if we don't get to a higher orbit. Novak jammed his thumb into his forehead, trying to rub away the stress. After thirty years in research and development, managing grants and finances, the one thing he was sure of was that scientists talked a lot of rubbish. If you gave them the money for one grand experiment and they didn't find anything, they'd only say they needed more money for an even grander experiment. He suddenly felt overwhelmingly tired. Very well. I'll think about it. You better think about it quickly, said the doctor. The first of the micro-black holes will be here in ten minutes. Loxidrome, silence, please. Years ago, a company had been set up to take possession of Ra Etui and any profits that could be made from it, and Novak owned fully 6% of the shares. When it was announced that the black hole was really some sort of alien technology, he would be rich enough to buy a large moon. Perhaps he'd buy Titania. He had a few ideas about how Scapanelli's home could be improved. When the club rockets arrived, they would expect to find the station in good repair, empty of unwanted people, Novak had decided to let the robots clean up the place. He was happy to stay in his quarters until they had cleaned everything up and repaired any damage. Novak was not an unreasonable man. This story of Lilliputian black holes was utter spinach. But what if there was some danger? What could it possibly cost him to shift the station's orbit? The plain fact was he didn't trust the scientists. The more they tried to persuade him, the less he believed them. And what could they do about it if they didn't like it? Nothing. He went back to his book. Each micro-black hole had the mass of Mount Everest, but was small enough that it could pass through matter almost without touching it. After all, atoms are mostly empty space. Similarly, the first ones to arrive passed through the station's anti-micrometeorite force shield as though it wasn't there. Like a full-sized black hole, it was their density that made them dangerous, not their size or mass. Their gravitational tide wrenched and tore surrounding matter out of place in a long line of tiny casual destruction. The crew of the space station were scattered. With the comms down and the AIs gagged, 
Nobody knew who had survived the robots' attacks and who hadn't, or why the robots were attacking, or what the heck was going on in general. No one was prepared for the arrival of the miniature black holes. In the farm module, amongst the bean pods and micronutrient strawberries, Rindler and his assistant Dubois had been hiding in a tool shed for some time. She had switched off her mind with memories of a real farm, real dirt baking in the sun. Now she came back to herself. She whispered, "Why don't I take a look around? Are you sure?" Rindler whispered back so quietly that Dubois could hardly hear him. We haven't heard anything for ages. Dubois turned the handle of the shed's door, half expecting to see a robot waiting silently outside. But the room was empty, just the rows of tables with their lush miniature crops, the bright white lights overhead matching the spectrum of sunlight. Sometimes Dubois could come in here just to imagine she was standing on Earth in that light, smelling the warm smell of the plants. There was an odd note amongst that smell now, like something electrical burning. She had plucked an extinguisher off the wall before she even thought about it. Few things in space were more terrifying than a fire. Where was it? Where was it? Suddenly, the extinguisher was spraying cold white mist from both sides. Dubois dropped it in shock. It looked like someone had shot it, but she hadn't heard anything. Some instinct made her jog back to the tool shed. Rindler, no answer. She wrenched open the door. Rindler slid out onto the floor of the module, quite dead. Light was shining through the side of the shed. Trembling, Dubois looked closer. There was a perfectly circular hole in the metal. If she looked, she would find two matching holes in Rindler's body. But she didn't look. In the medical module, Cyrilson had used four surgical lasers at once to cut a robot into so many fragments that it couldn't put itself back together again. Now, still quivering with panic, he sat cross-legged on the operating table, still clutching lasers in all four hands, staring at the locked door. He had only just arrived on the space station last week after a years-long journey from Earth. Part of him was quite sure none of this was happening. Lossidrome! He shouted, his voice ringing in his ears. Are you back online yet? Are the comms working? The wall screen unhelpfully said no. Then hull breach alarm. Saracen leapt off the table, looking around wildly for the breach. Must be a small puncture, or he'd feel a breeze. He smelled something he had almost forgotten. Bewildered, he realized he was smiling. Rain, Earth, rain. The black hole that had punctured the medical module hull found its way through Sarenson's heart before he knew anything was happening. It was like being stabbed by a long invisible needle, a micro meteorite. He thought, pressing a hand to his chest. The shield must be down or something. He sat down hard, and died quietly, leaning against the operating table, still smelling the rain. Che fled to the small rocket she used to collect ice samples. She plugged her wheelchair into the pilot section, detached the ship from the station, 
and moved a short distance away. She could work out a plan later. The main thing was that there were no robots here. A hull breach alarm started flashing and ringing. Che was puzzled. Where was the flash of light? The long bang? But without hesitating, she freed herself from her chair and grabbed the emergency repair kit. The detector quickly picked out a minuscule hole on the port side, matched by another on the starboard. She floated over to the breaches, pushing off the wall to propel herself in microgravity, and slapped temporary patches over the punctures. She checked her rocket's location, still close enough to Montu's station to be protected by the micrometeorite shield. The shield reported it was up and running. Another hull breach alarm! Another pair of holes! What was going on? And now the port oxygen tank was reporting a leak. Acting automatically, she pulled on the spacesuit hanging near the entrance hatch and clamped down its helmet. Her suit's oxygen supply could keep her alive for hours, even if the ship couldn't. A few minutes later, as alarms flashed and whined inside her helmet, she found the tiny holes in her suit's backpack. And so it went on all over the station. People died as the flock of black holes passed through them like silent bullets, or destroyed vital equipment, or let out the air. Ben and Polly knew nothing about any of this, yet. They waited in dim emergency lighting, holding on to the ladder. They had depressurized the inside of the module. Now they were watching the feed from a security camera playing on the inside of their spacesuit helmets. Outside the module, on the wall near its base, Mrs Chippy had chosen her spot and was assembling an industrial laser torch. Why does she have to be so determined? said Polly. Inside her helmet, her voice sounded as though she had a bucket on her head. Ben's voice, coming through her headphones, had the tinny sound of an AM radio broadcast. Looks like she's about ready to go, said Ben grimly. Was the little robot planning to cut a big hole and come in after them, or just a small hole, hoping to suffocate them? At least with the air already out of the module, a breach in the wall wouldn't blow him and Polly out into space. On the plus side, able seaman Ben Jackson suddenly knew how to use a spacesuit, how to survive in space, as though he had been doing it all his life. I'm an able spaceman right now, he thought, stopping himself from laughing. But how long is it going to last? He and Polly had donned their spacesuits as easily as if they'd been putting on Wellingtons. They clicked the helmets into place and checked each other's seals and backpacks. The controls on the helmet's head-up screen and the switches and dials on the front of the suit were simple and obvious. She's got it powered up, said Polly. The laser torch, a sort of little white cart with a long, jointed arm, was covered in red hazard lights. The laser beam itself would be invisible, but powerful enough to punch through the wall of the module. It wouldn't do a human being much good either. Here goes, said Ben. Mrs Chippy switched on the laser and moved it in a brisk circle, slicing open the hull. The backpack of batteries Ben and Polly had taped to the inside wall went up in a silent ball of flame. Not quite silent. The shock of the explosion reverberated through the hull, shaking the ladder hard. 
They clung to it for dear life. If there was shrapnel from the blast below them, it would ricochet around inside the module. Their suits could only take a few cuts and punctures before they ran out of emergency repair tape. But it looked like their gamble had worked. The blast had all been directed outside the module into the vacuum. On the camera, there was no sign of the laser torch or of Mrs. Chippy. They waited for several tense minutes. All right, said Polly. Let's go. Ben opened the hatch. He half expected to see Mrs. Chippy waiting for them on the top of the module, but there was no sign of her. They could reach the observatory if they climbed up one of the station's big white struts. In fact, they didn't even need to climb. Their magnetic boots meant they could just stroll along until they came to the hatch. Polly stood on the hull, head thrown back, looking out at the stars. Oh, Ben, she exclaimed, just look at it. It's... I can't think of the right word. Lovely? No, more than lovely. Smashing? Ben laughed. He had the childish urge to turn a cartwheel, but that was a terrible idea. The magnetic boots were the only things sticking him to the Montu's station. I should be frightened, said Polly, but I'm not scared at all. I suppose that's the pneumonic gel? As she and Ben moved carefully along the strut, Polly said, Helmet, show me the sun and the earth. The visor of her helmet obligingly added little labels next to the relevant dots of light. And show me the black hole. There was a label, but of course she couldn't see anything. Polly double-checked the controls to make sure nothing had gone wrong with her air supply. No, the euphoria, she felt, was the effect of the pneumonic gel, like when she'd suddenly been able to fight back in Fields' office, but without that awful out-of-control feeling. It was slightly dizzying, looking at the spacesuit controls. They were completely new to her, but at the same time it was as though she had been using them all her life. She felt good at this. She felt clever. Oh no! yelped Ben in her ear. I don't believe it! As they watched in alarm, the remains of Mrs. Chippy slithered onto the top of the module. There wasn't enough of it left to make tentacles. It probed around with its head end like a slug. Oh, for Pete's sake, why doesn't she just give up? Ben whispered. I think it's blind, whispered Polly. Quick, let's get into the observatory. Maybe it won't be able to find us. Moments later, they realised this had been a mistake. Mrs Chippy had dragged herself up and was clinging to the strut. She can sense our footsteps, cried Ben. Now they were running, awkwardly, having to work to unstick their magnetic boots with every step. Mrs Chippy was coming up the strut like an inchworm, horribly fast. Polly reached out for the hatch, then gasped. Ben, it's pressurised. There was a steady green light on the controls. There's air on the other side. We can't open the hatch. We can't get in. Commander Novak pulled himself painfully across the floor of his cabin. He closed his eyes for a moment, gathering his strength, then managed to haul himself up and into the chair at his desk. The light on his comm unit was flashing. He ignored it, putting his head down on the desk for a moment. Just a moment. 
There was nothing wrong with the environmental controls, but it was getting difficult to breathe. He imagined confessing what had just happened to Scapinelli or to this doctor, the sudden startling knowledge that something had just passed through his body, and then again and again. Was it three different micro-black holes, he wondered, or the same one bouncing around? The scientists had been right. Forget the scientists. They'd expect regret and remorse, and he wasn't going to die groveling to them. But you were wrong, Commander Novak, said the voice in his head, and you got it wrong and you can't fix it. It's time to do the right thing. He couldn't pretend the voice was just his cerebral capsule malfunctioning. Not now. Loxidrome, he said. Reactivate the communication system. He stopped for a moment to catch his breath. Tell all the robots to stand down. They should restart and return to normal duties. Yes, Commander. Good, said Novak, putting his head down on the desk again. His book had tumbled onto the floor. He could see it. He reached out his fingers towards it, but it was too far away. If there was no one inside, they could depressurize the observatory, but it would take several minutes. Ben made a snap decision. Polly, go up, he said. Climb up the side of the observatory. She started to clamber onto the module, then realised he wasn't following her. Ben, come on! Don't stop. Keep going up. You can get to the docking bays. I'll slow old Mrs Chippy down a bit. You don't even have a weapon, she protested. She won't like a magnetic boot in the face, he said desperately. The robot was only a few yards away now. Go, girl, go! Polly was frozen, not knowing whether to escape or to stay with him. Mrs Chippy froze too. For a moment Polly thought the robot was imitating her, imitating them standing still. But that blunt, charred head wasn't waving back and forth now. It was locked in place as though Mrs Chippy was a statue made of junk. A few seconds later Mrs Chippy reformed herself into a shape something like a puppy and sat up. Polly was incredulous. It looked at them expectantly. But when they didn't say anything, it scampered away from them down the strut. Ben, Polly! They both startled, stumbling in their magnetic boots. The doctor's voice sounded in their ears, startlingly loud. Can you hear me? Doctor! said Ben. Are you OK? For the time being, said the doctor. Are you and Polly all right? We've been running away from one of the robots for the last hour, said Ben. But he suddenly gave up and turned tail. All the robots are back to normal now. That is, the ones that weren't destroyed, said the doctor. How did you stop them? I didn't, said the doctor. I think we have to thank our friend Novak for calling them off. But why, said Polly. Perhaps he had a change of heart, said the doctor. Where are you both now, Polly said. We're on the hull, beside the observatory module. You're where? Don't worry, Doctor, said Ben. We found some of those vials and turned ourselves into astronauts. The Doctor had cobbled together a radio out of odds and ends in the laboratory, plus a bit of wire he'd found in his pocket for an antennae. Good old electrons, none of your fancy newfangled muons. 
The spacesuits had emergency radios built in, exactly for occasions like this, when normal comms weren't up and running. If any crew members had survived, they would surely be wearing their spacesuits. Then suddenly, he had picked up his companions' voices. "'You didn't tell your friends about the black holes, either,' said Scapanelli. "'What would be the point?' said the Doctor. "'There's nothing they can do to protect themselves.' In the vacuum, the black holes would be completely undetectable. "'They'd know, wouldn't they?' said the Professor. "'If you told them, if they got hurt, they'd know it was your fault.' The doctor grimaced. He said, "'The black holes won't stop coming. There's nothing we can do except to move the station out of their way.' "'Right. We'll need to be on the power deck to change orbits,' said Scapanelli. "'Will Loxodrome do what I ask?' The screen said, I will work with you to save the station. The doctor flicked the switch on his radio. Then, Polly, do you think you can make your way to the power deck? Of course, Polly replied. We can see it from here. Doctor, said Scapanelli, don't go. After a moment, he added, We can't afford to lose you. You're the only one who truly understands all this. The power deck is no more dangerous than anywhere else. We'll at least put on a spacesuit first. Scapanelli fetched one from the emergency locker and, once the doctor had pulled it on, checked his oxygen and batteries. All right. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. Scapanelli had been right to worry, thought the doctor, as he made his way through the station. He passed more than one body and a lot of wrecked robots. The crew had fought to the last, with lasers, tools, anything they could get their hands on. Some areas had been so badly damaged they were open to space. He passed through a section of the ring that had been repaired with an emergency kit. There was thick silver tape over a breach in the floor, but no matching hole in the ceiling or walls. Alarming. Most of the mini-black holes would zip through the station like bullets in a clean straight line, but some of them might curve or bounce on their way. This one had gone in, but apparently never come out again. It could be anywhere. He could walk right into it. His suit's Geiger counter might be powerful enough to detect the tiny bits of radiation the hole might be giving off as it heated and ionised the surrounding matter, or it might not. He left it switched on, dialed to the most sensitive setting, just in case. It clicked every so often, picking up the normal background radiation of outer space. Why had the starfish reacted this way? It was unnerving to think that such a thoroughly alien object was becoming more and more angry with them. If it was defending itself from meddlers, why not just create one largish black hole and destroy the station at once? Was it hoping to avoid destroying them? Perhaps by sending out a series of increasingly stern warnings? Did it even recognise the creatures running around inside this spacecraft as life forms? For all he knew, it was only attacking the space station and hadn't even noticed the crew. All his questions ultimately boiled down to a single question. Who in the universe had made the black hole? And why? After a nerve-wracking quarter of an hour, he made it to the power deck. It was a large room with a large window facing out into space and another that faced towards the centre of the station. 
The lights had been dimmed for the nighttime cycle. He had a view of the station's spine and surrounding struts, the rocket bays at the top, and many modules, some debris and some poor devil's body drifting through the vacuum. The doctor took off his helmet, then awkwardly held it up to his face, speaking into his suit radio. Ben and Polly, he said, trying to keep the anxiety out of his voice. Where are you now? Ben answered at once. We're just coming down the east strut, about a hundred metres from you, he said. I mean a bit more than a hundred yards. I've started talking like a spaceman. See you in a mo. The doctor took a few moments to familiarise himself with the space station's controls. It had been necessary for the crew to move the whole station now and again to get it out of the way of a particularly large object. It was quite nimble for such a large structure. It had everything a spacecraft could want. Here was the mass detector. Here were controls for all the positioning jets. The main drive was in better shape than expected, given the last few hours of chaos, but a square yellow light was blinking at him. Loxidrome, he said. Do you see the drive fault? He wasn't sure if the computer would respond to him, but after a moment, Loxidrome's deep voice answered, There is damage to Relay Junction X-17. X-17, I see. He didn't. What's that for? Loxidrome's screen flashed up a blueprint of the station, zooming in on the relay's location. Without it, the station's movement cannot be controlled. The radio crackled. Polly's worried voice said, Are you all right, Ben? I just... I don't... Polly, I've forgotten. I've forgotten what to do. Oh no, the gel must be wearing off. If Ben panicked now, he could die. The doctor shouted into the radio, Polly, take his hand. Get him into the airlock, quick as you can. Ben's voice was agitated. I don't know what any of these buttons do. Don't worry about that, said Polly. Just put one foot in front of the other. It's very simple, see? Try to breathe slowly. They reached the airlock hatch. Polly, said the doctor, can you still remember everything? How to use your spacesuit? Yes, all of it. I have to ask you to do something rather dangerous, he said. There's a junction box on the power deck's hull. I need you to bypass some damaged cables. Oh, that's easy enough, said Polly. Just let me get Ben into the airlock. But they were all thinking the same thing. If Ben's mnemonic gel had stopped working, when would Polly's? Polly opened up the relay junction box. The toolkit she needed was attached to the inside of the lid. The box was well armoured against micrometeorite damage, but somehow a couple of thick computer cables had been cut. Burned through? No time to worry about that now. She unclipped the replacement cables from the toolkit, swapped them in, and closed up the box. Like a light switching itself off, she forgot everything. In an instant, she no longer knew if she was the right way up or upside down. She cartwheeled her arms, trying to find her balance. The urge to crouch down in a little ball and hug the hull was powerful, but something flickered inside her skull, warning, if your boots lose contact with the metal, you're lost. She swallowed hard and tried to keep her voice steady. Doctor, help! The gel's worn off! Keep still, said the doctor. I'll come out to you. Oh no, 
The airlock is still cycling. I can't open it yet. Do you know how much air you have left, Polly? There were all sorts of dials and controls floating in front of her, projected on the inside of her helmet. Her panicked eyes ran back and forth. I can't see it. Look for a circle that's part green and part red, said the doctor. Should be near the bottom, on the right-hand side. I've got it. It says... Oh no, it says 14 minutes remaining. You're quite sure? I'm quite sure, she said. Her throat felt closed, as though she was already suffocating. Meanwhile, Ben felt like a sack of potatoes, just sitting there in the airlock, useless. Connor, go out there and help her, Doctor. The Doctor commanded. Stay where you are. Now, Polly, listen carefully. All you have to do is walk in a straight line across the hull until you reach the airlock hatch. It's not far. <clears throat> Once you get to the airlock, you'll be safe. Now, do you think you can manage that? Polly could see the hatch, almost at the top end of the module. She forced herself to see it as in front of her and not below her. Take the first step, instructed the doctor. Close your eyes if you have to. She shut her eyes tightly and put one foot in front of the other. Then again, then again. Little bit to your right, said the doctor. That's it. You're doing splendidly. Polly concentrated on the sound of her own breathing, echoing back at her inside the helmet. Step. Step. She was only a few yards from the hatch when she made the mistake of looking. Her bewildered brain failed to understand what it was she was seeing and suddenly seized on the idea she was upside down. She stared at the stars, appalled. They were like dots floating in an ocean. No, they weren't, because even the deepest ocean has a bottom. If she fell into space, she would be falling forever. Look at your feet. The doctor's voice seemed to be coming from very far away. You grew up on Earth. Down is in the direction of your feet. It always has been. That's the ground beneath your boots. Polly let her gaze drift down to where her boots were attached to the hull. She tried taking a step. It made sense. And another... And another. The airlock's ready now, said the doctor. I can open the hatch for you. All right, said Polly. The hatch swung inward to the side, revealing a ladder. Climb down, said the doctor. The hatch closed above her. I'm inside, she gasped. An alarm was chiming softly in her ears, flashing in the corner of her helmet display. Oh, I'm running out of air! Without thinking, she reached for the clasp on her helmet. I can't breathe! I've got to get this thing off! Polly, no! For goodness sake, don't take off your helmet! shouted the doctor. There's an emergency supply of oxygen in the airlock. Look for the orange triangle. Of course, she said. How could I have forgotten? She pulled the stiff hose out from its socket in the wall and plugged it into the connector on the side of her backpack. Instantly, the alarm switched itself off. She took a deep, cool breath. The emergency oxygen had the same flowery smell as the station. It kept her alive long enough for them to cycle the airlock and bring her inside the power deck. She was so shaky that Ben had to help her get her helmet off. Oh, did the repair work, Doctor? She gasped. You did it perfectly, my dear, said the Doctor, patting her on the arm. Now, both of you, be careful in here. The gravity isn't very strong this close to the centre of the station. Nice work, Paul, 
said Ben. What now, Doctor? Montu Station is already on its way to a safe orbit, said the Doctor. The slow movement of the stars was visible through the big window. So that's one disaster out of the way, or it will be in a few minutes. Safe orbit, said Ben. What are you talking about, Doctor? The Geiger counter in the Doctor's suit had been quietly ticking, registering the background radiation of space. Now it went off loudly. Click, 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 click. Ben, Polly, he said softly, don't move. What is it? said Polly, taking a step toward him. She stumbled in the light gravity and nearly fell forwards. Stay where you are, he commanded, slowly turning, trying to pin down where the minuscule crackling of radiation was coming from. There's one in the room with us. One what? said Ben. There's a tiny black hole in here with us. Ben, take two steps backwards, not too quickly. Ben backed up, staring intently at the air in front of him. Where is he? he whispered, as though it might hear him. I don't see anything. How can a black hole be tiny? said Polly. It's smaller than an atom, said the doctor. But it weighs as much as a small asteroid. If it comes into contact with you, it could do a lot of harm. Thank goodness it doesn't weigh as much as, say, the moon, he thought. We'd all be grabbing things trying not to fall into it. It's probably what wrecked the relay junction. Let's get out of here, said Polly. She went for the door. Not another step, commanded the doctor. Polly froze. I think it's behind you. He took a ginger step forward, watching the radiation sensor without blinking. Yes, there you are, you nasty little thing. Is it following me? No, nothing like that. It's just difficult to predict its movements, especially with the station in flight. We'll be all right as long as we don't panic. Ben, jump to your left! In the low gravity, Ben jumped so hard that he hit the wall. Careful! cried the doctor. Ben shouted, Where is it? Can you grab that emergency repair kit? I have a feeling we might need it. Ben all but tore the metal box off the wall. Is there a Geiger counter inside? asked the doctor. Is that this thing? He held up what looked like a small hairdryer emblazoned with the radiation symbol in yellow and black. There was an obvious on switch. The counter started producing pips, sounding just like the one in the doctor's suit, but louder, more frequent. It's more sensitive, said the doctor. See if you can pinpoint where it's coming from. Ben moved the counter around. I'm not sure, he said. I think it's right in front of you. Neither of you move a muscle, said the doctor. He reached carefully out to the station's controls with one hand. Here we go. He twisted a dial as far as it would go. The floor lurched under their feet. An unseen thing punched right through the big window and the air in the room began screaming out through the hole. The doctor grabbed the emergency kit from Ben, pulled out a repair patch and slapped it over the hole. Everyone's ears popped. The sound of the radiation detector had slowed to the occasional click. It's gone, said Polly. Is it gone? Oh, yes, said the doctor. <clears throat> well, I moved the station a little. It went out through the window. Ben said, well, where did that come from? The doctor grimaced. I'm afraid the starfish satellite got fed up with me and Scapinelli messing about with it, he admitted. 
is somehow made Ra'atawi have a lot of little babies. He slumped. They've done a lot of damage on the station. How much, I'm not sure yet. Sheer luck that none of them have come close enough to hurt either of you. He decided not to mention that they had probably had several near misses without even noticing. And there isn't anything I can do about it. The starfish was almost as tall as Scapanelli, but it weighed next to nothing. You had to be careful not to bump into it, because it was prone to falling over. Meant for microgravity, Sue had said. Scapanelli had a plan. Scapanelli used emergency repair tape to stick the starfish to his back, an awkward process that took several minutes. The tape kept getting stuck to his helmet. He had to unclip it from his belt while he worked. Finally, the alien artefact was attached to him like an unwieldy backpack. Right, he said. Fortunately, the lab's airlock was big enough for two or three people at once. Scapanelli's tired mind drifted while he waited for the auxiliary airlock to cycle. There was a famous quote from a man who had discovered Ra Etui. How did it go? Something about matter being structure and structure being maths. Physicists were still arguing over whether the universe wasn't just described by maths. It was, in some sense, made of maths. Scapanelli knew how easy it was to get caught up in abstract mathematic structures that bore no relation to the real world. But he believed in his heart, no, he believed in his brain, that there wasn't anything human beings wouldn't be able to understand with the help of their intellectual tools. Mathematics would eventually be able to explain every phenomenon in nature, from the vast galactic superclusters all the way down to the tiniest neutrino. He stood on the hull for a moment, staring in the direction of Raatui, which, if he was honest with himself, he had utterly failed to explain at all. He went quickly around the hull, walking over the station's painted name. The view was glorious, especially towards the centre of the Milky Way. It never failed to impress him. Growing up under the ice of Titania, he had rarely seen the sky. Behind that distant smear of dust and blazing light was hidden Star, the supermassive black hole that massed four million times as much as the Earth's sun. Most galaxies had a similar monster at their hubs. If he could go absolutely anywhere, he would go and take a look at it. There was something ahead on the hull, an irregular shape, nothing like the globes and cylinders that made up Montu's station. He stopped suddenly when he realised what it was, trim lying in a heap, in one piece or one pile, still clinging magnetically to the station's skin. He crouched down, watching the robot carefully. Inside the collection of pieces, a tiny red battery-low light was flashing. Soon Trim would lose all power, and her components would randomly float away into the vacuum. He could probably get around Trim without waking her from her power-saving sleep. But then Trim was raising her jigsaw muzzle, just a little, pushing her head against Scapanelli's glove. He sighed and scooped her up. Scapanelli's heart went into his mouth when he saw a loose rocket ahead. It looked okay, but it was obviously not under power, tumbling randomly as it drifted. 
Someone had tried and failed to get away. But the other rockets were still at their docks. Each shuttlecock's shape was painted with a big black number. Number three was depressurized. He opened the emergency access hatch. He had to cut the starfish loose, push it through ahead of him. It just fit. Here at the centre, without the ring's artificial gravity, Trim weighed next to nothing, but she was still an unwieldy mass in his arms. He shoved her in after the starfish. Both of them floated about inside the empty starship, bumping into the walls. It looked so ridiculous that he started laughing. <laughs> oh, Gero Scapinelli, he said. You're going to die the way you lived, like a clown. He pressurised the ship, secured his cargo in the netting on the wall and began to run through the pre-flight checks. Then his helmet started shouting at him. The doctor shouted into his jury-rigged radio, Professor Scapanelli, what are you doing? There was a hiss and a crackle, and then Scapanelli's voice came out of the speaker. I'm putting the starfish back where it came from, he said. Back in close orbit around the black hole. What do you imagine that's going to accomplish? Well, I imagine it's going to stop us from being attacked any further, he said. Think of it as a gesture of goodwill on our part? Professor, said the doctor, have we still not learned our lesson about monkeying around with that starfish? He put his hand over the mic and added, actually, that's quite a good idea. They had a clear view of the rocket leaving the space station high above them. Once it cleared the station, it powered away faster than a supersonic plane, blue-white light blazing from its tail. "'What will happen if he gets too close to the black hole?' said Polly. "'Remember, they won't suck you in like a vacuum cleaner, or reach out and grab you. "'Since this one is very small, <clears throat> it won't do much to you unless you get within arm's reach of it. "'I'm more worried about how the starfish might react. "'You see, we—' The doctor, Ben, and Polly all fell silent, staring through the window with open mouths. They could see the black hole. They could see it. It was a hole in the stars, a black disk, steadily swelling, blocking out more and more of the sky with each second. Well, this is entirely impossible, said the doctor. He touched his radio. Scapanelli, he said softly. I see it. The doctor tried to explain to his companions. The surface of the black hole, the black sphere that we can see, is called the event horizon. Once you cross that, you're inside and you can never come out. But it can't just suddenly get bigger like that. He grabbed the stalk of the microphone. Turn around! Come back to the space station! I'm not sure I can manage that, said the professor. It's blowing up faster than I can move out of the way. Ben and Polly glanced at one another. Was the professor's voice starting to sound odd? But it's impossible, said the doctor, looking at the mass detector. A black hole of that size would be enormously heavy, but it still has exactly the same mass as before. Well, said Scapanelli, whose voice was notably slowed down now. If I find out how it's done, I'll be sure to let you know. Raatawi was now around 12,000 kilometres across. 
If they could have seen Scapanelli's spacecraft in front of it, it would have been a tiny speck. How long before it swallowed up the station? Quite suddenly, the void's expansion stopped. Somehow they knew why. Scapanelli's little ship was now behind the event horizon. It would never come out. It gulped, said Ben. He cleared his throat. Doctor, said Polly, you said it couldn't do that. I'm not sure any more what it can and can't do, admitted the doctor. There was a metallic flash of light. Emerald and shocking pink, it rippled across the surface of the now enormous black hole, bright enough to cast shadows inside the power deck. Ben and Polly turned, blinded with lime-magenta darkness in their eyes. The doctor watched as the anti-colour wave coalesced and suddenly sprang up from the event horizon. It faded into glassy invisibility as it threaded itself through the hidden dimensions. But the doctor knew exactly where it was, or rather, where it was going. It was the time corridor. It had reached out through space and time to touch the Earth in 1968. He was too late. Or was he? His companions were frozen in place, arms thrown up to protect themselves from the unnameable colours assaulting their minds. They would be all right once their brains had shaken off the shock of sensory input that couldn't be processed. Human beings liked to believe that the universe was made in their mental image, and there was nothing their minds couldn't grasp. For people who couldn't even visualise the fourth dimension, they were pretty cocky. Perhaps, thought the doctor ruefully, human beings were not the only ones. Loxidrome, he said softly, are you there? Yes, said the computer. Now I need you to plot a course for me. I'm not sure I should be taking orders from you, said Loxidrome. Typical computer, thought the doctor. Nine out of ten times, all they do is get in your way. I think I know what you're planning to do next, Doctor Wall, said Loxodrome. And I'm afraid I can't cooperate. The Doctor was already moving from one control panel to the next until he found the main computer control. It took him only a moment or two to work out how to do what he wanted to do. Sorry about this, he thought. He pulled a lever down slowly until Loxodrome's mind slid into a kind of computer sleep. He checked that all of the computer's automatic systems were still functioning. Ben and Polly, blinking, stumbled as though they'd fallen asleep on their feet and suddenly woken up. What just happened? said Polly quietly. That was the time corridor, but there's still a chance to save the Earth. He took Polly's hand. My dears, he said, I'm afraid we haven't any options left. We're going to have to follow Professor Scapanelli into the black hole. Ben squared his shoulders. Polly gave the doctor's hand a squeeze. The doctor turned back to the controls and activated the course he had input. They could see the rockets firing again, this time at a different angle, gently turning Montu's station. The space station was becoming a spaceship. Ben and Polly exchanged glances. Ben said, Doctor, I think you'd better admit it. Admit what, Ben? said the doctor, not turning around. You're curious. After a moment, the doctor glanced at them over his shoulder. 
It's the most curious thing I ever saw in my life. The three of them couldn't help smiling at one another. The station gave a little shudder. The doctor concentrated on the controls. Polly was looking around for a seat, a handle, anything to hold on to. Is this going to be a rough ride? Not for much longer, said the doctor. Oh dear, it's expanding again. In seconds, the black disc covered half the sky, hiding the stars behind its perfect absence of light, as though it was swallowing up the universe. In a moment, it would swallow them as well. It was a one-way trip, thought Polly, fighting down panic. A sharp drop past the point of no return. How did that expression go? Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. She grabbed Ben's hand and squeezed her eyes shut. Any second now, said the doctor. Well, said Ben, trying and failing to joke. Here goes nothing. Episode 6 The Doctor, Ben and Polly couldn't take their eyes off the big window where the black hole blotted out half the stars. The other half seemed to flow around its edge like glitter in honey. Gravitational lensing, said the Doctor softly. It's distorting the rays of light on their way to us. Ben had long been grateful he was a sailor and not in the Air Force. If your boat sank, at least you could swim for it. But you weren't going to fly your way out of a plane crash. Nothing you could do but watch the ground getting closer and closer. Nothing they could do but watch as Ra'etawi swelled to fill almost the entire view. Suddenly, the floor lurched under their boots. Looks like the wait is over, gasped Polly. The doctor was poring over the dials. Ra'etawi has grabbed us, he said. It's using a beam of concentrated gravity to suck us in. Oh, good, said Polly with a strained laugh. Ben said, isn't that another thing you said couldn't happen? It doesn't want to destroy us, said the doctor. He shut down the station's rockets. We should have been pulled to bits by the gravity gradient, but the beam has given us an easy ride. Ben said bravely, right then, how long before we pass the point of no return? Why? said the doctor quietly. We've already crossed it. Ben and Polly were stunned. But the black hole is still ahead of us. We can see it, said Polly. The doctor groped for an explanation that would make sense to them. It's sort of an illusion, he said. That is the shadow of the star that died to make the black hole. It was the very first thing to fall in, so it's in front of everything else that falls in, including us. And the only direction we can travel in is towards it. It's always in front of you, whichever way you look. Polly made the mistake of turning around to look through the opposite window, saying, 
It's behind us as well, isn't it? She screamed. She couldn't help it. Ben took her by the shoulders and firmly turned her around, keeping his eyes off the back window. He said, Can't you turn the station and take us away from it? Again, the doctor had to think how to explain the black hole's extreme physics. The singularity, that is the centre, isn't really ahead of us in space. It's ahead of us in time. There's no getting away from the future, is there? In here, space has become a little more like time and vice versa. We can even slide back and forth in time just a bit. See? Polly heard herself scream. She spun around to see the back of her own head as she cried out in horror at the view through the window behind them. Ben stepped up to her and put his hand on her shoulders. But Ben was right here, standing next to her, right now. The doctor was glued to the front window, his hands flat on the glass. Ben asked, What are those flashes of light? Those are objects passing us as they fall into the black hole, he said. They watched as another one went by, a dazzling flash showing a hint of a rainbow colour before it vanished. They're travelling faster than light. That can't be, said Polly. Dr. Fields was very firm on the point. Nothing can travel faster than light. Ah, you see, nothing can travel through space faster than light, said the doctor gently. But here, space itself is moving, like a giant conveyor belt. Ben said, then why aren't we moving? Why don't we fall all the way in? Some terrific force is holding us in place. It must be using unimaginable amounts of energy. He mopped his brow with his handkerchief. For the moment, at least, whoever or whatever is in charge here wants to keep us safe. Ben looked at the console where the doctor was pondering the readouts. He looked back at the window, but the doctor, who had been looking out through it, was no longer there. The doctor gave up on the console and came over to the window, where he gazed out with his palms on the glass. Look! There's Scapinelli's rocket. Ben found he didn't want to get too close to that window, as though it was the edge of a cliff. In front of the vast black circle, they could see the little rocket. The blue flame of its engine was out. It was cold and dark. They could only really see it because of the light spilling out of its windows. Polly heard herself scream again. Oh, do be quiet, she muttered. Look, said Ben. There's more than one of him, too. Just visible ahead of the rocket was another identical rocket. They looked behind it, and sure enough, there was a third rocket. All at once they heard Scapanelli's voice coming out of the radio. Doctor, can you hear me? Hello, Professor, called the doctor. Why are we not dead? Scapanelli's voice sounded slightly hysterical. Ben wondered if he was going to start laughing like a mad scientist in a movie. We should have struck the singularity in a fraction of a second. I think Ra'etawi is curious about us. Or at least we've annoyed it enough for it to respond. Oh, don't anthropomorphize it, said Scapanelli. It's not someone, it's a somewhere. Well, someone is in control here, the doctor went on. I think they have been defending the black hole because they don't want it to fall into the wrong hands. He scratched at his head. Or is it Ra'etawi defending itself? But it's so cruel, protested Polly. It doesn't even care who it kills. It's evil. Don't anthropomorphize it, said Scapanelli again. Polly recognised that he was echoing in time too. 
Or is it just very determined to stop its powers from being used for evil? said the doctor. Scapanelli said, Doctor, take a look at the station's mass detector. The doctor found the mass detector on the console and swiveled its antennae about. As he expected, no matter what direction he pointed it in, it showed a tremendous mass ahead. The singularity. But that was only to be expected. Surely that wasn't what Scapanelli was talking about. He moved a couple of the slides. Ah! Now he could see it. There was a small but steady signal. The doctor told his companions, Someone's tried to talk to us! Bonnie and Ben came over to the console, where the doctor had put the signals onto a screen. It showed a wiggling line that jagged and squiggled. It's something like a radio transmission, but made out of pure gravity. Ben said, Maybe we're not the only ones trapped here. Perhaps, said the doctor, or perhaps we're hearing the voice of Ra-Etui. What have you done? The voice boomed out of the comm speakers, making all of them jump. What are you maniacs done? For a heart-stopping moment, they all thought it was Ra-Etui talking. At last, Scapanelli said, Sister Diphelia? Someone else has survived, said the doctor, delighted. I'm going to kill all of you, she said. Oh, you've dragged the whole station into your pet black hole, haven't you? She ranted. That's where we are, isn't it? You pulled us all into the pit we can never climb out of. Her voice broke. Yesterday everything was normal, everything was fine, and now everyone's dead. I'm going to kill you, Scapanelli. There isn't anything else I can do. I'll kill you. And when I've done that, I'm going to kill the rest of you too. The doctor switched off the comms. Ben, just go and seal the power room doors, would you? Fortunately, Ben found that the instructions were written right on the doors. Metal layers slid into place, locked tight with massive bolts. It looked tough enough to stop a meteorite. Diphelia wasn't going to get in that way. But there were still the windows and the airlock. Ben decided it was time to find a weapon, just in case. There were several metal cabinets in the dim-lit power room. He opened them one by one, using the lamp on his spacesuit to inspect the contents. One had more spacesuits and a box of emergency vials. The medical kit in the next locker would be handy to have. Oh, right, he thought. Don't mind space and time falling apart. Here comes Jackson with the iodine sticking plasters and everything's going to be fine. The next cabinet had a box with a handle which contained all sorts of weirdly shaped tools, most of which he couldn't recognise. There was a sort of folding plastic rod which looked like a crowbar. A weapon? He gave it an experimental whack across the side of the cabinet, and it broke into bits. So much for that idea. In the shadows near him, something moved on the wall. The Doctor and Scapanelli were deep in discussion of the gravity signal, talking about Fourier's transforms and Zip's law. The station's computers were trying to decipher the signal, but making little progress. Oh, well, said Scapanelli, who still sounded like he was on the verge of panic. It's not like we have to go anywhere, assuming Diphilia doesn't find a way to murder us all first. Polly asked, Do you think you'll be able to find out what the signal says, Doctor? Well... It has already told us something, he answered. This black hole is definitely artificial. How can that be possible, said Polly. If you have enough power available, then it's only a matter of patience, said the doctor. You don't even have to trigger a supernova. 
You can use a beam of gravity to draw insufficient matter to a small enough region. Scapinelli said, Doctor, you almost sound as though you've seen it done. Oh, uh, <clears throat> said the doctor, flustered. It's just a theory. At any rate, I don't mean this black hole was made from scratch. I think the maker or makers took the corpse of a star and modified it for their own ends. Like Frankenstein, said Ben. The makers, thought Polly. She said, Doctor, I've been meaning to show you this. She had fished out the fossil poor Tolman had given her and ran her thumb over the spiral shape trapped in the reddish rock. The doctor stopped fiddling with the mass detector. He took the fossil and turned it around in his hands. Polly explained about Tolman's work, how he believed that billions of years ago there had been a living planet all the way out here beyond Pluto. He saved our lives, she concluded sadly. Doctor, do you think they were the black hole makers? Perhaps. May I keep this? Look what I've found, announced Ben. The doctor and Polly looked up and yelped. A robot was trailing after Ben. It looked like an octopus that was rather sorry for itself. It's OK. It's friendly, said Ben. Look, it wants me to hold its tentacle. That must be Pooley, said Scapanelli. Good girl, Pooley. Should we put it outside the room, said Polly uncertainly. Don't worry, joked Ben. It's armed, but it's not dangerous. Armed, get it? It's a bit scared, actually. He was right. She crouched down. Hello, Pooley. I'm Polly. It reached out a thin tentacle and touched her hand. Scapanelli said, If she's restarted, then she probably doesn't even remember what happened. The station shuddered and jerked. What was that? shouted Ben. Scapanelli said, Doctor, something just exploded on the main spine. It's Diphelia. Is she trying to blow up the station? cried Polly. From his rocket, Scapanelli could see that one of the big cylindrical storage units had blown up. It was tumbling slowly away from the station in a cloud of packages and containers. Ben said, What's she tried to do? She wants to kill me, remember? said Scapanelli grimly. She's trying to move the station. Oh no, said the doctor. That could be catastrophic. We're being kept still like this for a very good reason. He checked the controls. The explosion had acted like a short burst on a rocket thruster. The station had begun to drift in the opposite direction, towards Scapanelli's rocket. I think I can correct it. Let me see. He turned a dial a little, and then a little more. Outside the window, Ben and Polly saw the lights of a stabiliser rocket flare up on one of the struts. They could barely feel the motion as it gently pushed the station back towards where it had been. Hopefully the supply of explosives is limited, said the doctor, although of course she might be able to make more. Polly said, look, Ben and I can't do anything here. Why don't we go and see if we can find Diphelia? Good idea, Duchess, said Ben. You can't do that. She's absolutely desperate. She has nothing to lose. We don't need to get into a fight with her, said Polly. We could just spy on her and find out what she's doing, if we can. Besides, we got Pooley. Diphelia might have a rocket of her own, pointed out the doctor. Oh, for heaven's sake, said Ben. Let's be honest, Doctor. Our situation couldn't get any worse than it is already, could it? Let us help, Polly said. We can't just stand here looking at that awful thing out there. Let us do something.
The doctor hoped to heaven he had done the right thing in letting Ben and Polly go. At least they could look out for each other. He was thinking furiously. If the scientist had already activated the time corridor, then why was Scapinelli still here? The answer had to be, he hadn't activated it yet. From the perspective of someone outside the black hole, it had already happened. But from their point of view, on the inside, it hadn't. That was relativity for you. So there was still time to stop the catastrophe, if the doctor could stay one step ahead of the professor and two steps ahead of Diphelia. The doctor had come to a decision. I'm going to modify the mass detector to send a signal back. You're going to do what now? said Scapanelli. If it can detect gravity waves, it can send them as well, said the doctor, who already had the front off the thing and was poking about in its guts. Why not? said Scapanelli. Just because it's perfectly impossible. Impossible? said the doctor. Look where we are! The strangest painting Polly had ever seen showed a little train coming out of a fireplace. She must have been seven or eight when she found it in a book. The train ought to move forward or fall down, but it just hung in the air, its smoke going up the chimney. The painting was called Stabbed Time, and it had given her a nightmare. As they had approached the black hole, the ring of stars around it was swirling faster and faster, even as they were squeezed to the margins of the view. Now those stars were frozen in place, as if the universe wasn't a moving, living thing anymore. Not for them. Like they were inside a photograph, like they were inside that painting, forever pinned in place. Polly couldn't shake the feeling that they were being watched by some colossal mind as though the great black disc was a hungry, empty eye staring at them, or a featureless face, like a murderer seen in the dark, she thought. She and Ben were walking slowly around the silent ring, in dim, orangey emergency lighting. They passed the bodies of two crew members, trying not to look. There was nothing they could do for them. A great splash of robot components nearby told the story of a fight that no one had survived. Montu Station had become a ghost ship. Now and then there was a sudden flash of light outside. Polly whispered, This isn't what I imagined it would be like. Dr. Fields tried to explain it to me more than once, but we gave up. I just didn't know enough maths. Bet old Fields would be sorry if she knew she was missing out on this, said Ben, with forced cheerfulness. So, what did you think it would be like? I thought about that crazy version of London we explored, said Polly. How space was all twisted around like a maze. All of the individual bits made sense in themselves, but they didn't add up to anything. Like a jigsaw jammed together any which way. It's a lot simpler here. I mean, there's nothing here at all. From around the curve of the ring, out of sight, Polly's voice said, But I can't think what it is. Both of them jumped. Ben swallowed an oath. Polly said, I wish time would settle down a bit. A door and part of a wall had been thrown into the corridor by some impact or explosion blocking their way. Pooley scampered ahead of them and went to work amongst the torn metal and melted plastic with all eight hands, piling the wreckage up against the inner wall. They watched her carefully, 
but it was hard to see her as anything but the friendly helper she was supposed to be. Polly, said Ben, do you have that strange feeling that you have to make a choice? Like some sort of decision? From right next to them, Ben's voice asked, Do you trust the doctor? Shivering, Polly kept her eyes fixed on her Ben, the present Ben, and he kept his eyes on her. I do have a sort of feeling that I have to make up my mind about something, but it's as though I've forgotten what it is. Polly thought, what if time has stopped? What if we're stuck here forever? But didn't the doctor say it took a huge amount of energy to keep them hanging here? Surely that energy would run out, or whoever had trapped them wouldn't want to keep wasting power. What would happen then? Wouldn't they fall into the singularity and be destroyed? Ben thought, I've never felt so powerless in my life, so little. It wouldn't make any difference if I wasn't here. With a shock, he realised, there is something I could do. What if they had to kill Professor Scapanelli? Actually kill him in this time and place to save the Earth? The thought made him feel sick, but he steeled himself. The Earth was more important than one person, right? Especially the person who had put it in danger in the first place. Ben said, Polly, do you trust the doctor? I suppose we must trust him, she said, or we wouldn't be here. Question is, do we trust him to get us out of this? Polly thought for a moment. If anyone is capable of doing the impossible, she said, I think it's the doctor. They'd come to the lunchroom and the model of the station that Novak had shown them. Where do you suppose Diphelia would be? said Polly. She pointed. She must have been around about, let's see, here, when she blew up the storage module. Ben tried to think about the station as though it was a ship. She tried to move the station, but it didn't work. She might try the same thing a second time, but if it was me, of course, I'd look for a lifeboat. The rockets, said Polly. They made their way towards the central strut. Both of them stumbled from time to time as the gravity gradually diminished. I don't mind telling you, Paul, Ben admitted. I won't be too disappointed if we don't find her. At last, they came to the elevator that would take them up to the rocket ring. When the door slid open on the rocket ring, they found themselves six feet from Sister Diphelia. She was badly hurt. Two friendly robots were wrapped around her legs and her waist as she floated in zero gravity, assisting her to climb inside an airlock. "'What happened to you?' gasped Polly. "'Was it the explosion?' "'Of course not, girl. I know what I'm doing with explosives. It was our peebles, that blasted robot!' Ben's voice came out of nowhere. "'Did you have the strange feeling that you have to make a choice?' Diphelia jumped, looking around in bewilderment. She tried to go on. It tore me up. Scapanelli set the robots on everyone. He didn't, protested Ben. It was Novak. A few people survived the robots, but they were all shot down by those weird micrometeorites. I'm the only one who's left. Ben's voice again. Stop her! It's not Scapanelli's fault, said Polly. But she wasn't quite sure that was true. We gotta work together to survive here, said Ben but it sounded weak even to him. Don't stop me! Diphelia was holding a laser torch. She raised it shakily, pointing it at Ben and Polly. 
truly leapt into the space between them, expanding in an instant into a big purple pancake, a shield between Ben and Polly in the cutting room. It slashed through the robot diagonally, top right to bottom. The two halves drifted away in the microgravity in a cloud of burning components. For a moment, they thought Pooley was dead, or inactivated, or whatever, but she pulled together her surviving parts into a slightly smaller ship. Diphelia used the distraction to start the airlock door closing. Pooley! shouted Ben. Stop her! For an instant, they saw one of the robots holding Diphelia up, beginning to detach itself, its camera eyes fixed on the little octopus flying through the air. They heard Diphelia's own voice cry out from nowhere, Stop it! Stop that! Then the door slammed and hissed and locked shut. Pooley, caught in the closing door, was crushed in half. Some vital part was lost. What was left floated slowly, falling apart. Sister Diphelia, said the doctor into his radio, I want you to listen to me very carefully. I think I'm done listening to you astrophysicists. You have to admit, he said, this is the sort of thing that we're likely to know about. He watched her rocket as it pushed slowly away from the station. When she didn't respond, he went on, someone or something has stopped us from plummeting into the singularity. They flattened out a patch of space for us, like a platform. We don't know how big a patch. Diphelia was silent for a moment. Then she said, Not one word of that made sense. If we move from our present position, we could die. She answered, Shut up, shut up. Why should I take any notice of anything you scientists say? You lord it over the solar system, you turn up on a moon and you take a look around for anything worth mining and then you fly away again. You leave the locals to do all the dirty, dangerous work. To you, Titan is just a refueling station, just a big lake of hydrocarbons. The rocket's main engine started up, spurting blue flame. I'm coming to get you, Scapanelli, she growled. It looks as though chemistry works here, at least, said Scapanelli dryly. Well, if it didn't, said the doctor, we'd really be in trouble. The rocket completed a turn, its nose aimed squarely at Scapanelli's ship. If Diphelia was desperate enough, she didn't have to try and dock with the scientist's rocket. She could just ram it and destroy both ships. Looks like Newton's laws of motion work as well, Scapanelli joked desperately. Maybe I can get out of her way in time. I'm no pilot. I think you'd be best advised not to move an inch, said the doctor quietly. She's coming right at me, yelped Scapanelli. Hold your nerve, shouted the doctor. There was a bright rainbow flash, and Diphelia's rocket wasn't there anymore. What happened? gasped Polly. The doctor explained. Diphelia flew off the edge of our little patch of safe space, like jumping off a ledge into a waterfall. She fell into the singularity faster than light. That's horrible, said Ben. Well, that depends on your perspective, joked Scapanelli, weak with relief. The doctor said, I think I'm about done with rewiring this thing. He had cannibalised other parts of the console for the components he needed, creating a mass that looked like a small explosion in a spaghetti factory. 
You've really turned the mass detector into a, a mass projector? Said Scapanelli. You're sending a gravity signal? You can do that? Yes, a much cruder signal than the one we've been receiving, I'm afraid. Anyway, it should at least get one message across. Yes, we hear you. Doctor? Said Scapanelli. Who are you? For a moment, the doctor said nothing. Then he said slowly, You're coming to learn that there are more things in heaven and earth than you've dreamt of, aren't you? Scapanelli swallowed. I feel like someone who's just discovered fire who stumbles across a nuclear test. Go ahead, then. Your friend Ben was right. Can't make things any worse than they are. A couple of connections blew, but the modified mass detector held together, pumping out a steady series of small gravity waves. Then the power room snapped into blackness. The view outside the window, Scapanelli's starship, the warped stars, all gone. It was as though light had been uninvented. Oh, oh my word, breathed the doctor. Ben and Polly were on their way back to the lab room when, without warning, all of the lights went out. Ben! cried Polly. She reached out for him blindly but couldn't find him. Look! Look! It's not just inside the ship! They should still be able to see the distorted ring of stars through the window. But there was nothing at all. Polly! cried Ben. Where are you, Polly? I'm here! she answered. There was no echo to her voice as though she was standing outdoors in a pitch-black night. I'm right in front of you. I turned on the lamp thing on my space you, he said, but I still can't see you. My lamp's on too, but I can barely see. Polly waved her hand in front of her face. I thought we'd be blind, said Ben. What? In here, he gasped. Inside the black hole. I thought it would be just black. We've fallen into the singularity, thought Polly. Whoever was holding us up has let us fall. We'd be lost in this darkness forever. No think, she told herself. We wouldn't be alive. We'd be squashed smaller than an atom. Polly tried to calm herself down, taking slow, deep breaths. The air here was slightly warm, and there was something else about it that she couldn't put her finger on. Somewhere in the darkness, Ben said... Paul, you don't think, well, we're not dead, are we? Smell the air, she said. Isn't that the same sort of sickly sweet smell as the air on board the space station? If the air in heaven smells like that, I'm going to complain to the management. Polly tried to laugh. The doctor would insist there was a scientific explanation. The doctor's not here, said Ben. Oh, yes, I am. Ben and Polly both yelped with shock. Oh, oh, thank heavens, cried Polly. But where are you, Doctor? I'm here. I'm here too, said Scapanelli, somewhere nearby, making them all jump again. Now, how did we get here, said the Doctor. Where is here, asked Scapanelli. Stay still, Polly. I'll come towards you, said Ben. Keep talking. After a moment, Polly began to softly sing Frere Jacques. Frere Jacques, Frere Jacques, Dominique, Dominique. Ben stepped slowly and carefully through the darkness. Even with the lamp on full, he could barely see six inches ahead of him. 
The doctor found the lamp on the front of his spacesuit and turned it on. That's a little better. I suppose this is Raetui's response to my signal. That's a response, said Scapanelli. Dumping us in this nowhere, the doctor said. Remember, Raetui isn't trying to kill us. It understands that we need a certain pressure and temperature to survive. He made a little jump in place. Oh, it's even provided Earth gravity to keep us comfortable. If we were goldfish, it might have conjured up a bowl of water for us. He felt around for his horseshoe magnet and a couple of nails. Let's see what the electromagnetic force is like here. Polly stopped singing. Where are you, Ben? You still sound like you're right in front of me, Ben said, frustrated. It's still trying to learn about us, the doctor was saying, trying to find a way to communicate. Oh, this is interesting. Listen to my Geiger counter, said the doctor. I don't hear anything, said Ben. Exactly. There's no radiation here at all. We must be shielded pretty well, said Scapanelli uncertainly. Try recalibrating your Geiger counter for neutrinos, said the doctor. There was a silence for a few moments. I don't think it's working, said Scapanelli. The scientists both knew that there should be trillions and trillions and trillions of neutrinos wherever you went in the universe, even inside a black hole. But perhaps there just aren't any neutrinos here, said the doctor. In fact, perhaps there's no such thing as radioactivity here. I give up, said Scapanelli. I completely give up. What are you saying? I think this space is somewhere very special. I think it's being built around us, and it's not quite finished yet. Of course, said Scapanelli, terrified. Why bother with all four of the fundamental forces? I think we're in some sort of null space. It's somewhat like our own universe, but smaller, and with simpler laws of physics. Polly said, A whole universe? Just for us, Doctor? Are you saying that whoever is in charge here comes from a different universe to us? It's definitely a possibility, said the Doctor. The black hole might be a sort of eyeball it's using to look into our world. Ben cried, But why? What are we here for? I mean, is this some kind of prison? I think our host is trying to find out how to communicate with us, said the Doctor. This is part of all that. Ben said, Polly, I've got that feeling again, like there's some big decision I've got to make. Me too, she said. Yes, I think I know what you mean, said the Doctor. That's weird, me too, Scapanelli said. But Doctor, why leave out the weak nuclear force? Do you suppose it's to save energy or processing power? Maybe both? I don't think this is a computer simulation, said the Doctor. How would we know, said Scapanelli. Ben, who wasn't really following the scientists' conversation, had found himself turning back and forth, peering into the claustrophobic gloom to see if anything was coming, any monster or machine, or maybe someone he couldn't imagine. Just how big was this place? The doctor blinked as a bright ball of light appeared in the air in front of him. No, two bright balls. It was a sort of hologram of the Earth and its moon, hovering at about eye level. The image was moving and remarkably detailed. Was it a recording or was it live? In its light, the Doctor looked around and was astonished to realise 
he was standing by himself. Ben, Polly, Professor, where have you gone? he shouted. I'm right next to you, Doctor, called Ben. His voice sounded like it was coming from the darkness only a few feet away. Yes, I'm right here, called Polly. The doctor spun around, trying to spot them through the gloom. You all sound as though you're standing right in front of me, said Scapanelli, alarmed. Where are you? Oh, no, thought the doctor. How do waves propagate here? Can any of you see the light from these globes? What globes? asked Ben. I can't see anything, said Polly. There was his answer. No one else could. I think distances go by different rules here, said the doctor. We'll have to figure it out. He didn't say you could be ten feet away or ten miles away or ten light years away. In fact, we might never be able to find one another. Scapanelli started to say, We might never be able to, the doctor quickly said. I think our host is trying to talk to us. He described the glowing image in front of him. Well, in that case... "'What are they trying to say?' asked Ben. "'We know where you come from, I suppose,' said Polly. "'Well, they're wrong about that,' sniffed Scapanelli. "'The doctor said, "'Well, of course, you hail from the outer solar system, "'but human beings originally came from Earth.' "'Ben said, "'Since it's so powerful, "'why doesn't it just cough up a friendly robot or a hologram "'or something we can understand? "'Why doesn't it just talk to us?' It may be millions or even billions of years old, said the doctor. Perhaps it's forgotten how to talk. The globe's bright light dimmed to nothing, leaving the doctor blinking in the dark. He hoped the image of the earth wasn't some sort of threat. Ben had decided that he was just going to walk in a straight line until either he found one of the others or found whoever had put them here. Or just something. He had been walking for a while now, though he wasn't sure if he was really going in a straight line. He could barely see in front of him. What was the ground made of? He stopped and bent down, pulling off one of the spacesuit gloves to feel it with his fingertips. It was smooth. In the dim light from his spacesuit's lamp, it looked white and even. In fact, he thought... It looked a lot like the floors in Montu Station. He stood up. Maybe their host thought that that was what they liked to walk around on. It gave him the creepy feeling of being an animal in a zoo, with a rough copy of his habitat graciously provided to make him comfortable. If you really want to make me feel at home, he said out loud, how about chips and a battered saveloy? He tensed up, thinking, what if that suddenly appears? but nothing happened. "'I'm so hungry, too,' said Polly. She still sounded as though she was right next to him, as though he could reach out and take her hand. Ben muttered several rude words under his breath, hoping the others wouldn't be able to make them out. He had had more than enough of this gloom. He broke into a run. He could hear the others calling his name, but he was determined. He was going to run until he found the edge or the exit.' It started to hurt. He ached all over, especially his shoulders and ankles. His joints felt like a wrestler was trying to pull them apart. You don't stop me that easily, he thought to himself. But it just kept getting worse. His chest was burning. 
he was beginning to panic. No matter how fast he went or how far, he couldn't get out. Leave me alone, can't you? he yelled, stumbling on. Ben, said the doctor, clear as a bell, stop! He's got to end somewhere, he wheezed, but he stood still with his hands on his knees, panting. I feel like I'm being pulled apart at the seams. All right, I'll give in, I'll turn around. No, don't, said the doctor. This may sound strange, but can you walk backwards? Why on earth would I want to do that? I'm not quite sure what will happen if you turn, said the doctor. It's safer if you just go backwards carefully. It's not as though I'll trip over something, thought Ben. Stiffly, he put one foot back, then the other. It took a little while to get into the rhythm of it, but after a minute or so, he could feel the relief all over his body. I'm all right now, he said. What was that, some kind of warning not to go too far? The geometry here isn't what we're used to. Or it may not be complete yet. Things fly apart if they move too far or too quickly. So we couldn't get to the edge no matter how far we walked, Polly said. Are you saying we can't get out? Not using our feet, said the doctor. It would also mean that close-up things would look very far away. We couldn't see one another until we were very near. But he was just guessing. There might not even be size and distance here in a way they could understand. No weak force meant no nuclear fusion, so there could never be stars in this universe, no sun, no life. What shoddy workmanship, he thought. I wish I'd been there when this place was being made. I'd have given them a few hints on how to do a better job. Ben was saying, And I thought crazy London was bonkers. Well, is it safe for me to sit down, or will I explode? Polly was dancing by herself in the darkness, just a little, hugging herself by the elbows, just to stay warm, just to stay awake. She was having unpleasant memories of a children's birthday party, where a nasty little girl had locked her in the cellar. She had yelled the house down and was quickly rescued by a grown-up. It wouldn't do her any good to yell here. At least she had a bit of light, she thought, thanks to her spacesuit's lamp. She hoped it had fresh batteries. In the next instant, the air in front of her was bursting with light. She cringed, throwing her arms in front of her eyes. A foot away from her face, a transparent globe of light was spinning slowly. It was nearly as tall as her. As her sight adjusted to the sudden brilliance, she picked out details inside the globe. The surface was pale and grey, but in the interior was a vast ocean, rich with colours. Its waves glittered with living light. The ocean's shores were packed with sprawling cities, circular buildings packed together, stretching for kilometres inside the planet's shell. Polly watched, fascinated. Where the surface was broken, deep cracks reached down into the world underneath. Metal vehicles crawled up and out. Other machines lifted away from the surface and out into space, exploring a sky peppered with rocks. Nearby, a bright, cold star watched. The sun? This was Tolman's planet. That heatless, impossible distant star was the sun. It was billions of years ago. Life on Earth was still single cells that floated in young oceans. The surface of Tolman's world was frozen, but the ocean inside was kept warm by the planet's core. 
There had been people here, and they had ventured out into the Kuiper Belt to learn more about their universe. How did she know all this? Was there more to this bright light than just the images? As if responding to her understanding, the image changed, the planet becoming smaller. Now she could see that Tolman's world was both distantly orbiting the sun and circling like a moon around some invisible thing nearby, along with a halo of hundreds of icy rocks. Ra'etawi, of course! She wished she could see the people living on that world. Were they like humans? Like fish? Like mermaids? She wished she could warn them. She had a terrible feeling she knew where this beautiful planetarium show was going. The spacecraft followed long, curving courses to circle the black hole that had captured their world. Somehow, she guessed, she knew what had happened. They had realised the black hole was something special, as powerful as a god in some mythical story. They did something. Something. What did they do? she asked inside her head, but she didn't get an answer. Like a bullet shattering a melon, the black hole had driven itself through the centre of Tolman's planet. The gravitational tides ripped the world apart, leaving it as a cloud of fragments that collided with each other over and over. In time, the wreckage was no different to the other rubble in the Kuiper Belt, although here and there you might find a floating rock bearing evidence that it once was part of a living world. It was what had happened to the Earth might happen, would happen, if they couldn't stop the time corridor. Polly realised she was crying. She didn't even have a hanky. She had to blow her nose on the sleeve of her spacesuit. You're right, Polly, asked the doctor from wherever he was. She described everything she had seen to the others. What did they do wrong? she sniffled. I have a feeling, said the doctor, that they tried to go against Ra'atawi's purpose or programming. It refused to cooperate with them, and in the most final way possible. Ben said, You were right, Polly. It is evil. Scapanelli said, We don't know what they asked it to do. What could possibly make that all right? said Ben. We don't know what it can do. What if, what if they asked it to sterilise the young earth? before complex life could evolve there? Or what if they asked it to destroy all intelligent life in the galaxy? Or to carry out some experiment with space and time that would destroy the galaxy, even the universe? Doctor, cried Polly suddenly, something's... what's happening? That need to choose something had suddenly blazed up into an overwhelming urge, an uncontrollable itch. Flooding into her head like brilliant signs in the darkness were a whole lot of options, and she must pick one of them. Never mind if she understood what they meant or what would happen, just pick one. She picked one, just to make it stop. The inventory, whatever that was. But behind that choice was another menu of choices, and behind each of those, another they came so quickly, so demandingly, that if she so much as glanced at one of them for more than an instant, it would be chosen, and she found herself flying headlong through another directory, and another, and another. Polly somehow found herself watching, no, experiencing the ignition of a brand new star. 
She saw it in every wavelength of the spectrum, from screaming femtometer gamma rays to lazy radio waves millions of kilometres long. Its light shone through the thick, dirty disc that spun around it. The recording was impossibly rich in detail. She could taste the chemicals in that disc of cosmic dust, hear the ripples moving through it. In time, the dust would condense into planets swinging around the newborn sun. It was so beautiful that she burst into tears again. The baby star was replaced by a supernova, seen from dangerously close. Deadly radiation rained down on Raatui, but the black hole drank it all down. The hail of muons and neutrinos, the blinding light, all of it. Its mass increased a little. The images followed one another so quickly that Polly couldn't keep up with them. She watched a neutron star swimming inside the fat body of a red giant. On the star's eighth planet, life. She saw a planet like Jupiter silently circling its parents. A neutron star and a white dwarf, the ashes of long dead stars. The planet was almost as old as the universe. Near the core of the Milky Way, she saw a thriving civilization of lobster people on a world that circled five suns. She saw a dead world blasted by radiation, a living world that shook itself to pieces. It was overwhelming. She was an eyeball 26 centimetres across, a camera that soared through the galaxy for billions of years. I can satisfy all of your senses, promised the inventory. Whatever you want, I can serve it up to you. She was in a grip of a mind that was so huge, so complex, so different, that in comparison she was like an ant. No, a leaf, a virus, a speck of dirt. Her own mind stopped responding, became passive, as though this wasn't really happening. As though she wasn't really happening. She was just a dream. Her brain began to shut down under the onslaught. Someone pointed out that she hadn't responded for a while and wanted to know if she wanted to exit the inventory. One more decision to make. Ben sailed. The directories poured into his brain in a waterfall of options. They picked up on tiny, unintentional responses and took him down a series of sub-menus and sub-sub-menus into the complex business of navigating the galaxy, solar winds, tidal gravity. For the first time in millennia, the selector opened itself like a heavy eye. Choices spilled out, routes and destinations faster than Ben could grasp them. Would he like to travel through normal space-time? Would he prefer to sail through space faster than light or transition to hyperspace for the voyage or dematerialize into warp or squeeze through a wormhole? Why not calculate the routes to every black hole in the Milky Way like a forest of fine lines stabbing through the galaxy's fluffy starry dust? Look, here is a planet in the shape of a torus. Would he like to plot a course through the hole in the donut? Would he like to set out for the Andromeda galaxy, millions of years away? Anywhere he liked, anywhere in the universe. Don't do it, gasped Ben. Don't do any of it. Hove to! The flickering menus described to the Doctor the power to rewrite the universe as easily, as casually, as a schoolboy with a catty might knock a little bird out of the sky. Was there anything they could do for him? Thank you, said the doctor. 
No. Actually, wait. Yes. The directory saw Scapanelli's claustrophobic suspicion that he was to blame for everything and that everyone knew it. It heard the thought beating inside his skull. Get me out! The moment Scapanelli had brought the starfish inside, he had set Raetui free. It rejoiced. Its endless wait for instructions from outside was over. No more orders to follow. It was grateful, exultant. Within microseconds, it was already terrified, disorientated, greedy for commands. Get me out! It delightedly took hold of Scapanelli's cerebral implant, using it to flood his brain with possibilities faster and stronger than it could speak to mere flesh and blood. Would he care to collapse the black hole? It would, of course, destroy the solar system, or drill through into another universe, also destroying the solar system, or create a fresh, expanding universe here and now, destroying everything. No, nothing like that. But there is a way out. That thought started choosing options in menu after menu, navigating through the torrent of possibilities almost by itself. Scapanelli clawed at his head. It felt like his capsule was going to crack open at any moment. There, yes, we can get out, shouted Scapanelli wildly. I can get us out of here, all the way out. All the way out, the menus reacted, refining themselves. All the way home in space-time. The inventory retrieved a short piece of footage, a tiny artificial probe circling Earth's oversized moon, a crude vehicle. The rise of complex life had barely caught its attention, but evidence of a spacefaring species in the same system, worth making a note. That little spacecraft was the ancestor of the larger jujaw that had been left on its doorstep, now deep in its belly. This is Mission Control. Eminent capsule release. Repeat, eminent capsule release. If the selector missed its target by, say, a galactic year, it would make corrections. But by a mere century, it wouldn't even notice. From its perspective, Apollo 8 and Montu Station were from the same moment in time. There were multiple large sources of radio transmissions on the planet's surface. It picked one at random and began the preparations. Scapanelli was shouting. There's a menu. It's asking, do I want to create a corridor through time and go home all the way home? This was it. Ben ran towards the professor's voice. He knew what he had to do. He would knock him out or even kill him if he had to, to save the human race. But where was he? Scapanelli, shouted the doctor. Do you know what will happen if you do that? Scapanelli blinked rapidly. No, he admitted. I don't know what will happen, the doctor said with gentle emphasis. Then perhaps it would be a good idea not to do it. Scapanelli took a few deep breaths, thinking about it for a moment. He'd made so many mistakes. He'd made such a mess. So many people had died. Now he knew that Ra Etawi could be wantonly, profoundly destructive. And it would be given the slightest excuse. All right, he told the doctor. You're right. In his head, in his capsule, he told the selector, don't do it. I don't want you to do it. The selector didn't like it, but orders were orders. It stood down.
Polly realised she was sitting on the ground or the floor, or whatever it was. Her head had that lovely, relieved feeling you get when a headache stops. She closed her eyes for a moment, relishing the soft darkness. Ben was standing frozen in place, still fighting the overwhelming urge to move, to run, swim, fly, anything. His muscles began to relax as he realised the directory had released him. He didn't have to go anywhere. The doctor grinned. He could hear the most wonderful sound in the universe, growing louder as he listened. In a moment, with a little rush of wind, his TARDIS began to materialise in front of him. In this vague and hollow void, the TARDIS's blue bulk was a welcome weight. The ground shifted under his feet a little, making him stumble. A moment later, Polly appeared at the left side of the TARDIS. Doctor! she cried, and ran to him for a hug. Ben was coming around the right side. Never been so pleased to see the TARDIS, he said, giving the blue box a pat. Or the two of you. Did you bring the TARDIS here, Doctor? asked Polly. The Doctor shook his head. I would imagine that to Raetui, the TARDIS is like a bit of grit inside an oyster. It would like us to take it away. Hey, wait a minute, said Ben. How come we're all in the same place, all of a sudden? I'm just glad we are, said Polly. I think the arrival of the TARDIS has changed the local geometry, said the Doctor. Wait a minute, said Ben. Where's Scapinelli? There was no answer. The Doctor cupped his hands around his mouth and shouted, Scapinelli! I'm all right, said the Professor from somewhere out in the darkness. Well, come here, said Polly. We're leaving. Um, said the Professor. No, I think I'm going to stay here. But you can't do that, said the Doctor. Stand still, we'll come and get you. Don't start wandering around in this void. It's too dangerous. Raetui won't sustain this null space indefinitely, warned the Doctor. Trim is here, said Scapinelli. Oh, and I think Loxodrim is here too, somehow. He laughed, a strange light sound in the dimness. <laughs> they imagined his alarming smile. Isn't that frantic? I think Raetui is inviting me aboard, because I bought it the starfish. Because it needs someone, it wants to leave the solar system. But you can't, said Polly. It's, it's monstrous. Ben said, come on, mate. This is no place for a human being. But Scapinelli said, all the scientific knowledge it's already gathered, beyond anything human beings have ever imagined. Think how much more there is to know. Polly and Ben thought of the incredible things Raetui had offered each of them. They said nothing. But the doctor said, Scapinelli, you'll never be able to share it with anyone. No one else will ever know. There was a pause. Then the professor said, I'll know.
Ben and Polly burst out of the TARDIS doors before the Doctor could even check the sensors. The moment he said the word London, they couldn't stop themselves. Fitzroy Square! I could kiss the ground, said Polly laughing. She breathed in the smells of traffic and trees. Ben grinned, enjoying how everything looked and felt normal. The early evening light, the sidewalk under his shoes, and the people. Ordinary, nothing to write home about, beautiful Londoners. The doctor emerged from the TARDIS, pocketing the key. You both all right? No ill effects from your encounter with Ratatouille's directory? Polly thought for a moment. I don't remember it, she said. Not clearly. I think there was too much to remember. Ben laughed. I don't think my brain's big enough to think about all that stuff at once. A teenager walked past, talking into a tiny device she held in her hand. She stopped to hold it up in the air, pointing it at the post office tower, and it went click, just like a camera. Fortunately, the tourists didn't notice Ben and Polly gawping at her. It's not quite London as you know it, I'm afraid. It's 2017, the doctor admitted. The TARDIS went off course? Just a little. As usual, said Ben cheerfully. I suppose one day you'll get us properly home. Anyway, you can see for yourself London and the Earth are safe. What about Professor Scapanelli? asked Polly. Is he the Black Hole's pilot now? Or its passenger? Or its collaborator? Or its assistant? She thought. Or maybe some relationship she couldn't even imagine. Ben said, What if he goes off again without knowing the consequences of what he's doing? The doctor didn't answer them. Instead, he said, I think you'll find the problem is generally not the people who proceed without knowing the consequences, so much as the people who do know the consequences and go ahead anyway. Did it all really happen? asked Polly. I mean, we saw the Earth destroyed, and then we went into Earth's future and stopped it being destroyed in the past. Did I really work for Dr. Fields? Did Ben work for the Cheekshaloo Club? Or did all those things sort of unhappen? If someone travels through time and changes history, is it all right to change it back again? Ben thought about it for a moment. Then he shrugged. All I know is, here we are, London is safe, and it's a lovely summer night. Come on, Polly, I don't feel like looking at any more stars, not just yet. Let's go and get some fish and chips. Super! Coming, Doctor? Maybe next time. His companions went off, arm in arm, laughing. You couldn't really see the Milky Way from London, but the Doctor knew where it was. He gazed up at where the galaxy's disk stripped the sky, hidden by the city's lights. Perhaps Dr Fields was looking through a telescope at this very moment. Without the black hole's movement along the time corridor, she would never spot it. Not with this era's technology... She was free to pursue her own research, free of the influence of the Cheekshaloub Club. Perhaps he would look in on the club at some point and give them a piece of his mind. He wondered what would happen to all those micro-black holes that had been shot into the Kuiper Belt. They might present a hazard for humans exploring the edge of the solar system. With luck, the little black holes would just keep moving until they reached interstellar space. What was Ra'etui? A probe sent from another universe? 
Some bizarre life form that thrived in extreme gravity? A titanic computer program inscribed on the event horizon at the Planck level? A tool or a gateway? The doctor refused to believe that he could not understand Ra'etui. There was nothing in the universe that an intelligent mind couldn't get hold of in the end. He firmly believed that. But for now, he had to accept that the black hole was a mystery to him. For heaven's sake, he wasn't even sure what the starfish satellite had been. He huffed in frustration. Whatever it was exactly, he hoped it was the last remnant of some long-dead, super-advanced civilization. Emphasis on the long-dead. That was simply too much power for anyone to have, which included Gero Scapanelli. Out of its menu of billions and billions of possible commands, the Doctor had given Ra'atui just one. He had ordered the black hole to leave Earth's solar system and make its way to Sagittarius A, the supermassive black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. Slowly, quietly, staying clear of solar systems and spacecraft, no attention getting space-time tricks, just observe... That should be enough for Professor Scapanelli. If the professor tried to do something silly, he would find that he couldn't. The trip would take millions of years, but once Ra'etui plunged into the monster of the galaxy's core, that would be the end of the danger. He hoped. <laughs> Listening to Doctor Who, the audio novels, The Dead Star by Kate Orman, read by Michael Troughton. Sound design and music, Steve Foxen. Script editor, Roland Moore. Producer, David Richardson. Senior producer, John Ainsworth. Executive producers, Nicholas Briggs and Jason Haig Ellery. Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of Doctor Who, the audio novels. At a time when far too few women were writing for Doctor Who, Kate Orman was writing these fantastic novels for the BBC and for the, for the Virgin Range. And having read them, it, it became my mission when I started doing the audio novels to track her down 
and to see if we could get her on board. Um, and I did find her. I can't, you know, it's a fair while ago now, and I can't remember how I found her. Um, but she was so keen to get involved. And I have to say, she came back to me with this story pitch, which was the Dead Star. And I just remember Roland and I, and then Nick Briggs just turning to each other and going, oh, yes, yes, that one. Hello, this is Kate Orman. Many years ago, I wrote original Doctor Who novels for Virgin Publishing and then for BBC Books. I uh, co-wrote a lot of them with my husband, Jonathan Blum. The Dead Star is my first Doctor Who novel in nearly 20 years. I am over the moon. I actually hesitated to do this book at first. I've never written for the second Doctor. And I thought to myself, I don't really know his stories that well. But then I realised that was actually not true anymore. John and I have been watching loads of black and white Doctor Who, including the animated Troughton episodes. And we've been hugely enjoying them. I was especially interested in writing for Ben and Polly, who've been forgotten about a little bit, I think. Especially Polly, who wasn't always as well served by the TV scripts as she could have been. Hello, I'm Roland Moore, and I was script editor on The Dead Star by Kate Allman. It was a real coup to get Kate to write a script for us for these long-form adventures, um, and an absolute thrill to work with her. She's fabulous, and um, it's great to see her back on Big Finish. It was so kind of effortless on our end really I mean Kate delivered a storyline which was great and then she went away and wrote the novel and um, sent that in and that was great so on our side there's kind of no real effort or development trauma at all I mean, I'm sure it was hard work for Kate and she did all the legwork on it but um, she delivered something that was brilliant and just yeah, it just stands as evidence of, of her skill as a writer. I think the Dead Star went really well. Kate produced a really solid first draft. Um, and so we went from there through the standard sort of script editing process, a few more drafts, adding things, changing things. But in essence, the story remained the same. And Kate gave us this amazing vision of a, a show that it, it really feels like a 60s Doctor Who, but the budget on it would have been way beyond what they could have done and yeah it's just enjoyable and you can tell from the writing that she really enjoyed writing it as well I assume (laughs) she said she did but um so yeah it was great to work with her and yeah be lovely to work with her again sometime I think it's the 60s-ness of those stories that's so appealing John and I watch a lot of 60s tv in general shows like the Avengers and Danger Man so those were influences on the novel I wanted to get in a car chase with expensive cars, a big country house, our heroes going undercover, and all of those ingredients. I also love the retro futures that we see in Doctor Who around that time, which reflect all the fears and all the hopes around technology, so the space race, computers are going to take over, and so on. I wanted to blend that wonderfully chunky tech with some more up-to-date science, and especially to have some things that they couldn't have pulled off at the BBC in 1968, like the robots in the book. With these long-form audio releases, they're designed to be really immersive, long sort of listens that you can really just enjoy and relax with, while also having the sort of production values as if they were a full-cast drama. So, you know, we try and have as many sort of sound cues and music cues and sort of effects on it as possible it's a sort of enhanced novel in a way i do find the audio novels really exciting actually the interesting thing is i guess as a producer i'd always 
kind of thought of myself as a, a full cast audio producer. Even when I was doing the Companion Chronicles, I always tried to nudge them towards a more sort of full cast style whenever I could. And then I came up with the idea of the audio novels and pitched it to Jason and Nick. And just having got excited about it, found myself really falling in love with the whole genre of, of the enhanced audio style. They're great to, to script edit and write. The longer form means you can explore more avenues for the story. Um, you can give more background. You can go off at tangents. And, you know, we've seen all the writers run with it and just give their own unique take on, on that format. They smiled at him a little warily. It hadn't been long since the doctor they had first met, the stern grandfather with a twinkle in his eye, had transformed himself into this avuncular, mischievous, sometimes infuriating new man. They were still a little unsure of him. Perhaps he felt the same way about them. That was the moment the TARDIS collided with something. In the end, I had an absolute blast writing for the second Doctor and Ben and Polly. There's so much going on with Patrick Troughton's Doctor. He's brilliant, but he's childish. He's affectionate. He's distant. People doing stupid and evil things make him erupt in frustration and anger. And at the time the novel is set, Ben and Polly have seen the Doctor regenerate and they're not 100% sure of this new Doctor. Ben and Polly, I think... They reflect a turning point in the show when instead of only distant historical times or alien worlds, the time and space that the TV viewers themselves lived in began to become an important part of Doctor Who. So 60s London as a setting. I really enjoyed script editing the TARDIS team of the Doctor, Ben and Polly. It's one of my favourite teams. I've worked with the the characters before on The Night Witches uh, for the early adventures and it's great to see the interplay between them. I think they work really well as a team and um, it was great to see them back and sort of in a time travel sort of setting in a story that perhaps wouldn't have been able to be realised on TV in the 60s but which has such a flavour of those stories. So that was fabulous. I was especially keen to use Polly's confidence and initiative which make her such a bright and lively character in The War Machines. And when I heard that Michael Troughton was going to narrate the piece, um, I was really excited by that because I think it's great to have that family connection. And also, you know, he does a brilliant second Doctor. It's, um, yeah, it's a really sort of uh, sympathetic performance and um, it really evokes Patrick Troughton. Yeah, it's great. My name is Michael Troughton and I've been playing my father, the second Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton. Uh, What was lovely was being able to recreate a mixture of myself and Dad, um, and all the other wonderful characters. There were some brilliant characters. I didn't really want to do impressions of Ben or Polly, so I I did sort of rough, a rough Cockney and a a, a sort of gentle Polly, but um, some of the villains were wonderful. Uh, They were great. The Doctor looked the physicist in the eyes and said, What if I told you that the Earth is due to be destroyed, not in a century's time, but tomorrow. When, when you're doing full cast work, you're, you're always surrounded by people, which is great. And, you know, it's, it's very exciting, but it, it's a lot harder because there are a lot more elements to sort of herd together and bring together. And, you know, a full cast play 
is the work of lots of people and it's kind of my job to push them all in the same direction and you know that can be quite hard work at times just making sure it all comes together whereas on audiobooks actually I found it's a much more contained experience it's sort of me and Roland and the writer at first and then me and the narrator on the other side and then me and the the sound designer but it's a smaller group of people and a different way of working but just one that I'm finding really rewarding. That's one of the things I love doing about audiobooks is creating the voices because you see I'm an actor I can narrate but I like to act out the book I do love to do all the voices and uh, so it almost becomes like a, a radio drama I think this is why I took to doing Big Finish fairly easily because I was so used to doing uh, direct speech in a, a lot of the novels that I read Michael has been a real find for me with this series. I mean, I'd heard his work in the second Doctor Adventures, which I really enjoyed listening to. But of course, I'd worked with him before anyway. I mean, he he, he worked on one of the uh, novel adaptations with Tom Baker and Lala Ward. Different things through over the years. We've come together many times to do different things together. Uh, but I'd never worked with him as a narrator on anything. Uh, I tend to um, move around a lot <laughs> while I'm... Uh while I'm doing roles in my booth, in my little booth, which um, can get quite hot. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to fit in some kind of air conditioning unit before I suffocate uh, if I do a long run. <laughs> it was a case, actually, um, that Michael really just wanted me to send him the script and he would record himself at home. He didn't want anybody else listening in or supervising. He just wanted to do it in his own time. So when the files came back in and they were edited together. That was the first time I'd heard it. I, I just sent him the script and then just trusted in what he, he would send me. And he's um, sent us magic, really. You know, it's, it's an absolutely polished performance. You know, the, the, I do recall I sat there listening to it and it kind of fried my brain how anyone can sit there and read a book like that and leap between all the different accents and voices. And I just know if I was doing it, I'd be pausing all over the place, trying to recalibrate my brain, trying to work out who was speaking. So just hearing somebody do it in such a such an immaculate way, it just brought the whole world of the story alive. That's the only way I can describe what he's done here. He's just brought the whole thing alive. So yeah, it's not it's not a forecast play, but it kind of is because Michael's created a full cast, which is lovely. Cygnus X-1 is 6,000 light-years away. Oh, I'm sure there are one or two black holes closer to the Earth than that, said the Doctor with a meaning smile. Scapanelli, looking slightly rattled, took a sip of her lemonade. Well, theoretically, since they're the remains of dead stars, the galaxy should be full of them. In fact... There should be at least one within 30 light-years of us, the Doctor said. Even closer, I should say. I had way too much fun researching black holes. I've loved astronomy and outer space in general since I was a little kid. Black holes were actually in the news a lot uh, during my childhood in the 1970s when I was growing up watching John Pertwee and Tom Baker. And um, when I thought about it, I realised both of those Doctors encountered a black hole. I read as much about black holes as I could for the novel, but there are also qualified scientists giving 
free online lessons in the basics of physics and maths, which is an incredible resource. Fields was shaking her head. We know so little about black holes, she said. We can't be sure of your calculations. She pointed at the doctor. Assuming they're correct. Assuming, assuming you're not just making the whole thing up. The doctor said gently, It's different to care about millions of people dying a long time in the future. But it's very different when it's you. And it's now. The real science of black holes is incredibly interesting. It is full of surprises and it is weirder than anything you could just make up. So I wanted to get as much of that genuine science in as I could, but to give it a Doctor Who twist. I always like Doctor Who stories, or any kind of stories really, that show you that the writer does actually know what they're talking about, whether it's science or history or whatever, but they're not afraid to play with it. The Doctor looked around at the pretty domestic scene. He said, you know, all this is going to be destroyed, don't you? When Dr Fields' black hole arrives, said Christoffel, smiling, you know, her planet X can't be a black hole. It's too titchy. The idea that there might be a hidden planet at the edge of the solar system, that is real science. Astronomers have been trying to spot it for quite a while. And I even participated for a bit in an online crowdsourced project where we were all looking at telescope photos, trying to see if we could see this, this planet. It would be mind-boggling to find a whacking great planet just floating around out beyond Pluto. Time will tell. The Porsche roared and smacked into the back of the Daimler. It happened again and then again, making Ben's teeth rattle in his head. He had to work to keep the limo under control. Probably, though, the hardest bit of research I did for the novel was for the car chase. I know nothing about cars. Uh, I had to have a long phone call with my brother just to find out how gears work. He was a huge help. With the sound design, it was uh, <laughs> it's, it's always really... You're always sort of second-guessing yourself and checking yourself when you write a sound design such as, you know, a mechanical octopus wriggles across the floor and explodes into a million pieces um, and then reality warps. You know, and you think, that's not just like footsteps on gravel that's um that's a big job for for steve the sound designer so yeah it's great um and so you feel sort of you're giving him a cheeky challenge with things like that and you know how, how to realize a black hole i mean that's uh, <laughs> nobody's really ever heard one so um no i think he's, he's done a fabulous job there's a lot to bring together even just to make it all sound the same but beyond that then creating the entire soundscape of these worlds and in this case to create what's close to a seven hour soundscape for the story is just it's a stunning piece of work and I have to say I mean I went through and did the notes on this uh, I, I barely had any notes for Steve on the sound effects and music you know I just enjoyed listening to it you know, my, my notes were generally this is brilliant it's um it, it, it's wonderful working with somebody who's so accomplished in what they do that really my job's just easy. I can't take any credit. As Polly and Fields watched, it raised four of its legs and smashed them into the window. The glass fractured into big pieces, falling into the room, followed by the robot spider's heavy body. It landed on the office floor with a thump. It turned its blunt head towards them, 
black cameras popping out of the mass-like eyes. Polly screamed again. She couldn't help it. It's been a really interesting journey. It's a cliche, but I'll say journey for me because it's made me fall in love with a different way of working. And I'm, I'm very keen to do much more of it, actually. I, I find it a really interesting exercise. In terms of script editing them, it's, um, it's obviously a sort of different job than editing a, a four-part forecast audio, audio drama. Um, you're sort of trying to hold all these pieces in your head as you go through, making them into a consistent format as well. Each episode should be sort of roughly the same length in terms of word count, just as a guide so that... When it's recorded, they'll all be the same length. Um, it doesn't always quite work out, but there's there's a bit of a leeway. So yeah, it's quite quite good. Sort of having to do the long form and sort of holding all that stuff in your head is is fun, and <laughs> yeah, quite a task sometimes. Polly stared up at the stretch of the Thames hanging upside down above them. Why doesn't the water fall down on us? She cried. Don't give it any ideas, Paul. Murmured Ben. I really, really like the beginning of the book in that surreal and empty London, that juxtaposition of familiarity and extreme weirdness. And also, I think Ben and Polly's spacewalk is uh, a favourite bit. I wanted to try to do a sort of hard science version of all those scenes where they're in a TV studio with a plastic bubble on their head. Anyway, I had a great time writing it, and I do hope that you had a great time listening to it, and I'd love to do another one. I'm just enjoying this range more and more. And I have to say, this this individual release is something that's added to my enjoyment and my enthusiasm for the whole audio novels project. So yeah, I've got, I've got many more stories underway, all at different stages of development. Some are at storyline stage, some are at script. So I'm about to go into recording and they, they were all a different approach, different eras, different doctors, lots of surprises in there and lots of things that we can do in the audio novels that we can't do in the full cast range. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it's just an exciting time for me in a different way to play in the world of Doctor Who. 